our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We welcome the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels, through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome as well our friends in the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and from all of the Galactic Federation healing teams and all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify our work. 999 billion times, 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. We call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field multidimensionally through the conscious, subconscious, and superconscious levels of each mind. And we ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive through the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love and light and laughter. We call forth everyone and everything in our circle of support from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, every family member, every loved one, each and every friend and neighbor and all of our communities our pets, our animals, each and every situation that has ever been placed in the circle of support, our corporations and businesses, all of our groups and organizations, and each and every nation, 
their military, their government, as we call forth all of the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves just to flood each and every government and each and every aspect of each government, the legislative aspect of each government, each Congress, each legislature, the U.S. House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, each parliament, each legislative body on federal, state, and local levels, including our city councils and our school boards and our library boards and so on. And we ask with all of the energy coming in, we ask that only laws that represent divine governance, divine government, divine justice, divine law, divine love and heaven on earth be enacted and put in place. We call forth the same for the executive aspect of each government, each and every president and prime minister and head of state and vice president, each and every cabinet post and cabinet member in each nation, our Department of State, um, each Department of State and each Department of Defense and each Department of Justice in each nation. As we ask that all decisions being made in this country and in each and every country reflect only divine government, divine governance, divine law, divine justice, divine love, and heaven on earth. We ask the same for the judicial aspect of each government, the Supreme Court here in the U.S., the highest court of the land in each and every nation, all international courts, all judges, all juries, all grand juries, all prosecutors, all defendants, each and every court case and court decision, and that they be blazed with all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves so that only decisions that are based on divine love and divine law and divine justice, divine government, divine governance, and heaven on earth be made in each and every nation and each and every government. So we call this forth and we call forth everything, our circle of the weather patterns, all of the travel that's going on over the holiday weekend, um, all of the issues in the Middle East and anywhere else on the planet that there's conflict and everything that is less than heaven on earth. If we ask for the highest blueprint to be fully manifest in every aspect of life and that each and every man, woman, and child recognize who they are as divine beings and recognize their own puzzle piece of the ascension process and the creation of heaven on earth. So we ask Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her orc field, through every ley line and song line, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, and through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site and place of power every stargate, every city of light. 
as we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution along with Mother Gaia, and she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. And so we have some decrees to use. Again, call in the violet flame. We're working with all of them, but let's bring forth the violet flame to transmute anything through any level of consciousness that is locking us from the full manifestation of heaven on earth right here and right now. So as you merge further with your Christ presence, your beloved I am presence, we affirm, my beloved I am Christ presence within and above. Beloved, I am Christ's presence of all the people of earth. Beloved goddesses, peace, purity, harmony. Mother Akasha, and thy legions of angels come forth into action right now and release oceans and oceans and oceans of your sacred fire love, peace, purity, and harmony into the atmosphere of earth. And saturate it, saturate it, saturate it. Then drive, drive, drive your sacred fire, love, peace, purity, and harmony through the mental and feeling world of all humankind. Through the powers of nature, the forces of the elements, and all kingdoms of life. Make us feel the power and mastery of your sacred fire, love, peace, purity, and harmony over all conditions in this world and raise us into your ascended master's heart flame perfection forever. And we give thanks for this as we say, Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Beloved, mighty, I am Christ's presence within and above. Beloved, Elohim, Cassiopeia, and Aloha, Illumina, dissolve and consume the cause, effect, record, and memory of all that interferes with humankind's perfect brain structure and their ability to behold the majesty, beauty, and perfection of their own glorious God, God of self, of the angels, the beings of the elements, the ascended masters, and all divine activities of the light. I am the cosmic law of love from the great central sun, dissolving and consuming all obstruction to our own perfect brain structure and commanding the full restoration of our divine wisdom, infinite knowledge, enlightenment, and illumination of all we desire and require to know in order to fulfill the destinies of our lives on earth in this seventh golden crystal permanent age. Bless, God bless your divine assistance Beloved Cassiopeia and Aloha Lumina. 
And we seal this by saying, join me in saying, all Christ illumination I am. All Christ illumination I am. All Christ illumination I am. My beloved, I am Christ's presence. We in Cassiopeia reach out and declare that the planet Earth, all life upon the Earth, the substance of what the Earth is composed of, of the atmosphere of Earth, and into all forms of all kingdoms of life upon the Earth, do we give the command in her holy name, Mother Akasha, for the release of world-engulfing oceans and oceans and oceans of the violet purifying flames and a grand concentration of violet lightning. We give the command for the release of oceans and oceans and oceans of the cosmic blue flames of purity and power, blending with the release of oceans and oceans and oceans of the rose pink flames of divine love, blending with oceans and oceans and oceans of the golden flames of Christ's illumination through mighty and unlimited forces of the angels, releasing now into the atmosphere, into the structure of the earth, upon the surface of the earth, into the powers of nature, the forces of the elements, and into all waterways upon the earth, oceans, rivers, streams, lakes, and seas. And almighty God, God is drenching, world engulfing, flood of the sacred fire and all of its love, mercy and forgiveness in all its purity and power to consume all that is discordant upon this planet and all discord that has touched life, elemental life, world engulfing oceans of the sacred fire entering into the earth element to purify the earth and remove all viruses from the substance and atmosphere of the planet. Immortal purity I am. Immortal purity I am. Immortal purity I am. Beloved, I am Christ's presence within and above. Beloved God and Goddess of Peace, mighty Elohim of Peace, and legions of angels of the peace-commanding flame of divine love, descend into the atmosphere of earth and project your mighty gold and emerald green flames of invincible peace, the peace-commanding presence of all energy, substance, and vibration everywhere we abide, every moment of every day. Hold in through and around us, our loved ones, and all under this radiation, thy peace-commanding presence of divine love, that forever compels and maintains eternal peace, then expand that cosmic feeling of invincible peace, blazing through us into the mental and feeling world of all of the people of Earth that are caught in war, violence, and disease. Improve the power of the flame of peace and its authority to silence and remove all discord forever. Drop forth 
into outer physical manifestation, the perfection of the seventh golden age, everywhere forever. We say to all life, my peace I give unto you, as the angels and ascended masters do. And we proclaim eternal peace, I am. Eternal peace, I am. Eternal peace, I am. Beloved mighty Christ, I am within and above, great ascended and angelic host. Beloved mighty Helios, master, teacher, our son. Beloved Christ and all limitless legions of light that come with thee to fulfill the destiny of this I am race. We demand and command the intensification of the cosmic light substance flooding the atmosphere of Earth from the physical sun and the great central sun and all ascended master temples of light. Make it drench and saturate the mental and feeling world of all humankind and compel the last of all human creation and destructive use of free will to be completely silenced and consumed forever. Reveal the divine plan of each life stream and cause us to work with one another peacefully, harmoniously, and for the greater good of all, everywhere, forever. Let there be light, light, light. We love and bless the light of the Christ and we affirm the light of God never fails. The light of God never fails. The light of God never fails. Beloved, I am Christ's presence within and above. Mighty, I am Christ's presence of every person on earth. Goddess of liberty. Sended Master, St. Germain. Great Cosmic Angel. Akasha, a son, Lady Master, Nada. Lord Melchizedek. Elohim, Arcturus, and Mighty Victory. I demand... And I command the Ascended Master's sacred fire management of all energy, time, and space be charged into the mental and feeling body of every person in the world to assist them to manipulate and use all energy, time, and space constructively for the fulfillment of their part of the divine plan, the Ascended Master's way. They deserve to know and be the truth of the law of life. For there is only one manifestation everywhere throughout the universe, and that is the law of energy and vibration. The unfed flame in every heart and sevenfold flame in every brain is a source of unlimited energy, substance, intelligence, time, and space. Let this truth be restored into the conscious awareness of all people and show them the perfect ways and means of using it to uplift themselves and all life in this octave into eternal freedom. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Mighty, I am Christ's presence within and above. Mighty, I am Christ's presence of every life stream embodied and awaiting embodiment. 
We demand and command the mightiest divine intervention and assistance from all the constellations of our universe. Come, beloved beings of cosmic light, love, and sacred fire mastery. Enter into the earth's atmosphere and reveal thy eternal dominion over all forces in creation. Show the people of earth that there is so much more to life that than we have been told or shown by the corrupt beings that temporarily govern the third dimension. Unveil the hidden mysteries of life now. Teach us the true knowledge and eternal wisdom of the tree of life consciousness and make us whole light beings of divine love once again. Help us to realize all that we are. We thank you. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Almighty Christ, I am. Take a nice deep breath. Beloved, mighty, I am Christ's presence within and above. Beloved goddesses, faith, hope, and charity. I call upon you to assist me to feel the feeling of the light of your love. I command my feeling side of life to feel the light of divine love pouring down through me and out from me. I realize now that my Christ self cannot come into this physical body suddenly for it cannot withstand the vibratory action of a higher mental body in its complete fullness. I understand that the light of the Christ self must come into the mind, body, and feeling side of life gradually. And what helps this gradual increase is my ability to feel the light. Beloved goddesses, faith, hope, and charity help me to feel the light of the Christ increasing in me each day. I love you with all my heart. Almighty faith, hope, and charity, I am. Almighty faith, hope, and charity, I am. Almighty faith, hope, and charity, I am. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We do close with an abundance prayer. From the light of God that we are. From the love of God that we are. From the power of God that we are. From the heart of God that we are, we decree. We dwell in the midst of infinite abundance. The abundance of God, Goddess, is our infinite source. The river of life never stops flowing. It flows through us into lavish expression. Feel your heart opening to receive. Good comes to us through unexpected avenues, and God works in a myriad of ways to bless us. We now open our minds to receive our good. 
Nothing is too good to be true. Nothing is too wonderful to have happen. With God as our source, nothing amazes us. We are not burdened by thoughts of past or future. One is gone, the other is yet to come. By the power of our belief, coupled with our purposeful, fearless actions, and our deep rapport with Mother, Father, God, our future is created and our abundance made manifest. We ask and accept that we are lifted in this and in every moment into higher truth. Our minds are quiet. From this day forward, we give freely and fearlessly into life, and life gives back to us with magnificent increase. Blessings come in expected and unexpected ways. Mother, Father, God provides for us in wondrous ways for the divine work that we do. I am indeed grateful. Again, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for the abundant blessings of this sacred time. We give thanks for all that we are receiving at this beautiful upcoming full moon and this holy season through the end of the year. So I want to take my time to give thanks to each of you. Thank you for being on the planet at this time. Thank you for your divine service as we do it as we begin the Saturday program. Infinite blessings to each and every one of you throughout the rest of the year. May our abundance and everything continue to grow at an amazing rate and in every moment affirm I am blessed. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your service. We're going to thank Tarn Rama for their service and Rainbow for their service, but first I want to remind you about the service that we do every Sunday and Monday night. So please consider joining us for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls every Sunday and Monday, although there will be no call on Christmas, that's the one exception. Uh, we'll be there for this holiday season. We start at 8 45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We start with about 25 minutes of greetings. We have Tarn Rama for a brief update, and then we proceed with our work of bringing heaven to earth through our invocations, our prayers, our visualizations, our meditations, our activations, and our updates as well. So this is a teleconference call. The main number to dial is area code 480-660-2224. 480-660-2224. And so 
we invite you to join us each and every Sunday. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. There are additional phone numbers. There are local numbers. There's international numbers you can get on through freeconference.com. There's also an app. So if you need that additional information, I'd be happy to share that with you. Please contact me by email at Cheryl Croce, C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. We'd love to have you join us and be a regular part of the family of light that are that is doing this service work. And again, we love and thank you for your service. And we want to thank once again Tarn Rama. We want to thank Rainbird. And um, I send my love and gratitude and infinite blessings for an amazing week ahead. With that, I'm going to pass a talking stick blazing with the violet flame of transmutation and all the other frequencies that we have called in. And amazing crystals and, and fairies and and um, just energies of every good thing. Abundance of all. So I pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you, everyone, and have a blessed week. Thank you, Cheryl. I'll take that talking stick. Gorgeous. And thank you for your divine service as well. We're grateful for these openings each Saturday. Lots of gratitude. So, I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listener supported radio program. Each of us that make it happen. And each week we need, um, in this month, we need $277.75 to cover our uh, fees with CBS radio. And, um, yeah, we're, we're behind a little bit. We still need another $80 to cover uh, the first week in November, and then the other three weeks are right there in front of us. So that comes to $834 altogether. And uh, I'm sure we can do it. Put in and work out on it. And, and so here's how we do it. We go into our heart space and see what is ours to give. And then we go to bbsradio.com and you click on radio station 2 for this program and you'll see this schedule there for radio station 2 and right on the home page. So uh, as you look at the 3.30 hour, it's the true history of the Sarah and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama and uh, the 3.30 hour is a central time as CBS is located in central time. And so as you click on that icon that's there, that'll take you directly to our account with CBS Radio, where you can use your bank card uh, to make a donation in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. We have two other programs. They are on CBS Radio Station 1, and they're both at the 8 o'clock hour on Thursdays. It's the night at the round table with the panel. And the K is silent, <laughs> the night, the nights at the round table. So, yeah, click on that icon there, and that'll take you to our account. And then you'll see listed at the 8 o'clock hour on Fridays, the hard news with Tara and Rama on Friday night. And you can click on that icon, and that takes you to our account. That's how we get it done. 
So thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful for your participation in this way. And if you've never participated, this is a good time to start. No no donation too small. So <laughs> test it out, test the water, see what it feels like, and know that you will receive abundance in return, as we always do when we, when we um, pay it forward this way. So there you go. Thank you, 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. And we are also assisting Tara and Rollin with their needs. And each week they need $200 for their living expenses. And they have one bill they need to cover this week. And it's the, um, the Internet bill. And it's $161.17. So just those two items, so 200 covers all their living expenses um, with, with food and gas and, and kitty litter, all those things that you end up needing to buy. So... Uh, thank you for your generosity. Here's how I make a contribution to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. You access that by going to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net, N-E-T. And uh, as you go there, you'll see on the home page, if you're on a computer, it's on the right-hand side of the uh, menu bar that, that goes along the horizontal line across the top, and there's the Menu grid that's on other devices and click on that menu grid, you'll find the um, PayPal donate listing near the bottom of the list, like second to the last. And so you'll find that there. Just click on that link for donate and that takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal site. And there, as it is a PayPal site, they do have a friends and family option, and you can access that by using this email that's for the Rainbow Roundtable site, and it is as follows, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. Koran49hotmail.com. So uh, as you enter that in, you can... Uh, as a gift, it, that email will then not uh, uh, incur any of the uh, commercial charges that come with a commercial site. So we are all friends and family. It's a good way to do it. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all your donations for Tara and Rama. So as you're sending, sending something, let Rama know in his email address for letting him know is Koran999 at comcast.net. So it's Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 39, at comcast.net, N-E-T. So there you go. That's his email. Let him know when you sent it, what, how much you sent, so he can plan his day. And, and then also, as you need it, there is a physical address, and it is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. With a zip code, it's 87567. And I'll say it again. Ron Berkowitz, Post Office Box 280-280. And Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 
the zip, 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need. And we are so grateful for your lives and for being here and participating in all the ways that you show up in your lives. And we're grateful for your generous contributions. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. <laughs> and it's still full of turkey things and pumpkins, um, pumpkin pies, and all kinds of cornucopia kinds of things to eat in holiday season. So uh, it also has a lot of fairies and feathers, and it has all the the frequencies of the rainbow, and it has that transmitting violet frame and all the other uh, flames that we Cheryl invoked this afternoon in her meditation. And uh, it's got a lot of abundance on it. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick. And it's also got those little people, the Manahunis and the gnomes and the elves and the and the divas. And it also has um, dwarves and uh, unicorns and dragons. But only one of each of those because because it's really loaded this time. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Oh, we'll take that talking stick together, won't we, Rama? Greetings. <laughs> Thank you, Greenberg. Thank, Thank you, Cheryl. It's to the point about now that uh, the paradigm has really been shifting very swiftly. Yes. And uh, I, Ramak just gave me a little bit of what he could, about his message for today. And he'll probably say a few more things. But he starts off saying, I listened to Medea Benjamin uh, on Living on the Edge radio show at 11 a.m. this morning. And. um, she said to everyone, Israel, meaning Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, yet and still is not playing with a full deck. The right-wing government of Israel wants to remove all Palestinians from their land. Mm-hmm. In response to this want, Lord Astar said in my ear, Lord Rama, that is not on the menu. (laughs) No. (laughs) And then he went on and said a new phase is beginning. That is the fifth dimension being anchored right now. Anything more? Just, uh... When you hear the stories out there, like Cheryl was saying, Lace of Violet Fire, call in all the angels. And I might sound ridiculous and off the wall, but it's real. It happens. It is part of everyday life in the fifth dimension. There is no war. The war is inside here. Got to heal the heart. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest 
drama that's going on right now, and I'll say it again, ad nauseum, <laughs> this has been going on for 26,826 years, uh, a yuga, and we're seeing already what Pluto in Aquarius, even though it's not quite there yet, backing up into Capricorn and then back into Aquarius and Pisces somewhere in there too. But as we move into 2024, it's moving more into Aquarius and I just got to say, there are amazing things happening on this planet in our local solar system and galaxy, and it's all about us, the main show, us ascending with the planet, and war is not the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never the answer. No. Right. It is about this new fifth dimension that is unfolding right now where, like Aurora Ray keeps talking about, we have all gifts and abilities. Patty Robles talks about this as well. Each time she does her talk. <laughs> oh my. Commander Don, can you? Hello. Okay, you better call up real quick. Hold on, everybody. We'll have to get home. meditation moments in time there. It's all yeah, divine up. chaos, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it is what it is, isn't it, Rowan? Yep. So you were saying that the fifth dimension is beginning now. And we have everything we need. It's about slowing down and listening to the oneness, as I call it, like Alan Watts calls it the nothingness. So do you want to play that first, Drama? Yeah. Okay, this is Aurora Ray right here. She says, Galactic Federation Transmission, a new phase is beginning. So let's see what she has to tell us. Galactic Federation Transmission. A new phase is beginning. You're entering a new phase of life. Your vibrations are rising, and your body is changing to the fifth dimensional frequency. You will soon enter Gaia's golden age, 
where there will be nothing but happiness. The new earth is a planet of peace, love, and joy. It is the most beautiful planet in the universe. It is a land of light, love, and abundance. The people on this planet live in peace and harmony with each other. There are no diseases and no war on this planet. The people of the new earth enjoy eternal blissfulness and happiness. There are no sufferings or problems in the new earth. All your sufferings will be over when you enter the new earth, the golden age of Gaia. You will be happy as an immortal being forever on this beautiful planet. The dark forces cannot live for a single moment in that vibration and will leave this planet forever. They will be thrown into the lower dimensions to continue with their negative activities. In fifth dimensional frequency, you transform yourself into an all-powerful being who lives with ultimate blissfulness. When the earth changes its frequency to the fifth dimension, your consciousness will also change accordingly. You will be able to travel in space and time. There is no need for a spaceship anymore. You can simply think about where you want to go and you will immediately be there. Your soul will leave your physical body and travel anywhere in the universe and it will return back to your body whenever you want. There will be no diseases in the fifth dimension because there is no negative energy field like on Earth. You can live much longer than today and your body will stay perfect. In the 5D, there are no material goods or money anymore. All material goods are created by the power of thoughts of humans, and they are distributed equally to all humans. The quantity of money on the planet is limited in order not to keep balance on Gaia. You can feel it. The last pieces of the puzzle fit into place. The energies are shifting in your favor, and you are witnessing miracles happening every single day. Nothing can stop the inevitable now. Not even a full-scale war on this planet will be able to prevent our ascension. But to experience this miraculous event, you must first get rid of all negative energy that has accumulated within you throughout your entire incarnation cycle on Gaia. When you clear this last hurdle, there will be nothing left to stop us from moving into the fifth dimension. There is no way to avoid this cleansing process because it is a natural part of the ascension process. It is the last stage before we can reach the 5D New Earth. You could call it a cleansing before rebirth, if you will, because when we reach the 5D New Earth, we will have a body of crystalline light that has been cleansed and purified of all darkness. Therefore, many people also refer to ascension as ascension through a tunnel of light, which perfectly describes this process. In the 5D New Earth, you will be able to maintain that state of being in the following ways. 1. You will be able to remain in a state of peace, happiness, and bliss through your consciousness. 2. You will be able to eat for nourishment, for physical well-being, instead of for taste and enjoyment. 3. You will be able to meditate on the positive attributes instead of on the negative ones as we do now. 4. You will not need sleep as we do now. 5. You will not have any illness or disease as we do now. 6. You will not experience physical death, but you can choose when you want to leave your body if you wish to do so. The new earth is a world of light, love, and awakening. 
It is a world where there is no fear, a world free of darkness and deception. Its inhabitants have fully awakened to their divine purpose and live in harmony with each other and with nature. Now you may be thinking that this sounds too good to be true, and if it were being presented by an external authority, you'd be right. But this new earth will not come about through any human effort or organization. It will simply happen when we're ready. The 5D new earth is not associated or affiliated with any religious traditions, organizations, or entities. It is only associated with your consciousness. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Wonderful. I was just going to read this real quick. I got inspired to look up Lord Maitreya in the uh, Keys of Enoch glossary. And it says, in Sanskrit and Tibetan scripture, quote, unquote, the future Buddha for planets within the golden octave of light. Lord of the fifth world of light, a bodhisattva in the Tusita heaven. Mm. Do you know what that means, the Tusita heaven, Rama? Mm, I've heard it, but I don't know what it means, really. Uh-huh. It's one of the dimensional realms that is spoken about in the Vedas. Okay. Well, that. we'll just let that, I thought that was perfect. Uh, we're in the fifth dimension as Aurora Ray just got through speaking, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. And Maitreya has some partners. We all, we call them the four musketeers. Mother Sekhmet, Lord Maitreya. Metatron. Metatron and. Michael. Archangel Michael. Okay, so let's listen with the overlighting of those four beings. Here we go. And we're going to play a a marathon here. We did not play Ethan and Michaela last week. And so that's two hours and one minute. And we're going to play that. And then we're going to play uh, this week's uh, Ethan Mm -hmm. and Michaela, which is an hour and 22 minutes. So let's get started. Here we go. Happy Thanksgiving. And here we come into the season of, what do you call this season? The season of the Christ, right? Yes, the return of the The Christ. The return of the Christ, yes. All right, here we go. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Mikhail Sheldon. And we'll be spending the next two hours talking about ancient civilizations with the guides and wisdom we can apply to our modern-day lives. As always, Michaela is a trans channel, and I don't discuss any of the questions or topics with her beforehand. We'll be speaking directly to the guides, but just so our conscious mind doesn't interfere in any way with the information, I don't share any of the topics with her beforehand. 
So we can start whenever we're ready. Who are we speaking today? There are a great many who gather for these interactions, and we are always prepared to invite in those that are best suited to provide answers that are necessary to lead the understanding in the most grounded way. Uh, at the same time, uh, we also want to identify that we are Pleiadian and we are also in connection with the Elohim, a collective of ascended masters. Okay, so Pleiadians, any particular dimensional Pleiadians or uh, a number of different kinds? We consider ourselves elders. We are ninth dimensional. However, we have also been in contact with 12th dimensional Pleiadians from time to time throughout these transmissions and are able to access that Akashic information if necessary. Okay, so I'd like to start by speaking with the Elohim since they are here because there's some discrepancy in many ancient texts as to who the Elohim are. Um, A lot of different um, ideas and opinions. Some seem to suggest that Elohim are a collective of very highly conscious beings. Um, But there are also some ancient texts that suggest that Elohim are the the grouping of the... um, uh, the top echelon of the Anunnaki who came to Earth in ancient times, uh, the ones we discussed, the uh, Enlil Enki timeline. So can you shed more light on who the Elohim are and what is this relationship that some people attribute to the Anunnaki? Well, well first it is necessary for us to distinguish between a, a more cosmic relationship to the Elohim and one that is earthly, because often you are referring to an an earthly definition of who the Elohim must be, yet this lineage spans all space and time. It is not just those of us who have been present in physical bodies in human form that, that make up this collective. In fact, if we were to go back to our origins, we would say before many of the planets and star systems that you know today were actually formed in this universe, uh, the the prime creator itself expanded into fragments of itself. And we are the manifestation of those first fragments of light that became conscious and, and in doing so began to explore the universe to better understand its workings. Beyond that, uh, we have manifested as planets and as stars. But the origins of the Elohim have taken different shapes and forms, as you can imagine. If we are cosmic beings and we have assumed positions uh, in the very beginning of a planet's formation, we may be Anunnaki elders uh, as well as uh, intergalactic elders of many other different races. Yet here on planet Earth, We want to make you very aware of the distinguishing line between what you speak of in terms of the Anunnaki and the Elohim that are here to serve. Because it would be natural for a cosmic race that has come to Earth to assume some lineage of priority uh, or even royalty, we might say, especially a race that was attempting to to sway the minds uh, of those present uh, within the human collective. So there are many stories left behind 
of Anunnaki who may have claimed this lineage uh, simply because they knew it would work to their advantage in, in terms of being perceived uh, in a certain light of, of wisdom uh, or uh, gifts and abilities. But we prefer to perceive the the earthly Elohim collective uh, more so as an assembly of ascended masters. Now, this term is a very wide definition as well. Of course, we've spoken of what we see an ascended master to, to be, which is ultimately an intergalactic being, uh, able to manifest in multiple dimensions simultaneously in order to share some level of Akashic relevance. And, and certainly we see the Elohim this way, uh, a group of intergalactic, intergalactic ascended masters who assumed positions uh, in various timelines throughout ancient history uh, where they may have been revered as light masters or, or light teachers um, and even today, this collective continues to grow and expand. So based upon Earth's history and all that has happened, Ascended Masters have risen to the occasion of becoming one with the Elohim for the sake of the Earth's future ascension trajectory. Is this particular group of Elohim operating from a particular dimension or a variety of different dimensions? We could not claim one dimension. Uh, we are interdimensional, so it is most important to identify us uh, with the 12th dimension, yet at the same time to understand that an ascended master is named as such because within a single incarnation became an aspect of God renewed, meaning there was no distinction between the form that it took and what prime creator assumes itself to be. This this realization is something that you are all attempting to attain here on uh, a physical planet in your own uh, unique form. Uh, yes, we would consider ourselves multidimensional and we must be uh, in order to serve as widely as we do. Now the word L, E-L, is used in ancient times and even modern times actually, in particular in the Mesopotamian area where we've discussed Enlil being uh, based as his uh, group of people. And even to this day, a lot of the cities in that area have L in the name, uh, like Tel Aviv, for example. Um, and um, now the ancient attribution of this usage was to the Anunnaki who originated in that area. And the L was um, essentially to this day means God. So is this attribution that was used in Mesopotamian times referring to the Anunnaki gods in physical form on earth, or was it referring to the Elohim that I'm speaking with today? Again, this we believe is, is uh, the perfect scenario and, and distinction that must be made. Uh, are you referring to prime creator as the, the universal one uh, source of light and energy, or are you using this terminology in order to reference the self as a God. And, and while there are many who would assume that God is within each one of us and we should all be uh, an aspect of it, those that were present on the planet during the period of Mesopotamia would have wanted to claim this power only for themselves, not for 
the masses to understand that the power actually uh, would lie within them. So, so this again is, is a, um, a interesting relationship. We believe that can be extended to many of your religious um, teachings uh, where you are looking at various religions that are teaching of a God outside of the self that should be honored and prayed to versus uh, coming to uh, a relationship uh, with the primal God within. See, the Elohim, just like the Pleiadians or the Arcturians and other collectives have any, or even the Syrians, for example, they all seem to have certain physical or energetic uh, characteristics. For example, the reptilians tend to take a snake-like form or a reptilian kind of form. Um, do the Elohim have any distinctive proper or characteristics? It would be a, a different distinguishing characteristic based upon the individual ascended master that perhaps was representing the Elohim as a collective. So as we speak to you today, uh, we are using uh, the mode of this channel's voice as a one expression, meaning we are combining all of our information, wisdom, uh, and voices uh, to manifest in a very concise format. So it would be difficult for us to say that there could ever be one form uh, that would represent truly the Elohim collective. Yet, if you go back through many of the ancient civilizations where uh, the Elohim may have been revered or, or spoken of or even uh, experienced, uh, you will see them translated through the individuals that were present at the time. And, and this is merely a perception. In other words, uh, very similar to what you would experience today if an angel showed up uh, here in your space. Uh, each individual would have a very different definition or vision or experience of what an angelic being may be perceived as, and it isn't always human. Uh, even though the angels are often associated with a more grounded human type of presentation, uh, angels can take many, many different forms, uh, and the Elohim are the same. With regard to ancient texts, um, would you would it be reasonable to say that when the Elohim are referenced in texts such as the Bible, let's say, that it is referring to a physical incarnation, perhaps the Anunnaki um, that we discussed that moment ago, versus the uh, the Elohim that I'm speaking with today? Yes, we believe that to be true in in most cases. Were the Elohim, the ones, the collective that I'm speaking with today, not the Anunnaki version, were that, that group of Elohim present in the original seeding of humanity on Earth? Yes, many of us were present during that time. In fact, we had a very specific role and assignment uh, in humanity's original seeding, and it had less to do with the shape, form, and divine plan of of the human collective uh, and truly more to do with the relationship that the collective would hold to prime creator. You speak very often of the source field or manifesting through a field known as source. And if we are some of the original God sparks, we have a very um, significant understanding of how uh, energy is exchanged throughout the universe and especially how 
the mechanism of source manifests itself in different dimensions and through different vibrations. Uh, it was our assignment to come and study and observe how source energy would flow to a physical material planet and how a new race of humans would adapt to understanding their energetic relationship to it. And we were teachers in this respect, meaning uh, some of the original tribes of um, humans that were hybrid at first uh, came to understand not necessarily a manifestation technique through us, but the workings of universal law and how they would interface uh, with their own beliefs and, and who they considered themselves to be. Uh, we consider ourselves guides and mentors in this area. I'd like to go back now and resume where we started the last two times and go back to ancient times and a lot of the ancient architecture that exists around the world. And uh, this time begin with um, now in, in Africa, as we've discussed in previous conversations, Enki was given dominion over Africa. And, uh, and so the Egyptian civilization, a lot of the African civilization, uh, appears to have spawned from his influence or others who were in his group of people or descendants, for example. And in South Africa, in particular, we see a certain kind of um, structures that appear to be stone structures, and they're uh, very weathered uh, or perhaps even were destroyed in a cataclysm. And so not much remains of them now, although they appear to have been made from very small, flat stones that were stacked on top of each other. Uh, but they, um, in their present form, they look very crude, and yet they also embody perfect geometry. And now many conventional archaeologists have attributed them to be housings for cattle. But the thing is, there's no opening uh, and, and to get into these, um, so no doorway or entry points. Um, and there are concentric circles on the inside of these structures that also are very small, too small for a room for, for a human being to live in. And they also don't have doorways or openings. So the idea of them being for cattle or even human beings doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and secondly, there is at least, uh, there are at least a hundred, um, a hundred thousand to ten million of these structures in South Africa. So that's quite a substantial number. So a lot of people will have their own speculations on what these structures are and what they were used for. Um, and, it, and even whether they were built by the Anunnaki. Another theory is that the, um, Anki, essentially his responsibility was to mine for gold. And in the locations where all these structures are located, there are a lot of ancient gold mines that still remain. And some theories are that these round uh, stone circle structures were used in a way to refine the gold. Uh, can you explain what these structures were and whether it was the Anunnaki or somebody else who built them? Uh, well, we want to begin by saying that the influence of the Anunnaki is, is very obvious and, and present here not in the structure itself in the way that it appears from the outside, but the technological 
advancement of what is going on internally, which is extremely important. And and when you speak of gold, we want to refer to the idea of, of power and generating power using inner earth elements. Uh, we see these more as free energy devices that we're tapping into the elements and transposing them into either telecommunication centers that would connect to each other such that um, regardless of where you were uh, throughout that geographic region, you would be able to receive a, a message or a signal telepathically. Uh, in addition to this, the energy generated between these various points created a field, and that field was very similar to some of the technologies that were used in Atlantis. Remember, in Atlantis, the technologies were working with precious earthly elements to uphold a certain level of coherence and higher vibration. This kept the entire civilization operating in higher consciousness and also holding a, a unified field, meaning um, there were more humans operating for the benefit of each other as opposed to themselves. And this is an iteration of this uh, simply being shown in a different geographic region and using a different format, more applicable to that region itself. Now, you're asking about the refinement of gold, and, and we cannot neglect that in the process of creating these, one of the effects was finding the gold in a supercharged state. So for generating power or energy, uh, using inner earth elements and, and precious metals like gold. What is going to happen is the, the elements or the gold itself is going to become modified through the process. It is somewhat like um, creating a, a turbine. When we're using the energy in the, in the inner uh, container of that turbine, we're making efficient use of all of it such that the turbine becomes a self-generating force. And that's ultimately what was taking place within each of these individual units. So, so the benefits were multiple. Um, we cannot say, of course, that all of it worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. Um, very much like today, you are in a, in a period of technological advancement where some things are succeeding and other things are failing and some have advantages and also disadvantages. And of course, uh, this was also the experience of, of the ancients at this time when they were using these various um, uh, tools and technologies and putting them in place on a planet that was foreign to where they had come from. Uh, all of it had to be um, observed and measured and, and further understood. So, so consider it still even today in the format that it has been left behind, uh, not in completion, but a work in progress. Now, some research has researchers have speculated the design of these stone circles inside circles resembles very closely the electronic component of a magnetron, which we use in laser and microwave transmitters today. Is that what you're referring to? Something like a magnetron? We we see the similarity here, and, and we do agree that its its um, uh, its design can be considered. Uh, very closely connected uh, to this type of technology. Uh, at the same time, you have to take into an account uh, the dimension that these beings were in and especially the knowledge that they had, which 
would have used more of a sentient type of, of energy as opposed to a more physical construction. So it is not just what you find uh, encased within uh, the structure itself or how energy was uh, designed to flow, but also how it was connecting with universal energy, which was an important part of the configuration. Okay, help me to understand then. So these were some ancient form of a magnetron um, using operating in a different dimension, obviously. So when we're saying different dimension, if we go back to the earlier conversation, uh, earlier conversations we've had on previous shows about the Anunnaki having originally been um, ninth dimensional, but when they incarnated on Earth, they entered the fifth dimension and eventually descended to the third dimension. So this dimension that the, you're referring to, was that the fifth dimension that these original stone circles operated in? Well, we want to answer your question, but we first want to add some context. And, and it is not our intention to add a level of complexity here, but, but we think it's important because when a certain dimension is numbered or named, it is assumed to be exactly the same as it would be anywhere else. And, and even on the same planet in which that dimension existed. For example, if we go back into many of the ancient stories that we have been reviewing, uh, the third dimension was uh, the, the present reality. But what was created in that third dimension by beings that were accessing higher ones may have made it a completely different reality than the one you exist in today, that is the same third dimension. So, so the consciousness level of the beings that are present within any dimension will determine what is created there, distinguishing it from other dimensions of the same caliber that may actually be completely different in their presentation. So we want to also add that in the third dimension, there are so many factors that come into play that you would not consider today that we think have been hidden from you. Uh, for example, just because you live in the third dimension doesn't mean that you cannot tap into free energy. But because these ideas have been suppressed, you haven't been using it to your advantage. So so material density can be extremely valuable uh, in terms of technological advancements in a specific reality and dimension, but how that information becomes capped uh, or we'll say suppressed or unavailable is always the deciding uh, factor. Uh, ask us your original question again. Well, let me... Uh, add on to what you just said and rephrase the question then. So, so as an example, based on what you're saying, let me just use a hypothetical scenario and you can tell me if I'm understanding correctly. So what you're saying is we're in the third dimension now, moving to the fifth dimension. And even though the Anunnaki were in the fifth dimension, um, in, the, in those ancient times, they were beings who were coming from a ninth dimension. So they had access, many of them perhaps, to especially Enki maybe, uh, to higher dimensional awareness, knowledge, wisdom. So if we were to attribute that to modern day life, 
that we understand today. It might be, for example, if we had two individuals, one who was tapping into a ninth dimensional consciousness and another who was tapping into a third dimensional consciousness, both of which creating technology. Um, the third dimensional consciousness individual perhaps may use a magnetron to create a laser weapon or a microwave weapon, um, whereas the ninth dimensional individual may use a magnetron to create some sort of magnetic field that could enhance consciousness or uh, expand consciousness. Is that what you mean? Well, we want to dis- break down, let's say, the differences here that you've brought to our attention because it is assumed that the intention behind technology in a third dimensional reality would be lower in its vibration than that of a ninth dimensional one. And this isn't always exactly true because remember consciousness is the determining factor in each dimension, but it is the level of material density that you are interacting with that becomes the important mode of creation. So So within the third dimension, certainly you could have an individual tapping into the Akashic wisdom of the ninth dimension and actually creating a technology using the material density and richness and resources of the earth that actually does the same thing as an Atlantean type of manifestation. So the difference is, When you have been so suppressed of that Akashic connection, you are going to not see a unified purpose for what you are creating. In fact, that is what has happened within the reality that most of you are creating timelines in today is that the idea of purpose, especially uh, connected to your collective, is not the common mode of transportation for your creative energy. Uh, this has been the greatest loss, we believe. So so if you look at someone like Anki, for example, who would have been focused on unifying collectives and creating peace or um, ensuring that the the earth continues to evolve and, and each individual soul is contributing to that evolution, you might see a more enlightened type of manifestation than someone who was not as focused in these areas. And this happens today. Of course, you can see it right now on planet Earth. There is a great divide, and that divide has a great deal to do with level of consciousness. And level of consciousness is equal to the energy and information and wisdom that you are able to attain and somehow put into relevant use on a physical planet. And and let's play with this idea uh, a little while longer because we do see a great many humans that are awakening spiritually and able to access the ninth dimension and beyond and gaining a lot of great information and wisdom for themselves. But where they fall short is they aren't able to make the connection between that realm and the third dimension. And that is another um, area we believe that is of great concern, uh, often because the speed of vibration here amongst your collective 
isn't catching up to or or equal in its frequency to the individuals that are able to access beyond. And and there were many at the time uh, period you are referring to, even though it was a third dimensional reality, that were um, understanding of these methodologies and spiritual practices and, and evolving themselves to the point where collectives were forming and you were seeing enlightened civilizations even at a time when there was great turbulence and chaos. Okay, let's explore this idea a little further so I can make sure I understand it. So when you're referring to the... Well, let's just talk about the difference between the ninth dimension and the third dimension just for a moment. Just one difference. One difference from my understanding from our previous conversations is the ninth dimension operates more as a collective of beings, whereas third dimension, we're more individual. Am I on the right track so far? Yes, we agree with that. Okay. So in your earlier statement, were you meaning that a being, for example, let's say I'm currently walking in the third dimension but I'm accessing ninth dimension. And if I were to access ninth dimensional knowledge, wisdom, information, and manifest that into my reality as technology or something else, is what you're saying that, and many of us you're saying are doing that now, many um, more conscious individuals are doing that now, are accessing higher dimensions, but because we are unable to translate that into a uh, into a collective consciousness perspective as those in the ninth dimension would do, the manifestation of that technology becomes more self-serving versus more something that benefits a collective. Am I correct? We want to add some more context here, and, and we think that this will help you to understand because... Uh, there is quite a difference between identifying with the self and a collective versus holding a unified or coherent field. So what we've talked about in our past conversation has a great deal to do with ego. For example, in the third dimension, you are meant to perceive through an individual perspective. That is how you actually strengthen your collective reality and create coherence and a unified field amongst all. It is the uniqueness and individuality that each soul brings to earth that is a beneficial component or the glue that holds the collective together. And and as we say this, we know many of you will realize that this has been damaged and, and deconstructed because you are using your individuality sometimes to create indifference or to create arguments or to hold on tightly to your ideas. And, and this is what has broken down the relationship that is, we believe, so important to fully manifesting what you're able to access in a higher dimension, meaning individuals are having incredible experiences in their spiritual access and process. But because the coherence isn't there to bring that into full fruition in a material reality, it often doesn't succeed. And, and you're moving towards that, that coherence more and more. We know many would question, well, we have measured coherence. We know that there is a coherent field on earth. 
But the difference between the third and the fifth and even the ninth dimension is the level or the frequency of that coherence. And this relates back to the Schumann, for example, which we've discussed in our past conversations, where it is a capture of all of the living beings on planet Earth. And as it continues to raise, what you'll find is you're moving into higher and higher dimensions. And that's truly where the benefit of being a part of a collective is shown. And it doesn't have to take away your individual perspective just because you've chosen to be a physical being. In the ninth dimension, there's really less need to identify individually or through the ego with something unique that benefits the whole. It's not that individuals lose their sense of self. Even in a ninth dimensional collective, beings are having an experience of being a part of that collective. But there's more natural and organic agreement and less need to differentiate between right and wrong or to judge. And because of that, Ninth dimensional realities tend to advance very quickly, whether it be technologically or energetically or even in a state of evolution. Uh, The fifth dimension is very similar to the ninth in this way, we believe, except that you're still retaining some of that individual and material expression. Of course, many of you already have created realities in the fifth dimension and, and those timelines do exist And you are having an individual relationship of them, still maintaining your unique identity, but you feel more at peace and at ease and things are flowing easier and they are making sense uh, in the physical plane. This, we believe, is what was missing in your third dimension that many of you are stepping out of uh, and beyond. And so when we talk about Uh, the third dimension in ancient civilizations, what we might say is there were many more beings that were present that were accessing the dimensions beyond creating that coherent field in certain geographic regions. Just like Atlantis, for example, we may have seen similar types of collective expressions in places like Egypt that we have been talking about. Why would that be? Because the number of beings that resided there had higher dimensional access, but also had let go of some of the lower dimensional material expressions of who they they were enough to bring those things to full fruition. There was energetic cooperation in a higher coherent field. And you would see this today on planet Earth uh, in a very similar fashion. Uh, For example, There are spiritual communities that are blossoming together. Some of them assume to be existing in a coherent and unified state when they truly are not. And there may be other civilizations and and communities that are acting on accordance of universal law together as one and, and flourishing quite easily. So, so it's not a measurement per se that, that we would exact in a material sense, but, but an observation certainly that those of us who are privy to vibration are able to make and to, to visualize, um, even in the concentric circles that you brought into the conversation before. 
This is a sign of very fast-moving, coherent energy. It is the way that the universe demonstrates that it is working. So, so if we were to look down uh, upon the Earth from the twelfth dimension, or or a plasma ship per se, and look for areas that we believed were representative of higher consciousness or or exuding um, the energy of a higher dimension. This is actually what we would observe is a concentric set of circles uh, manifesting around each other, showing us a certain geographic region or community of people who were all in resonance. From our previous discussion, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the seventh dimension where the um, the need for the individual egoic expression starts to change the collective. Am I correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So is it reasonable to assume then that from the third dimension, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh are easier for us to tap into and bring into fruition into the third dimension because they are still somewhat to some degree or another egoic focused. We, we absolutely agree with that, yet also want to to add that you are all here on an evolutionary journey uh, which is not related only to a material and physical expression. So some of you are tapping into the eighth, ninth, and twelfth dimension uh, here within this universe for the sake of bringing new concepts and philosophies into your awareness uh, or to share them with others, which is just as meaningful and important. Okay, so taking this understanding back to the story of the Anunnaki and these stone circles we discussed, let me just paint the picture and you can tell me if I'm understanding. So it was, uh, first of all, was it Anki who was responsible for overseeing the building of these structures? Yes. Okay, and based on what you're saying, my understanding is that Anki, because he was accessing higher dimensions, even though the Anunnaki of his timeline were on Earth during a fifth dimensional expression, he was bringing in a higher dimensional um, knowledge, wisdom, perhaps even from the ninth dimension, because from previous conversations, we talked about how the Anunnaki were originally ninth dimensional until they came to Earth. So far, am I on the right track? Yes, and we might even say that he was surrounded by many who had similar abilities uh, and were able to do the same. Okay, and because he was from the ninth dimension, then entering the fifth dimension and able to access his ninth dimensional knowledge and wisdom, are you saying that he still perceived the fifth dimensional reality on Earth as more of a collective expression versus the fifth dimension that we are entering now is still somewhat individualized or ego-based? Well, it has less to do with the perception and, and more to do with the actual reality. And remember, this wasn't the case on the whole of the Earth. Uh, we're speaking of very select geographic regions and, and areas and communities that that were thriving in a higher dimensional reality simply because uh, the convergence of multiple souls with the ability to hold coherence uh, high enough to to bring it into manifestation were were all assembled there. Okay, so these stone circles were not exactly fifth dimensional then, if I'm understanding correctly. They were a higher dimensional 
understanding or technology that was manifested into the then fifth dimension, correct? It is, it is correct, yet we find it difficult to actually put a dimensional label on a technology like this because anytime um, a technology comes into manifestation uh, that is accessing higher dimensional wisdom uh, or Akashic history, uh, it is going to manifest multidimensionally, meaning it has a connection to the earth at that time. And even if the earth exists in two or three different dimensions is going to draw on the energy, the the elements, the material of those dimensions and have to express it into a higher form. So we can't say the technology itself was made of one dimension, but we can say that the input into it certainly was multidimensional, making it express in that way. Okay, now with all this understanding, let's go back to the purpose of, of these um stone circles in South Africa. Now, as I said before, there are at least 100,000, perhaps millions of them. What uh, they, you said they serve some purpose to access the energy of the earth. What exactly were they used for? So if we break down each technology individually and we were to look inside in terms of its construction, what we would see is a power generator, a power generator uh, tapping into a very precious and potent area of the earth that was transposing the energy into a, a form of light. So taking a material energy like gold, for example, or, or even crystal, uh, and, and using the vibration of it in order to create a field. Now, just like the Pyramid Collective, for example, uh, these areas were mapped out because of uh, a very uh, specific ground-level uh, meridian complex that was known to carry precious resource even from the the inner crystalline core of Gaia. So so we don't think it's a coincidence necessarily that gold was found in these various areas because where there are precious ley lines and meridians that channel energy from the center core of Gaia, you are always going to find the most valued precious minerals because there is alchemy that is taking place from the amount of energy actually coming through uh, the earth herself. And that is why these, these areas were chosen to actually amplify the vibration of that entire geographic region. Now, we also mentioned that these were used as a telecommunication type of device. And we want to spend some time here because the, the very definition of communication today, it's, it's quite different in a physical sense than what uh, a ninth dimensional um, uh, enlightened being would have, have expected because it is less focused on a verbal translation of information and, and more focused on the um, ability to exchange energy and information from multiple sources, very much like tapping into the Akashic Records. You're tapping not into a deliberate library of information. You're tapping into 
energy that has to be translated and then prioritized. And if the earth has wisdom within her and it actually exists as a portal herself, imagine being able to translate energy and information coming in from multiple sources throughout the cosmos. This was one of the most important advantages of these technologies, uh, meaning those who were present on the earth were tapping into information and energy and wisdom from planets beyond in order to put it to good use on the physical earth itself. And this had um, um, many similarities to the 369 prophecies that we've discussed in these various transmissions as well where a pyramid is creating an unbroken signal between the earth and the universe, we can set up a series of telecommunication technologies that can do a similar thing, but have a more physical impact. And and that is why they remained so close to the earth. Uh, In addition to this, there were many benefits. Um, Later, it was discovered that, to step into the field that these were these areas were creating could have the benefit of physical healing. Uh, it could also change the aura of a physical soul to expand outward multiple times, uh, again, in order to receive its own communication or to even balance its energy fields. Uh, further, you discussed the material benefit of refining gold and we want to change that terminology from the word refine to actually alchemize because remember if the earth was doing the good work of alchemizing elements and we were tapping into the energy of those elements we were somehow creating an exchange of information which is always beneficial uh, meaning working with the earth in concert uh, these technologies were having a positive impact on the actual gold and elements themselves. All right, let me make sure I understand. Um, I want to try to understand the mechanics of these stone circles and how they operated and their purpose. Now, another detail about these stone circles is they, in many cases, are interconnected by a web of different um, channels um, that uh, for example, like a water channel that seems to feed into them. And some theories were that gold was um, going through these channels to each of these circles. So are you suggesting that gold may have been used as a, I don't, I want to use, loosely use the word fuel or um, to, to create this energy inside these stone circles? We, we could use the term energetic source, that the, the gold was used as an energetic source in order to create a field or in order to tap into its energy. But, but it had a multiple use because the gold itself was considered very valuable and precious. Uh, the, the water connections that you are speaking of came much later. So as the technology continued to evolve, uh, it was noticed that if we were to connect the various technologies beneath the earth using waterways or channels of water, which are energy also, we could further clarify all of the alchemy that was going on 
energetically in a physical sense. So it isn't the movement necessarily uh, of the gold from one location to another that was the intention um, for these channels. Uh, more so, it had the effect of amplifying the actual energetic output that was capable of these devices. And you're asking us about the mechanics and especially the the circular energy that was generated within them. This created a, a vortex, yet the vortex wasn't necessarily contained within the structure itself. Again, this is an energetic technology, so it is not something that could be seen uh, with the naked eye, uh, but certainly felt uh, and measured by those who were technologically advanced and especially advanced in their consciousness or, or more evolved. Uh, and this vortex, very much like uh, a vortex that you would see uh, anywhere on the earth, was was amplifying the field through which telecommunication, healing, and energy could be utilized. Um, those that were existent on the planet at that time uh, knew that the inner earth contained very valuable frequencies and and were utilizing them for the benefit of the earth as a whole, but also uh, for each other uh, in order to keep their resonance high and in order to exchange information at a very high dimensional rate and speed. Uh, in addition to this, we can say um, that beneath the earth, a great many changes actually took place because of these technologies, not in a detrimental way necessarily, uh, but much of what you've seen on the surface of the earth uh, in terms of uh, carvings in um, uh, on the sides of mountains ranges um, or clearing of areas for the building of temples. Uh, the inner earth was a very important area for the Anunnaki and, and many others to understand and explore. And they did not have the capabilities that the reptilians had in terms of their inner alchemy and, and being able to use uh, sound, for example, and, and energy to clear these spaces. So these technologies were observed for the purpose and the possibility of doing similar things um, within the inner earth. Uh, creating tunnels uh, or caverns or research stations or observation areas uh, that could later even house technologies and, and ships, for example, um, and, and many of those areas still remain today. What we know about uh, Enki uh, is that he was tasked with mining gold, uh, among other things, and also work in genetics. We've discussed this in previous conversations. Uh, there's no mention that I know of in current ancient texts anyway of this um, type of device you're referring to now. Uh, and so I'm trying to understand in the context of the role that Enki played in the Anunnaki civilization at that time, where does this technology fit? What was the, or, or is it something different than what we currently know of him? Well, it is not different necessarily, other than the fact that much of what you are translating from ancient history is coming through the limitation of the linear and material minds 
that you are using in order to understand better uh, the purpose of these periods. And, and it wasn't just a material purpose ever, because if these were intergalactic beings uh, coming from a more advanced civilization, certainly material would have been important to them. And, and gold was an important part of their um, purpose and observation, while at the same time, uh, energy and vibration would have always been considered in the construction of anything that they were um, focused on. So so unlike today, and, and again, we can compare and contrast, uh, technological advancements are happening very, very quickly in this reality, and you must always consider the intention behind the advancement and whether or not it is benefiting humanity or or it is somehow uh, diminishing your value. Uh, what we've noticed, however, is there is a, a very material nature to everything that you're creating, a very physical and tangible uh, connection to your bodies and, and to the earth. And that isn't wrong necessarily, but where you're moving is a, a focus more on vibration. And so the beings who were present, who were highly conscious, um, perhaps not always in the best intention, but very aware of their Akashic past, uh, would have had a multi-purpose to everything that they were creating. So did these stone circles primarily then serve the purpose similar to what we discussed in previous conversations about how the pyramids around the world are creating a certain field uh, on the planet to um, to produce a certain effect for the collective. Was that the purpose of these uh, stone circles, uh, this technology that Enki built, or was it primarily for their own goal of refining or producing gold, or all of it? Well, there is a, a distinction between the intention behind the pyramids versus these technologies, and, and, the, and the primary uh, focus for that is the difference between the the earth versus a collective or a group of beings, uh, meaning the pyramid structures on earth are, are created in harmony with the whole of the earth. Uh, they are not one. Uh, they are many. Uh, they are a collective meant to work in unison to hold a constant and powerful connection uh, to the universe. Whereas these technologies were more limited in their focus, not necessarily considering the whole of the earth, but but the betterment of a community or or a group of beings um, such that uh, there could be prosperity uh, and also more knowledge uh, and understanding about the um, value of the energy and elements that existed within the inner earth. And so is that primarily what Enki created these for, for bettering the community in that immediate area or bettering the whole Anunnaki community that was at that point on Earth or something else? Well, certainly there was the goal of understanding the uh, the entire Earth as a resource. And, and we cannot discount that because the Anunnaki are very interested in the not only genetics of the human race and and how they are intertwined with the planet that they chose, but also how the earth generates precious resource. That is also a, a hybrid factor of the uh, energy of Gaia herself. So 
much of this was started as a research project, even though it may have taken different twists and turns. Remember, the Anunnaki are very focused on research um, and, and understanding better uh, the relationship of energy to material. And this may have been the beginning of the creation of these technologies where uh, many others became involved later on, um, adding their own uh, influences and better understanding their capabilities, which continued to evolve and progress them even further. As we discussed in previous conversations, some of these ancient sites retain some sort of energetic properties that still exist to this day, even though maybe not to the same degree as in ancient times when they were built. Is there any residual effect or benefit to these stone structures today, or have they been pretty much um, disabled because they've weathered or been destroyed? When we look at the energetic impact of these technologies, uh, we we see dormancy in that respect, meaning uh, how they were tuned and maintained to hold a certain frequency on the surface isn't necessarily uh, present any longer. But any time that a technology like this uh, is put into motion, we must always consider the changes that go on beneath the inner earth. And remember, these were focused on alchemy and, and it was not just gold that became alchemized in the process. What we see today, if you were to look beneath the inner earth in this region, uh, is a variety of passageways that have become connected and, and very highly stable actually in, in their ability to generate energy. And it's why uh, it is such still today uh, an area of very rich uh, resource and and wealth beneath the earth. Some may even feel that tangible energy as they exist there physically because what the Anunnaki have learned and, and what many others before them and, and after them have, have also validated is that while the earth begins to change, the human beings that are connected to her will will reap the rewards. And at times you have ebbed and flowed through these transitions where elements have alchemized and your literal heartbeats have changed because the vibration of the inner earth is, is causing a fluctuation uh, in your um, your heart connection or coherence. And we think that is one of the valuable aspects left behind is is there's a, a, a very strong connection and pathway that has been created through Gaia's meridians that holds a certain frequency. And, and when tapped into can support not only human healing, but but even beyond that, um, it has an ascendant type of quality where a soul may come to visit without even knowing that these things existed and then have an awakening or an awareness of, of many past lives simultaneously. This isn't because the technologies are still working, but it's because the greatest technology uh, that exists within you uh, is equal to the elements that are deep within Gaia. Your own elemental structure can become alchemized and rearranged uh, simply because of the fact that Gaia's inner chambers are holding uh, the possibility of doing that. 
it's ultimately why even in civilizations like Egypt, for example, you see the use of so much gold. It isn't that it was seen as an expression of wealth, uh, so much that, uh, so much as it was a, an, an alchemist's, um, most valuable tool, uh, whether it was used on the skin or, or ingested or used as an amulet within space or in a technology, uh, it had the possibility of lifting the vibration and, and holding a certain coherent field. And this today still exists, even in areas beyond the one we are speaking of. Now, does that knowledge of gold still exist today? For example, in the Vatican, there's an immense amount of gold. Are, are they aware of these other properties or is it primarily for them just a wealth and power sort of thing now? Well, the, the idea of gold as wealth and power has been seeded within human minds. It is not to say that gold isn't wealthy, but the value that you've put on it actually determines uh, its its worth because uh, anything on planet Earth can be seen as, as valuable and worthy uh, dependent upon its perspective. But, but certainly the more technological and sentient benefits of gold uh, are the reason the Vatican would be uh, in so much possession of this element. It is not only that, but but it creates a connection to this Anunnaki lineage, which we believe has been of great importance, not only in Catholic religion or in the Vatican, but in in many of these these wealthy areas that are assumed to hold gold. Um, we know that, of course, uh, if gold is used as as a symbol or or a tool or an agent of uh, enlightenment, it must be changed from the property that it is in. And we're not saying that the Vatican is doing any of this transformation, yet the possibility of the transformation is why it is so valuable and why it is held in such regard. Even those that hold it uh, may not consider that it is needed because they believe that they are living um, out a legacy or a lineage that that proves them worthy uh, of beyond having to alchemize anything. So, so they may be hiding some of it from the greater collective uh, in order to suppress consciousness or uh, to prohibit those who understand its transcendent value to utilize it uh, in that fashion. One of the more well-known locations is in, in the stone circles in South Africa is referred to as Adam's calendar. And the reason being that um, all these different sites have certain geometric, sacred geometric properties that, and in particular with Adam's calendar that seem to align with constellations and uh, different planetary movement. Now, that seems to be a common thing with a lot of ancient sites, um, but also in particular stone circles around the world that they have certain um, solar or galactic alignments. Now, is that because many conventional archaeologists believe that these locations such as Adam's Calendar or Stonehenge, for example, were specifically built in order to, as observational sites, to observe the solar system and also to time different solstices and so on, 
was that actually their purpose uh, in particular, for example, with Adam's calendar or is it as we've discussed before that in ancient times they used um, certain means of architecture so through the understanding of feng shui or vastu shastra that would, as a result of that sacred geometric alignment, they would have just naturally built these structures in accordance with those techniques. And as a result, they just happened to uh, align to different galactic um, uh, different constellations and star systems and so on. Well, well, it would have been no mistake that in ancient civilizations there there would be calendars that helped them to understand the the various influences and seasons uh, that they were apt to go through. Uh, in addition to this, it would help them to understand time in, in a galactic sense because many of them were hybrids coming from other dimensions and were here on planet Earth. So the orientation to their own home star system would have been extremely important uh, in order to better understand their own evolutionary path and and whether uh, they were evolving in alignment with it. At the same time, we want to acknowledge that in, in some of these areas where you're seeing these calendars, the purpose may not have been understanding the alignment to various star systems and planets at all. It may have been more a measurement of how the technologies surrounding it were actually working. Because if we were creating a field and that field was for the purpose of higher vibration or, or coherence amongst a collective, any vibrational shift or timeline shift would have shown a change in the calendar, even if slight other than what it had already known. And it's very much like what humanity is experiencing today as we had a, a very lengthy discussion about the pole shift, for example, and how the earth turns on its axis and there are very slight shifts in her location within the collective galaxy. And because of that, information begins to flow differently. We have access to new areas we did not have before. And this is because the collective is ready for the, the next level understanding uh, or ascendant uh, ability. And so many of those who were privy to the movements of planets and stars, and especially the Earth, were were researching and tracking how some of the technologies that they had created were either working or not working. And also it helped them to know the direction that they were heading as a collective itself. Um, those that were in, uh, in charge or responsible uh, uh, for maintaining, uh, for example, uh, these various sites would have uh, created ceremony uh, and certain prayers of divination at times when the energies were going to be intense. They may have opened up a portal in order to clear them or to to strengthen the field of protection around them such that they could not be somehow manipulated or changed uh, from their original state. So, so yes, we agree with what you're saying, but we also wanted to add there are there are many other purposes um, that these may have been used for. And were these structures, the stone circles in South Africa we've been discussing, were these built prior to 
the great flood, the cataclysm from 13,000 years ago. Yes, we agree they were. And the destruction that we see today uh, with these, with this entire site, where it appears that many of these stone circles have either weathered or maybe have just been destroyed, was that the result of the great flood occurrence that they got destroyed? It, it was in part, yes. Any type of cataclysm of this magnitude is going to cause destruction to a, a technology like this. And, and remember, these are different than the pyramids. We, we spoke a great deal about the templates that were used in the alchemy of elements and how the entire site around a pyramid, for example, uh, was of value even beneath the inner earth. These technologies were a bit different. They didn't involve such intricacies and um, so much uh, transposing of energy and elements prior to their construction. So that is why today uh, there is, is more dormancy uh, in these areas. But we also must consider that there was constant upkeep and attunement of them. And, and that in part is also the reason why they are dormant today. If you would have a return, for example, of some of the original beings who created them, who understood their workings, uh, they could be um, reactivated, we might say, uh, with very little effort. But remember, you're existing in a different timeline, even if it may be a similar dimension, uh, where the consciousness needs to support the intention of the technology or else it cannot come to a full manifestation. And, and that applies here as it did uh, in our previous explanation. We've discussed previously how the different construction techniques of the reptilians who typically preferred uh, highly dense environments like inside mountains or underground, and they use their inner technology to carve um, their structures entirely from a single piece of stone uh, or mountainside or rock formation, whereas the um, Anunnaki, and, or in particular in Egypt, the technology was more external. They used light ships to, and frequencies to create the different structures like the pyramids. Now, the circle, stone circles in South Africa, which also were attributed to Enki, just like Egypt, were much smaller stones, um, stones that anybody could lift and move. How were these structures built? These were absolutely more mechanically and physically constructed, uh, even though the inner technology itself was more of a highly conscious manifestation. So it was uh, the contribution of, of both, we would say, uh, those who were enlightened and understanding how to work with technologies of sound or even visualize through their own plasma how the technology should come into formation. But what you're seeing in the physical construction, um, it was the cooperative effort uh, of many who had gathered with both the curiosity and the excitement uh, to see it come to full fruition. Were these other beings from the Anunnaki race or were these also some of the human beings referred to previously as the forest people, the Anunnaki modified to be their workers? 
A combination of both, we might say, but but also we want to keep in mind that it wasn't just either or uh, at the time because there were many different levels of, of hybrid beings that were existing on the planet that may have also contributed. And uh, Gambia and also Senegal, which are also in the approximate region or in the African continent, there are also other stone circles, but they're entirely different in structure from the ones we just discussed. They are not, um, they're more like a pillar formation stone circles that we see in different parts of the world. Um, some are circular and some are more like um, uh, more squared off shapes. What, uh, what purpose, uh, obviously it's a different type of structure. Um, do they serve a different purpose there when you see these kinds of structures? These are fashioned more like an antenna and are designed to be a part of a, a larger technological uh, suite or we'll say collective of um, uh, manifestations. And much of this has also been destroyed, obviously. But, but if you look at the inner workings here, what you would see is something that addresses the energy more like a tuning fork. Uh, using the various material energy of these locations, but also programming it in order to interpret signals that may have been coming in from off planet or may have been sent from the other side of the planet or different geographic regions. When we see stone circles in general, should we always assume that that might have been their intention or do they at different parts of the world serve different purposes? It's, it's hard for us to say that they would all be similar uh, depending upon their, their usage and their intention because these, these stone circles may have housed a, a variety of different apparatus uh, or even energetic um, programs that were put into place for different purposes. Okay, let's talk about uh, a new site that's been excavated in recent years called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. And actually there are several sites that have been discovered around Gobekli Tepe that have very similar structures, so it's not one site. But it has a very unique uh, design, but also could be considered a stone circle, although it kind of has more of a vortex kind of shape. Uh, They are assuming that there are many floors to the structure and they've only really excavated the top floor at the moment. So now these pillars are more T-shaped. Um, they've done some dating um, using um, some scientific methods and have dated the structure to about 12,000 years ago. Now, conventional archaeologists believe that this structure once built was on purpose buried by the people who built it to serve as a time capsule for future generations. But I'm wondering if the dating is even remotely correct that it was 12,000 years ago that this was built, that the burial might have been because of the great flood that occurred and not because they intentionally built it just to bury it. This is a much more ancient site than when it what it has been dated to be. Uh, in fact, we could say it, it goes all the way back to the origins of your planet. Uh, we see this more as an intergalactic gathering space for many of the hybrids who would have come to Earth at the time, whether they were coming on ships or whether they were arriving in a form of light. 
And the city itself is is something we want to explain because it has been modified over time, of course, in order to suit various other collectives that may have been present on the planet. So what you may be excavating today is not the original form of what would have been present uh, at the time we are speaking of. And what you may notice is a very similar quality to some of the renderings of ancient temples and reptilian architecture that we have been talking about primarily throughout these various discussions. And it is not to say it is a reptilian um, structure at all, but those that came very early on in, in the seeding of humanity, we, we know that they came from multiple locations with different history uh, and a different purpose. And it was important to them to leave that history behind, um, whether it be in the, in the form of an ancient library or a, a demonstration of how um, they may have lived beyond the earth. This was the contribution and the formation of, of what you now know as Go Begley Tepe, which ultimately had a landing pad at the very uh, tip of or, or top of the structure uh, for a variety of different types of ships that were coming in for the purpose of exploring and um, observing what was happening at the time, uh, even taking various genetic samples of some of the new hybrid humans uh, that were coming into form. Uh, there is a very important connection to underground waterways with this site as well. And, and we want to explain uh, exactly why, because the, the water within the central core of Gaia is what feeds and nourishes all that you see on the outer edge or the surface. Uh, but the generation of that water is self-sustaining within your planet, uh, very much like within your own body, your cells are, are holding and generating that water, which is actually attuned to light. And in this location, the connection to Gaia's underground waterways and the use of that water in order to hold the frequency of light was extremely important. It is what helped uh, to create the structure itself uh, using technologies like the beings plasma, own plasma, uh, as well as different technologies that were brought in from various cosmic locations. Okay, so from what I understand, only maybe one or two percent of this site has been excavated at the moment. And as I said, there are many other similar sites in the vicinity that haven't even been started yet. So as far as I know, no water has been found yet, but they are anticipating that the this one structure goes down many levels. So you're saying somewhere underneath there is, is a water source. Somewhat like a, a, a power generator, yes, except the power was not a physical type of power uh, that you would generate today, uh, more accessing the, the light and the vibration of the inner earth in order to sustain the beings who are coming in, in various forms of that light. Is this similar if we look at, for example, many Egyptian sites such as the Assyrian in Egypt, we see 
many floors, and we also see water coming up from underneath the ground. In fact, many of the levels of um, that particular structure are still underwater. Is that, was water a key component in many of these structures for that purpose? Always, always for, for, for a variety of reasons. But most important was again, the, the access to, to light and, and energy that was present within the water itself. In the case of Gobekli Tepe, was this used? No, you said it goes back to the origins of Earth, so the origins of the seeding of humanity as well, or was it there at that time? We believe this is one of the original structures that may have been present on Earth at the very beginning of time prior even to the seeding of humanity. Because you must keep in mind that the beings who decided to come uh, from from many, many different locations had to first establish some semblance of home such that they were able to be directed on their path and and do the work that they came to do. And they would have been a unified collective regardless of the different races of origin. They were establishing a new human race. And, and for that, they had to give up some of the comforts of home and let go of how they identified differently of each other. This may have been the reason they chose to reside together in a structure like this, somewhat um, creating a design that could be mimicked uh, in in civilizations beyond. This particular site, uh, all we see today are um, stone pillars that are T-shaped, and you mentioned there is a landing pad. Now, there is no remains of any kind of a landing pad that exists today was that because it was washed away or when you're referring to when you're saying a landing pad what does that actually look like well a structure of this magnitude could never have been destroyed by human hands so so we do want to affirm that the great flood was a a a big part of the collapse of this structure and its burial at the same time, we also alluded to the idea that throughout time, uh, it had been modified. And if a landing pad was present today, um, you may see it looking very similar to what you are familiar with in a modern day airport. But without all of the physical guideposts and, and signs, it is not to say that it had to be a, a concrete structure necessarily, but it had to indicate a specific location on the earth that many were gathering. And this was often done with vibrational fields, meaning the landing pad was a technology in and of itself, having the ability to telecommunicate with a variety of different races throughout the universe, such that different forms of ships uh, could come in, whether they be physical or or whether they be plasma. Uh, and the pad itself would have the capability to adapt uh, to these various forms of of ships and, and energy fields. Uh, of course, any time that ships are landing um, anywhere in the universe on any planet or on any star system, there would be some type of a, a portal technology through which they would enter. So the very site of Go Begli Tepe uh, then must be considered uh, a portal uh, in and of itself. And, and this speaks very well to the location in which 
uh, it was constructed and how it was chosen to interface with the inner earth and, and the inner earth water uh, in order to create a bridge, in other words, uh, between the earth and the multidimensional universe. So was this structure in particular originally used for other purposes than just a landing pad? For example, was it a place where um, beings resided or in physical form or just a meeting place, as you said? What other purposes did it serve? Well, it was both, and, and it is a massive structure. So we have to speak to the idea of transfer, transformation and hybridization uh, there were chambers that were built within this structure uh, in order for beings to spend time adjusting to the new atmosphere that they found themselves in, whether they were transforming uh, from light and plasma into physical or whether they were somehow manifesting their physical form differently than what they had known before. And these technologies were extremely advanced. Uh, star-shaped configurations were utilized uh, to to house various beings from different locations in which they would rest and receive uh, a, a variety of different injections of whether uh, or whether that be light uh, uh, plasma or or energy there were also areas of instruction uh, somewhat like a school now it is not a school in which there was one authority that was teaching on a subject to all those who would come to reside there but a place of contribution where many would come together to offer what they knew about the earth and had observed from afar and and share uh, some of their research and why they had come and this was all exchanged very purposely so that everyone could benefit and, and take away what others had come to know um, we also believe that the entire site is is built somewhat like a vibrational library, uh, leaving the history behind of these various beings. And and it is why you will see uh, different forms of construction utilized uh, in the uh, entire structure, because ultimately it represents uh, a variety of different races all coming together in order to leave something behind. So when you use the term time capsule, um, we, we want to affirm that it, it seems quite suiting, uh, not necessarily that it was meant to be unearthed and discovered at a certain time, but everyone was offering a, a part of their own Akashic history such that the earth could understand uh, exactly, uh, or so that, that humanity could understand, in other words, exactly where they had come from uh, and who had lent their DNA. Amy, you briefly mentioned the reptilians in conjunction with the building of the structure. Now, as we've discussed in previous conversations, reptilians typically seem to use their inner technology to carve from stone. These structures appear to be um, more like blocks that were stacked, which seems to be more of an Anunnaki or even some other races. Um, there is some... Um, creative design, although the reptilians typically seem to have been very ornate. This particular structure, the um, the glyphs uh, or art that was left on them is seems very primitive by comparison to what we typically see with reptilians. Now, first of all, when you're saying that it was rebuilt over time, 
Now they've only excavated a very small portion of it and, and they, uh, they believe that it goes down many layers. So would we find even, um, older layers that have, um, maybe more, more intricate ancient, uh, architecture as we go down lower or, and who built it? We agree that you will see some reptilian influence in, in some of the more ornate chambers, yet we also want to advise that the reptilians would not have been primarily focused on residing in these areas. Remember, uh, they were more in solitude and, and attempting to retain their DNA and their energy outside of where many would gather as one. It does not mean, however, that some of the original reptilians that came to Earth did not have some influence um, in this in this structure. And and yes, certainly that would be revealed as you continue to um, unearth the, the structure itself. You mentioned that there were changes uh, to the construction, and, and this is something we want to clarify. It wasn't necessarily that the structure was physically changed, but over time it became inhabited and, and perhaps slightly modified uh, by certain groups of beings. And, and there is some Anunnaki influence here as well, where the Anunnaki took ownership for a period of time um, of a portion, uh, a very significant portion of this um uh, civilization, we'll call it, or structure. Uh, and because of that, you're seeing more of their influence here as well. Uh, at the same time, it being a portal uh, and, and also a technology, it is apt to change in order to suit the Earth, dependent upon the timeline and dimension that the Earth is in. So that is a, a difficult, more difficult concept, we think, to to explain, but, but we can give a very simplistic understanding. If you were to look back at the previous decade, for example, or even two decades from, from now, you would see very stark changes in the type of housing, for example, or the type of clothing that, that human beings would wear. Uh, these things have been slight modifications based upon your consciousness and influences and and various preferences, for example. And the same goes for ancient sites, even though you believe that what you're, you're perceiving comes from the moment in which it was created. All material manifestations will adapt according to the level of consciousness and dimension that you perceive them in. And, and we know this is a very hard concept for humans to adapt to because it assumes that what you are perceiving is constantly going to change based on the perception. And, and we have to affirm that that is the way of the universe and it truly is. So, so the second your scientists define, uh, what a sacred site is, they have already limited what it may have been before or what it assumes it will be. And, and this is something that you should apply to everything that you are seeing on the plane of the earth. Well, from that context, vast majority of Scientists and conventional archaeologists believe almost all of these sites around the world to be tombs for people who have died, uh, including the stone circles and the pyramids and so on. Is this just simply their inability to see beyond the third dimension or to perceive things 
beyond a certain vantage point because of their own mental constructs of reality and maybe even their uh, influence or say, let's say brainwashing through the educational system that led to their academic degrees? Or is there an overarching um, influence such as world leaders who are uh, planting these ideas into the minds of the archaeologists so that the whole of the rest of society believes that these structures were used simply for burial sites? Well, we believe it is both. And, and we want to explain first that the lowering of consciousness that has happened on your planet, especially in, in areas of, of ancient archaeology, has been profound. And we are talking about a targeted lowering of, lowering of consciousness, uh, meaning there are certain people who have been put into position to explain to the masses uh, what things were before. And they have been lowered in their consciousness, consciousness to the degree that they both believe what they are speaking, but also are speaking on behalf of those who do not want the truth to come out. And, and this is the case in many of your prominent professional positions, uh, even throughout history. Yet at the same time, uh, we know that the human collective has come up in a very flat material third dimensional reality. So, so what you have learned in your schools and, and what you have been taught, uh, even from professionals and scientists and doctors has reflected your own perception. And that perception is now changing, which is why, uh, the masses are beginning to question these, these very notions that, uh, everything was built as a burial ground. And, and, and we want to speak to that momentarily because much of what is perceived uh, as being constructed for burial was not for that purpose whatsoever. These underground chambers, technologies, um, various stone circles, as you call them, uh, they were so revered for their power that those who were in power may have wanted to use them as a burial location to be recognized as if they took ownership of them. But the purpose was certainly not that. And this is why you may find throughout history, as you unearth uh, some of these ancient um, uh, locations, uh, burials actually did take place. Um, so it's easy to make the assumption that that would have been their purpose when in fact, those that were buried there uh, were attempting to stake claim to something such that their legacy would show they had some ownership to it. So to clarify, what you're saying is that the those that are buried in many of these sites um were not the original builders. They just assumed ownership of that location at a later time. And because of the reverence for these locations, they assumed ownership and chose to be buried there in acknowledgement of their power. Correct. Yes. Okay. Now, in the case of uh, Egypt, we've talked about how light ships were used to build these structures. And Gobekli Tepe are uh, also very megalithic stones, extremely large and heavy. How were these built? Very similar, yet we do want to acknowledge that there was a particular energetic technology at the time that was brought from off-planet that was used to create this structure. It is Syrian in its origins, but it does not account 
for the entire structure being of Syrian influence, uh, meaning the Syrians uh, had uh, assumed responsibility for um, architecting, we will say, the design that many had contributed to in a very efficient format uh, that was brought on multiple ships and assembled on planet Earth. And this is, um, uh, in a simplistic fashion, a, a, a sound technology similar to the ships that would have been using vibration and light through a template. Uh, it was generating uh, different frequencies uh, at different rates of speed in order to cut stone and to move it uh, into perfect symmetry. Uh, in addition to this, there was some pre-preparation of the grounds, uh, terraforming in other words, to create a template for the structure to rest upon. Remember, the underground waterways were extremely important, so the access to those were of first and primary uh, consideration. And these technologies were later uh, housed on planet Earth as a replica uh, for others to both utilize and and copy as well as to uh, advance forward. Uh, as they change some of the dynamics and use them on other structures. Now, is this the reason why uh, the serious connection you're mentioning, a lot of the sites around the world seem to be aligned to Sirius um, or the Orion cluster, even the pyramids in, in Egypt as well? Is that that connection? It's a bit more complicated than just the connection of a technology. Uh, so, so we want to spend some time just explaining what we know of this and, and how it has continued to evolve because many would assume that the purpose for the alignment to these planets and influences, uh, has to do with harnessing the energy. And, and certainly this is true, but if the earth has evolved, the way in which that energy comes to the earth has also changed over time. As some of these structures were created, those that were in uh, in charge or taking responsibility of their creation uh, would call upon um, ancient masters and architects in these various location, cosmic locations, Orion, for example, and Sirius, because of their level of expertise, not only in technology and architecture itself, but especially with material landforms. So even though uh, we might consider uh, a, a star system like Sirius or, or, or Orion to uh, be focused more in light, uh, they still adapt very well to to different levels of material and and focus on it because there is a an understanding that material energy is some of the most valuable throughout the universe. The alignment to these star systems had more to do with the exchange of information at the very beginning of these um, these constructions than it did um, harnessing the energy afterwards. Because if light ships were coming in and technologies were being utilized, it was important to maintain um, some level of communication with the structure afterwards. Uh, those that would leave the planet Earth and go back to their home star system uh, were often charged with constant observation and, and ensuring the the attunement and, and clearing of these various structures. 
later, what the ancients began to realize is when perfect alignments were made, the energies were so strong that profound transformations uh, could happen in form, whether it was uh, material alchemy or within the physical body or spiritual bodies. And this is a side benefit, we believe, of, of some of these original decisions. So you're certainly seeing the progression or the, the manifestation of an original decision that was made uh, becoming something very valuable uh, in the long term that still exists today that humans are able to reap the rewards of. Now, when we're discussing Sirius, are the beings who, who came from Sirius primarily the lion beings we see depicted in ancient times? This is a hybrid manifestation of the Syrians uh, presenting themselves in an earthly fashion. And, and yes, in Sirius, there is the presentation of, of a lioness type of, of being. Yet, remember, there's a certain level of non-physical uh, that these beings have adapted to, which does not require them to manifest in material at all. Um, so so the presentation of the lion being is is more depiction of what they may have looked like as they hybridized uh, to the earth. So when we see iconography of the lion from ancient times, like, like the Great Sphinx we discussed last time, uh, and even to modern times, um, the Lion's Gate um, iconography as well, are we primarily referring to the Syrians then? Yes, primarily. And what about the Orion constellation? What collective of beings were uh, coming from influence there? Well, the the Orion star system is home to many different beings. Much like planet Earth, there has been a seeding that took place there and a hybridization based upon that seeding. And, and these are star beings, meaning they exist more in a form of light as opposed to, to physical. And they have evolved to become more electromagnetic in, in their presentation, meaning they hold some still um, material and magnetic energy that holds them together as a collective. And they are very advanced at traveling uh, throughout the galaxy and, and measuring different frequencies uh, between, uh, or we'll say uh, in relationship between stars, planets, and, and, and groups of collectives. And, and this was perhaps one of their most important roles uh, as they came to planet Earth. And, and on the Earth, they may be recognized in a variety of different hybrid forms, not just one. Uh, they were charged with research and, and measuring how the frequency of Earth would change as certain structures were, were brought into a physical manifestation, uh, even how the various elements of Earth would affect the frequency of a technology or a structure. Uh, and, and they still do this today, uh, not only for the Earth, but, but for many different uh, cosmic races throughout the universe. Well, we've discussed many kinds of beings, such as the Syrians and the Pleiadians and so on. What was there a particular group of beings that came from Orion that we would identify with a particular name today? Uh, the name is not something we would say is a common in terms of your ancient history, but the term humanoid is something that we would use uh, only because the the beings from Orion, as they manifested into physical form, took on a more humanoid presentation, looking much more like you than you would even expect. And, and at times, um, the 
ability for them to shapeshift uh, was very profound, much like we have discussed uh, with the reptilians. Um, even in um, different star systems, they have manifested like a, a humanoid presentation, uh, even though they are not on an earthly planet. So, so they're very much like you, uh, again, in, in terms of their structure and even their DNA uh, and their physical to non-physical orientation. It is just that they're able to choose uh, between one or the other where you are uh, working with the combined physical and non-physical vibrations. And in what dimensional consciousness did the Orion humanoid beings exist when they came to Earth? They are 10th to 11th dimensional beings at the time of the Earth's seeding, uh, only because um, in the 12th dimension, the beings that exist in Orion are a multi-level council that spend the majority of their time focused on universal uh, priorities. Uh, we talk about the Council of Light quite often, and the Orion Council has a very important role uh, in that collective. Uh, as they have gained a great deal of knowledge uh, and information about different um, energetic channels that run between planets and different beings and how they communicate and how they exchange. Uh, at the same time, we note that we haven't discussed the 10th or the 11th dimension. We've only gone up through the 9th. And just like that seventh dimension is the shift from ego and identity into a more collective presentation between the ninth and the 10th beings are really losing that sense of having to, to identify with material at all. So, so remember we said even in a ninth dimensional collective there, there can be some expression of material. There is a perception or an experience of the collective that you are a part of from the 10th to the 11th and the 12th dimension, uh, the state of merging becomes more, um, we'll say uh, exclusive in that there is no attachment whatsoever to being in a physical state. Uh, and that is why uh, with, with their um, arrival on planet Earth, they would have chosen to express more in a humanoid form uh, because it's so different from the collective uh, vibration they would have maintained previously. And what are the Syrians? What what dimensional expression do they have? Well, well, we want to clarify uh, because we know we were speaking of Gobegli Tepli and we were speaking about the original seating and those that came at the very beginning of time to Earth all existed in a 12th dimensional reality. They were the original seeders that called upon others to join them. Uh, at the same time, Syrians throughout history have come in different dimensional forms to planet Earth. And this is why you see the presentation of so many different lion type of, of hybrids because some of them have been ninth dimensional upon arrival while others have been 11th or or 12th dimensional in their presentation. And when we see beings like this depicted in Egypt, for example, a lot of the iconography in Egypt depicts various 
humanoid animal sort of merging beings like Sekhmet, for example, was that their actual physical expression in hybrid form on Earth? In some cases, yes. But remember, uh, in, in the capture of a, a physical being in ancient times, a, a great deal of symbology may have been used in order to show a certain lineage, for example, or a, a connection to a, a cosmic race. And that may have been amplified in his presentation um, in order to, to suit the desires uh, or the needs of the being itself. So let's just use Sekhmet as a as a specific example then in this case. Did she actually appear in a physical form, in a carbon-based form on Earth in Egypt, in that Egyptian timeline, as a lion-headed humanoid being? Or was she some other kind of being and was just depicted that way to indicate her Syrian origins? In, in terms of the lioness head... Um, the way that she is depicted is more a linear representation of her Syrian lineage than how she would have been presented. However, we would not see her necessarily looking like a human as you would look today. There would be more of a crossover in terms of the characteristics of a Syrian versus a human. So, so especially around the eyes, we would say that the, the, the lioness or cat-like eyes that you have seen uh, depicted in, in ancient Egypt and in, in many of the gods and goddesses uh, truly do represent the way the eyes would have been shown. There would have been uh, a smaller neck, for example, or even limbs, uh, not because these physical beings were any less material than you were, but but their hybrid form operated, uh, their structures, for example, operated far differently, uh, even in terms of metabolism or working with light uh, than humans do. Um, the lioness head uh, and shape, we want to speak to for a moment because some of the Syrians were actually able to shapeshift at will. We, we've talked about shapeshifting in terms of the reptilians but it's just a, a slightly different process with the Syrians than the reptilians. Remember, the reptilians are using mind. Uh, and the mind is their main mode of um, expression in terms of material manifestation. Syrians operate a bit differently. When they are feeling as if they want to take a more prominent position of either recognition, for example, as a god or a goddess or authority, they are capable of tapping into their their more Syrian genetics and to bring that through to be demonstrated in, in a literal sense. And often Segment, for example, who may have been faced with challenging circumstances, uh, would have chosen to do this um, to present more of a warrior type of configuration. Um, it is very much like if a human being were in a state of fear, uh, and that fear would alchemically change the body uh, in order to perform feats of magic. Uh, the the hybrids were able to tap into the power of their pure genetics and bring them to Earth in, in very mysterious ways. But we also want to clarify that you use the word carbon. And it is complex for us to explain, yet yet also important to note that 
any hybrid that exists on a physical plane is not fully carbon in its presentation because to become a, a manifestation of, of light or to shape shift, you must be operating in both the carbon and crystalline DNA simultaneously. So, so the use of the word carbon, um, isn't exactly correct in this circumstance, uh, yet we understand what you are referring to. Would that also be true of human beings today, such as uh, individuals who may be operating in third to fifth dimensional consciousness? Is that what you're getting at, that the carbon-based um, elements may be there, and that's the physical components, but we're also drawing on multidimensional elements to formulate our human experience? Correct, yes. And, and, and the level to which you are operating in your crystalline DNA determines how you are able to to manifest material it 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 is the the um amazing capability of that suite of dna strands that when merged with the carbon enables the soul to completely transform but at the same time and we have acknowledged this often dimension aside uh, you have chosen to be human and to be human, you have chosen to focus on a physical body and physical material. And we don't think you're leaving that behind. Uh, what your crystalline DNA will, will help you to do is to override some of the carbon based programs, uh, and, and patterns that you have been repeating constantly throughout history. And, and this includes things like disease, for example, uh, being able to live above and beyond the diseases of your ancestry uh, truly requires that you activate as much of that crystalline DNA as possible. We previously discussed um, the what scientists refer to as junk DNA and how junk DNA is actually our carbon-based components of our DNA, not the crystalline DNA. Um, my question about that is, so just to differentiate the, the, what that carbon-based junk DNA could be, those are characteristics that would affect our physical expression, if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying. For example, perhaps in our junk DNA, there was some sort of deactivation as a result of the Anunnaki DNA experiments on, on human beings that could have limited our lifespan. So being a very physical carbon-based characteristic, not necessarily a crystalline DNA component. Am I understanding correctly? You are. And, and we want to remind everyone that the 12-strand DNA, whether it's crystalline or carbon, aligns with a 12-dimensional universal field. And in order to limit your consciousness or suppress your consciousness, keeping you in the third dimension, the junk DNA has been a program that has been running here on planet Earth for a very long time. But, but we do want to consider what would be available to you in that carbon DNA. And, and yes, of course, the ability to live to whatever length of time that your soul desired is possible. But it is not because you wish it that is the important consideration. So so if we have 12-dimensional access in a carbon-based DNA to upgrade our physical material, 
the level of efficiency within which that material manifests is going to continue to improve. That means detoxification, for example, cellular rejuvenation, for example, uh, or even the ability of the physical body to do things at a certain age that it is perceived it could never do. So so this is what the junk DNA holds for you. And in addition to a great deal of access beyond the linear mind, because remember, when you're using the, the brain as an agent of understanding, it is not just what you learn in the physical plane that is of most importance, but but the ability to retrieve from beyond the physical plane to accentuate and validate even what you are learning here. So much of what you've been taught uh, in, in human life has been a, a program that's limited you to a, a slight number of choices. But if that information were to be accompanied by the access of ninth and twelfth dimensional information, readily available to you at your fingertips on planet Earth, you would make better choices, leaving behind some of the past karma again that has been repeating for for generations of time. Harmonically, even, we believe that the body can become a more sound vehicle of energy, meaning it can support beyond itself. And, And many of you understand this as a part of the crystalline DNA, When you're using crystalline energy, you're amplifying your auric field, for example. You're able to share that energy with another. But the physical body is is electromagnetic. It it has the ability to connect with another and uplift it or exchange information at a very high rate of speed. And all of that lies also within the carbon DNA. So your, your disconnection as a collective has come at the hands of this understanding of junk DNA and, and only operating in the, the three carbon strands. Okay, just so I understand, the carbon DNA has these different characteristics available. And so how do we in our present state access them? Is that through the access of the crystalline DNA? Is that what is the the key to unlock that potential? Not necessarily. So so the crystalline DNA, it, it is more a meditative process of activation. And, and we want to remind you that the crystalline DNA is sentient and it is connected beyond the earth, meaning even though all 12 dimensions exist within the genome, you are able to pull in cosmic energy and information and make use of it on a physical plane. So so think of the carbon suite of, of, of DNA strands as more focused on your earthly physical presentation and manifestation, where the crystalline DNA is more um, a focus of hybridization, uh, bringing your cosmic abilities and gifts to interface here in a purposeful and meaningful way. But truly, for you to be able to access the information of the carbon DNA, it isn't so much requesting to to find what is within it but but ridding yourself of all the things that stand in the way of of its access many of you are already aware that heavy metals uh, toxins for example clog up your physical system and create disease 
But these things also create a thick field that holds you in a lower dimension. It is a um, density, in other words, that does not allow access to these other carbon strands. So, so the more that a soul uh, is purifying and detoxifying in a material, physical way, the more the carbon DNA is going to illuminate and come back online, which means miraculous things are going to change in the physical body. We even believe that um, at the very core of each cell uh, is a spectrum or a spiral of light that has been disengaged or illuminated for a, a disengaged or de-illuminated for a very long period of time. Uh, in the activation of that carbon DNA, what you'll find is the spectrum of light that a cell can hold becomes amplified. And, and when that happens, your lifestyle will completely change. You will find yourself in complete agreement with what the cells need and orchestrating a life that is necessary to go to the next level of that DNA activation. So, so I think it's far easier than what you believe or what you have been told. Uh, at least in the physical sense, it, it truly relates to what you choose to put within the body and what you become as a physical being, where the meditative practices uh, and, and astral projections are the things that are illuminating the the crystalline strands. Thank you. And thank you, Michaela. All right, we're going to wrap it up there for today, and we'll continue next time on the next Channel Revelation show. Uh, we are also on many podcast mm-hmm. platforms as well as YouTube uh, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. And you can find us on Rumble and other video platforms also. So we'll see you next week for another Awaken Empowered podcast. Okay, we're going to jump right back in there. I just wanted to say really quick, Rama just found on his little phone there uh, a photo of a starship hovering just over Lake Ontario. Uh, right, Rama? Lake Champlain. Excuse me, Lake Champlain uh, in Ontario, Canada, on that side, not the U.S. side. All right, so we're just, this is, the next one here is... Uh, Yes, bridging dimensions, and uh, what happens here is in this episode of Ch- Channel Revelations, M- Michaela, uh, I have the right one. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, everybody. Uh <laughs> I think we'll just go and listen. We'll hear what we're going to hear. We won't quite get finished, but we'll do what we have. Yes, I see it here. Discuss how the third dimension could be a utopia and that by helping create one, we will usher in a better fifth dimensional experience. Here we go.
Welcome to another episode of the Awaken Empowered Podcast. I'm Michaela Sheldon. I'm here with Ethan Fox. And on our spiritual quest to evolve and grow, we come across a lot of conflicting information and even some very complex terminology having to do with the workings of the universe. One of those being timelines and dimensions. And there are a lot of people right now talking about the shift that we are making from the third to the fifth dimension. So we thought in a more grounded way, we would break this topic down and really define what we see dimension as and and where the earth is going, uh, both from a collective standpoint, as well as uh, a more universal perspective of, of how the earth is interacting with all of the changes that are taking place throughout the universe. And I want to start by saying we had an interesting question come in. Um, I think it was on our last Channeled Revelation show about the earth existing in all 12 dimensions. And, and absolutely, I want to affirm that we've heard that from the guides many times that the earth and, and any planet, any star system is multidimensional, meaning it exists within every single dimension. And even um, channeling the book, if those of you out there are following along on my website at the time, we learned that the original seeding actually took place in the 12th dimension. So the intergalactic races and, and beings who came as our original cosmic families, forefathers, mothers, they were 12th dimensional. And so we exist also in all 12 dimensions and we have that capability within us. And And as we've gone through some of the history in the channeled revelation shows we've come across periods of time, obviously where the earth existed in a higher dimension or certain civilizations were lowered in their dimension. And I want to start by saying I have a a simple kind of observation about some of the channelings I've done and what dimension actually means. And I simply see it as an organizational system of the universe, an intelligent universe, actually, that has grown so much and there's been so much created that it's come into this system of informational organization where certain things that exist in the same vibration or have similar characteristics in terms of timelines are all grouped within a certain dimension. So so to me, a dimension is simply access to information and similar information or even valuable information that's supportive of what you are creating in that dimension. But I think we get stuck sometimes in the spiritual community um, judging certain dimensions and making um, rational kind of observations about what is good or bad about a certain dimension or timeline. And I want to start by saying it is my opinion that the third dimension itself is not a negative place or experience. I, we, we obviously all came in as physical material beings into the third dimension. So we must have been on some quest to better understand it or to have specific experiences here that were warranted both for us individually as well as for the entire planet. However, I think that what gets created within the container of a dimension is up to us. So we have free will to work within the container of a dimension and the level of consciousness and information available to us 
to create whatever we want. So I think the shift on Earth moving from the third to the fifth dimension and the very idea that the third dimension is falling apart and it really has to in some respects has less to do with the dimension itself and more to do with what was created there, which actually no longer suits us. And and that, I think, merits some discussion. Yeah, I, I see dimensions as kind of like a toolbox. I sort of look at it from a very practical perspective. And uh, so the third dimension gives us a um, a set of tools that we're we're able to work with and how we use those tools is entirely up to us. But we all have the same tools available to us in this dimension. And the third dimension being a very physical experience, we would tend to use those tools in a very physical way. So you know, we've talked about this in, I think, previous podcasts and even channel revelations about how um you know, the, the dimension doesn't determine whether or not it's a difficult experience or not. As I've used an example in the past about a gardener, for example, or even a handyman um, who might come into this room and they would perceive it as a physical room. They may see the flower of life on the wall uh, and the other art in this room as just physical art uh, or a gardener may enjoy playing in the dirt and planting things and watching them grow and breathing in the air and enjoying that physical experience. But they are not really contemplating higher mystical experiences or God beyond a very physical, tangible, religious version of what God might be. So the third dimension really is that set of tools that allows us to have that physical experience in a purely physical way. In, an, in a more ego-based way, too, where we have that separation from each other, where I'm me and you're you, and we see ourselves as separate from another person. So I think those are some of the tools that we are afforded in this dimension through which we have whatever experience we came here to have. But inside of that, we could have a great experience. We could be somebody who is a gardener or even just living in a normal life, in a normal average third dimensional life who has a particular work that they do that they love and they enjoy and they're fulfilled by and they may go home to a relationship partner, a marriage partner who they love and children and uh, and create a life there. So their whole life journey is very joyful and fulfilling. I think, you know, what we discussed between us before is, is about how that third dimensional experience got a little derailed. Um, but, but I would, I would perceive it as that the having an experience that is purely a physical journey and where you're able to see, touch, smell the things in this dimension. Uh, obviously as beings, we came here to the third dimension because we wanted to have that experience and from Various channel revelation shows the guides have talked about how being in the third dimension is something that's very revered. But of course, many of us come here and we don't want to be here. And I think that's because the third dimension that we perceive has sort of been derailed as opposed to it could have been a utopia, really, but but very physical and very um, uh, individualized or rather egocentric in the sense that we are separate from each other and each having our own personal experience. 
Yeah, and I would even take it a bit further in terms of the ego because, um, yes, certainly the guys have talked about as we move up through dimensions, we have less need to identify separately, even though we're having an individual experience of being a part of a collective. But I think, unfortunately, in the third dimension, our egos have been turned on us. So what the guides say is, is the, the ego is so important because we are meant to understand who we are as a unique aspect of a collective. And unfortunately, we're always looking at how we don't fit in or how we don't measure up and, and all the things that are wrong with us because we aren't the same as opposed to revering our differences, which is really, I think, one of the, the more um, rewarding aspects of being in the third dimension. The guides say, we wanted to slow vibration down to the point where we could savor every material experience. And when you think about that, it truly could be a heaven on earth if we wanted it to. But just like astrology, and we talk about this a lot, being a container for experience, each dimension is a container for us to create timelines and, and realities. And unfortunately, when you say it's been hijacked, I think one of the biggest factors in that is that hierarchies came into being. So a lot of what the guides talk about in the channeled revelation shows has to do with beings, gods who took authority and power over us and set this hierarchy up, which in my opinion, took us out of the true source field where we organically source for something that we innately love to do. And and we came prepared and, and trained to offer humanity. So you can see how we've re- really been pulled out of the true and organic opportunity to build and create a reality and a society that would have thrived in a material sense. But unfortunately, the structures that are there just don't work anymore. So we, we talk about this a lot in the guides talk about uh, it's collapsing on itself. It's becoming more and more restrictive. And that's because those pathways to source are so controlled and they're so opposite of the awakenings that we have all come into in terms of our individual and unique purpose that we don't fit there anymore. So I think it's important that we are making the shift on earth out of the third dimension. And it kind of does have to fall apart not because it's bad, but because what we created there has no longer any relevance or purpose in our ability to expand. And and actually, it's kept us in this vicious loop of revisiting history time and time again. So timelines have a lot to do with it. And, you know, to me, a timeline is anywhere you're focusing your creative energy and attention. And, and the guides say, we will walk through multiple timelines in a matter of 24 hours. You know, one day we could exist in various dimensions and different timelines that we're focused in. And and I, that's happens to me all the time. I, you know, I'm with family over the weekend and can't have these conversations, right? I find myself in a little more of a third dimensional type of reality or, yeah, I have to go to the Secretary of State because the driver's license expired. Um, and then I'm channeling, you know, for a group of people on a Zoom call in the late afternoon, which is more of a fifth dimensional timeline. So so these are the things that we really have to pay attention to, I think, because 
the timelines are what construct the dimension. It's kind of like girders on a building. You know, when when we're building a, a skyscraper, all of those girders, the steel walls and bars that come together is really important to create the foundation and the stability of the building. Imagine if we're trying to build a building with different weighted materials, which is actually what the timelines are. They're different weights and different vibrations. And that's ultimately why we're in such a chaotic experience right now. And it's really hard to get a grasp on where we're going because our foundation is shaking. You know, the building that we've assembled here in the third dimension, it just, it's not stable anymore. So a lot of people ask, you know, on our podcast um, videos and comments, what do you do? You know, how do you shift and really create a fifth dimensional reality? Well, I think it takes having a level of consciousness that is applied to every timeline that you're in at the time you're there to really know how to maneuver it in such a way that you're incrementally moving your life towards the dimension or the reality that you want. And it really takes seeing some of those things that exist in the third dimension that are holding you and us as a whole back. And we, we talk about a lot of those things on our podcast, whether it's taxes or government structure and, you know, all of the rules and regulations and one world government and, and all of these things, it, you know, it seems impossible to navigate, but we have to keep in mind that we're the ones creating the timelines. That's just a, a false matrix that they're overlaying on top of our possibility such that we perceive it as a requirement and we weave it into our own creative threads and timelines. And that's ultimately what's happened in the third dimension for decades is that we've been influenced to believe there are certain things we have to do in order to have a job, to make money, to have food, to thrive, to survive. And these are the things we really have to catch ourselves in because we have to push the envelope on what we're creating in every timeline. And some of that we don't have much control over. So I can't go back to my family and change them. But what I can do is bring my conscious awareness and input to that timeline in such a way that it vibrationally makes an impact. And I think all of us are doing that in our own way. But if we entangle ourselves in all of the things that are going wrong, it's really just going to weigh us down and anchor us in that dimension that we're trying to navigate ourselves out of. So I think it's tricky right now um, to be able to navigate the shift dimensionally uh, with everything that we have going on. It's interesting what you were saying about we came here to the third dimension so we could slow down time and savor every moment of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, coming from a more mainstream background and being very achievement oriented and focused most of my earlier life with vision boards and goals and coaches and people trying to help me get to my goals and, and law of attraction and, um, reading lots of books on success and achievement. Our society is really structured toward getting to that end goal to, you know, reach that whatever is on our vision board, um, whether it be money or relationship or something else. We are not trained to experience the journey. So we're kind of missing the point in many respects. So, you know, if we 
reach our goals, we're happy for a hot second while we reach our goals and we're on to the next goal already. I mean, that's typically how I live my life back, you know, prior to all of this. And I think that's a lot of our society structure that way. Even in the spiritual community, we use vision boards as a, as a, um, a new version of that same idea, which is we're unhappy where we are now and we're trying to achieve this thing that's on the vision board or law of attraction. But the whole point being, it's a journey, it's the experience from here to there that matters, right? Because that is the the duration, whereas the end result happens in a moment. And I think that's where a lot of us miss out in experiencing that journey. And I think it's really important to focus on the steps, like where you are now in the process of getting somewhere. And maybe that goal will never be reached. Uh, because it's not part of your soul's journey in this life and you may work toward it. And certainly a lot of people, uh, myself included, have had goals over their lifetimes or things on their vision board that never actually happened. And because those things are not meant to be for that particular individual where they may work out for somebody else. And but what's missed, though, is the journey from here to there. Even if that journey is a journey that doesn't get you where you think you want to be. The journey is still what we should be savoring, right? The process of getting there. And that's been something that I've had to reframe in my own perspectives in, in the recent decades, which, which is that enjoying the process of getting somewhere you think you should be. And then even if you don't get there, it doesn't really matter. Or, or even if you get there and then it's all taken away from you, it doesn't matter because you still have the journey, the process there, right? Just like I've had many, as we've talked in the previous uh, conversation, I've had many restarts in my life where everything fell apart and I had to start over. And, or even experiences where I went broke and had to start over from zero again. And if you look at that uh, from a, the conventional mainstream perspective, it's basically failure to failure to failure, right? And, but, but if you look at it from this broader perspective that we're here to experience the journey and savor every moment of it, then those moments of failure are just another moment in that journey. Uh, every period of the journey is progress uh, toward that wherever we're going. And the goal is just simply something that gives us a direction to go. So if we're walking from here to there, the goal is just simply the there that gives us a place to go toward. But every step from here to there is really the point, including that last step where we get to that end result. And that's where I think we missed the point. And, you know, you were talking about a lot of people ask, well, how do I do this? Or how do I, how do I change these things? Well, and I think the same thing applies there is everybody is, well, not everybody, but a lot of people, most people are trying to get somewhere other than where they are now, even if that is to get to a better state of peace of mind or happiness or uh, to not be um, held down by the oppressive system that we live in in the world. Um, there's always a there. And I, and I think while the there matters, you know, I think it matters if you're going toward something that you feel drawn to go toward, regardless of whether you ever get there. Uh, the process of getting there is what matters. You know, enjoying that process and experiencing the moments and the things that you grow and evolve through. And one of the, I don't know if you said it uh, in our last podcast or if it was something the guide said, but something along the lines of um, 
ascended masters or uh, the most evolved souls, the thing that they they care about the most is uh, learning, you know, learning and evolving and growing, um, gaining knowledge or wisdom or something like that, I think. So all the other things don't matter as much when you get to that stage of evolution. Expanding yourself is what's most important to them. And, and I think the experience is the journey through which you can even have that. You can, um, in the process of getting somewhere. So if your vision board has a car on it or something, um, that end result, whether you get there or not, the process of getting there changes you. And I think that's the whole point is you become a different person, even if that goal is not realized. Or if that goal is realized and you move on to the next goal, you're still a different person in that evolutionary journey. And that's where our focus should be, not on how do I change these things so that I can be happy, but rather um, to find happiness and fulfillment and excitement in every step on the way somewhere, uh, whether we ever reach that destination or not. Because if it's not on your journey, then you're not going to reach that destination anyway. Uh, and in my case, that's been true with many things I had on my goals list when I was younger. Uh, and some I reached and some I didn't. Uh, and the some I reached were, uh, were good, but then the some I didn't would have also been fulfilling if at that time I had that perspective to enjoy the process of getting there. Even the difficult parts, because even in the difficult parts, if you can be self aware of what you're feeling and experiencing, it can be just as fulfilling as reaching that goal can be. That's a great analogy that I think can be applied to what's going on in the spiritual community right now, because there's so much urgency to make this shift and so much talk about, you know, when are we going to see the solar flash and everyone's going to get their big payout and all the white hats and black hats and all of this stuff. And truly I think, the purpose of those in power is to move us out of the present moment because that is where our power lies. It's it's where our consciousness grows because if we can be mindful, even in a physical sense, with wherever we are and whatever we are doing, that's where the next dimension becomes accessible to us because it's all around us, right? And we talk about spiritual gifts. It's really just the ability to tune into what cannot be seen physically in this room, but you can't do that if you're not in the moment in which you are in the room, right? So I think all of that is so important for people who want to awaken to spiritual gifts, but I think also to facilitate this shift collectively, which is so important to think about as a collective shift, because even though the third dimension could be a heaven on earth, and maybe it was, we're always going to be evolving right into the next higher dimension. But it isn't, I think, something that's meant to happen so quickly or overnight it, because people want a timeline jump in their suffering. But ultimately, we're meant to cherish all of the new stuff that's coming in and somehow find a logical place for it or a fit for it in the life that we've already created. So so we can't just timeline jump. We, we create bridges, in other words. And I think that's what timeline energy and that analogy of the girders of the building is really so profoundly um, demonstrates is that everything that we've created in our lives currently is the foundation for what is coming next. And 
And so we have to get so ingrained in that, that we expand our consciousness to the degree that higher and higher dimensional information drops in. That's where we get those aha moments, right? And, and we, we start breaking the barriers or the boundaries of what we've created before and, and going somewhere completely different and new. And I think that's where a lot of fear creeps in. And so we get this comment a lot as well. You know, people are afraid. They say, what do you do about the fear? And you and I have talked about it a lot. I think we deal with fear differently. We have different perspectives on it. But, you know, one of the most valuable bits of insight that I had about fear came through Divine Mother. And she was talking about peace. And she said, um, you know, instead of focusing on peace, what we need to do is stop judging emotions or states of being as good or bad because we look at fear as negative and we look at bliss as something we want to be in all the time. But the guides say, if you were in bliss all the time, you would never expand. You would never evolve because there's nothing to grow from. That That's not really what you want, even though we think we want that. And And so Divine Mother says contentment and peace, these are things that we build when we allow a spectrum of emotions. So... I think first we have to realize that fear has been so ingrained within us that it's running in the background and we don't even realize we're making decisions through it or from it. Uh, where in the book, the guides talk about very simple things like life insurance and, you know, health insurance and, you know, mortgages and savings accounts and, you know, these things are the norm, but they really are all manifested from a fear-based mentality. You know, we're going to run out of money or we're not going to have, you know, be able to pass something on to future generations and or we're going to die tomorrow, right? All of these things are taking us out of the present moment and we're in constant preparation for what is coming next, but that doesn't allow us to be real with what we feel. So if we're always letting fear move us into the future, we're never going to be true and organic with what's going on now. And we've suppressed that to such a huge level that sometimes I don't even think we know the difference. And we think we're in fear, but we don't even really know what fear is because we've never allowed ourselves to go to that level, right, of true fear. And I know people out there are going to say, well, it's going to affect my vibration. Why would I do that? To me, because you see how false it is when you let fear arise and you do what's instinctual in you anyway, or what you're guided towards, uh, you're going to find on the other side, how that fear has been so unnaturally cultivated, I think. So I think we have to be kinder with ourselves and we have to allow our emotions to express, not unconsciously, but just let them work through us and know that it's okay you know, it's okay to go through periods of uncertainty and discomfort just as much as we want to go through periods of certainty and great comfort and prosperity because it's how we evolve. But those are stopping points, I think, you know, for us truly on our evolutionary path and to really take what we are accessing in higher dimensions and put it to use in the dimension we're in now. You know, one of the examples is, um, technology, right? We talk about that a little bit. Um, we see a lot in terms of technological advancement in spiritual modalities and healing technologies and things like this, but they don't really ever come to full fruition. And sometimes they fizzle out or they, they don't live up to their expectations. And 
I don't necessarily think that has to do with the people who are putting them out there. I think it has to do with this kind of low level fear that the collective is still steeping in that doesn't allow us to match the consciousness of where these true, you know, creations come from, which is a blending of dimensions, right? It's pushing the envelope on what we expect or what we know uh, to be safe in the third dimension. And that's going to require us to feel a little bit of fear and uncertainty, I think, and to, to normalize that and say, it's okay. You know, it's okay for us to be afraid of what's coming next or to not know. If we're willing to step into it anyway, I think that's where some of this timeline energy that still needs to move is really going to catapult us as a collective into the next dimension. One of the things that uh, that I realized in my conversations and channel relations with the guides is that our society is made up of two distinct ancient civilizations or um, ancient influences, let's say, the Anunnaki and the reptilians or the Naga. And we can see the aspects of that in the iconography that exists around the world that even to this day, and also in society as a whole. We have the Anunnaki, which was the the warring, more aggressive, hierarchical system uh, that we still live in today, which is the global banking system and governmental system, taxes, all of these things came from that time, including shortened lifespans, uh, all of these things. But we also have the Naga reptilian race, which really influenced everything that we know in mainstream modern spirituality. Uh, so, uh, meditation or uh, even ideas like Tantra, which predate the reptilians, but nonetheless, those influences have been brought forward into modern society through the reptilian education or their teachings. And, and so today, as a spiritual community, we default to reptilian teachings when it comes to things, whether that be meditation or stillness or uh, being in the present moment, those are all reptilian concepts. But, uh, and, and also when we get into a state of fear or any kind of emotional turbulence, our go-to is to avoid that fear and instead meditate, find stillness, uh, go within, but not feel the emotion. And, and also I find, you know, over the decades of being in the spiritual space that a lot of people struggle with meditation. You know, we have these stories about Buddha and who meditated under the Bodhi tree for however many years. And uh, and we have all these teachings in ancient Buddhism and Hinduism about reaching this state of nirvana or this state of um, uh, stillness. And yet I find that a lot of people struggle with meditation. There's too many emotions or too many thoughts, uh, can't still the mind. And, and we look at these ancient teachers and we judge ourselves based on their perfection in doing these things. But one thing that we never really considered was these were reptilian beings who were, who originated these teachings. And while those teachings are valid and certainly those are tools we can use, we were, we are not going to be reptilian, although we're more reptilian today than we were thousands of years ago when a lot of these things started because we've become more and more reptilian as a result of practicing these teachings for millennia. So we may be more reptilian today, 
but we are not 100% reptilian like many of these reptilians and hybrid reptilians from ancient times who originated and taught these things to the human beings of that time. And so we cannot reach that state of perfection when it comes to mindfulness or um, that inner state of stillness, which lacks emotion completely. The state of stillness and mindfulness and meditative state that we see described in ancient teachings of Buddhism and Hinduism and other, uh, other ancient spiritual teachings are based in a, an emotionless mindfulness because the reptilians did not experience emotions. But we're human beings. And so we shouldn't strive to do that. Um, but I do think that there are elements of that that are good, but it's been, it's swung so far to an extreme in modern day spirituality that it's always our go-to, you know, always our go-to is to go into meditation and vast majority of people struggle with meditation because we are not designed that way. We're not built to be in that state. Um, but we can use that as one of the tools in our toolbox. So I think where we got a little derailed is we were never encouraged to experience emotions, which is really where our strength comes from, where the reptilians, it's really more in the mind. And for me, how I experience emotions is I become self-aware of the emotions. So if I'm experiencing, let's say, fear, um, now I think the majority of people when they, and even when I was younger, experience fear as an external thing that affects them. So for example, right now you may think, well, the world is in chaos and there's war and all of these threats that are out there that I have no control over. But the problem is until you become self-aware of your emotions, it becomes something that's out of your control. You actually think you are that emotion. You think you are fear. But the moment you start to notice that you are in a particular emotion, whether it be fear or something else, it becomes a personal observation. So for me, I start thinking about well, feeling the emotion that I'm feeling, let's say fear. So if I'm feeling fear, I will start going into that fear and seeing where do I feel that fear in the body? What does it feel like? And, and really sort of analyze and go into and fully immerse myself in that emotion. And I find that in that way, the emotion becomes something that's just a personal observation, just another, you know, savoring the experience, right? Savoring the journey. Uh, it just becomes another part of savoring the journey, something that I'm feeling that is fascinating, that's interesting, that's creating certain sensations in the body. It no longer becomes something that is a negative, but rather just a personal observation and something that I can sort of play with. And then when you take that fear into something you're just playing around with and finding it interesting, you know, looking at it as a soul embodying through this physical structure, then it ceases to become something that controls you and you actually become the one in control of it and then you can move on to the next thing and the fear or whatever emotion moves on and you move on to the next experience so i think that's where we need to start to to shift our perception of emotions in particular fear as not something we want to get away from 
uh, or not something that we want to meditate away, uh, but rather something that we want to go into and observe and fully experience because emotions were something that we came here to have and to experience, whereas reptilians did not. Uh, and if we're always defaulting to reptilian teachings, when we are not reptilian, we're always going to fall short of reaching our fullest potential. Those are tools, certainly, that I think would be beneficial to use at certain times. And I do think some of the reptilian teachings are very beneficial, like being in the present moment or reaching states of stillness. But uh, but I think you have to also embody the emotional aspect, too. Otherwise, we are constantly moving toward reptilian consciousness and and, and away from what really makes us superhuman in many respects. I've noticed in the spiritual community, we have a lot of very empathic and emotional people. And there are always questions about that in my community. You know, what's wrong with me? I can't stop crying. Or, I, you know, I, I feel very deeply and it, it seems to be a negative. But I think what happens when people do start to meditate is, all of those suppressed emotions that, you know, we've been trained in doing since childhood really start to come up and we have to process all of that. So I think naturally we become a little more sensitive and, and raw and, and I think that's okay. You know, it, it's hard to manage. I know. And at times we, we do need to get a grip on it, but it's all in the perspective. So if we're always looking at ourselves and saying, well, we're too weak because, you know, we were so empathic or you know, we can't get control of our emotions. We're adding all of this junk on top of, you know, coming into, I think, our own in terms of using the full suite of our creative ability. Because, you know, what the guides say in the book is that, you know, the law of attraction, first of all, I think it's a great example of how you know, something in the toolbox in the third dimension that applied and may have been working and was good to know wasn't the full story. Because as we open our minds to what exists in the fifth dimension and even beyond, naturally, we're going to have new insights about that. And, and in the book, the guides say our emotional frequencies are the creative drivers of every timeline that we've ever been on. Right. So so we think we're creating from our thoughts only. But our thoughts are driven by our emotions and the two work symbiotically, right? So they go, you know, thoughts, emotions, emotions, thoughts. If we don't take that into consideration, then we're not going to be creating things that we enjoy or that we really want for the whole of humanity. So I think it's purposeful right now that we're in this emotional time because not only are we starting to truly feel, you know, the spectrum and capability of our emotional body, but we're learning better how to work with it, right? And how to use it as a tool as to move us into the fifth dimension, which I think is necessary. You know, I think for us to be a unified collective, we need to be more empathic. You know, we, we need. All right. On that note, we are going to take a little break and as we come back, we'll play some music from the stars and some music and a look at the stars with our brother Richard and uh, Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha. And uh, so we'll see you in about, oh, 10 minutes or so. So 
Namaste for now. So talking dick to you, Richard. Okay, then. Thank you for that, Rama. That song was my request. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was great. Yeah. Thank you for yeah, Well, I think that was kind of appropriate to the season. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's take a quick look here at the current conditions. Whoa. Venus is at 20 Libra. Mm. Okay. Approaching a square to Pluto this week. Mars is at two Sag and the Sun is at four Sag. Therefore, they are square to Saturn at one degree Pisces and trying to Neptune over there in uh, little Neptune at the 25 Pisces. Now, Neptune is still retrograde, but it's very, very slow of uh, uh, a third of one minute of a degree, you know, it's like standing still. Okay. Then we got Mercury. Good old Mercury is up to 23 Sag. And that's an interesting place for Mercury. One of, one of the topics connected with Sagittarius is uh, worldview, your worldview, a.k.a. your philosophy of life. All right. Now we got Pluto at 29 Capricorn. And, yeah, Pluto is not retrograde. Not anymore. All right. And Saturn at, Saturn at 1 Pisces, Neptune at uh, 25 Pisces, and we get to Aries. With Chiron at 16 Aries, retrograde, and then you got the North Node at 23 Aries, alright, alright, and you got Jupiter at 8. Jupiter's still retrograde now at 8 degrees Aries. No, Taurus, 8 degrees Taurus. Moon tonight is at 18 Taurus, and Uranus is at uh, 21 Taurus. So, Pluto trying Uranus, and... Mars, Sun, Trine, Neptune. That'll be kind of fading out this week. And that's everything. I mean, the only things that are really moving are Sun, Mars, Mercury, and Venus. And, of course, the Moon. So uh, I understand Kaipach is like 35 minutes long, so let's jump into that. Back to you, Rama. Okay, here we go.
Namaste. Aloha. It's Kaipacha with the weekly Pele report for November 22nd of 2023. I am very fortunate enough to have made it to Shambhala. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness. The report from Shambhala. Just as what? The sun has moved into Sagittarius along with Mars. And uh, on Friday, okay, Mars moves into Sag. So, and the thing is that Saturn is at zero degrees of Pisces. So we are going to have both the sun and Mars squaring Saturn. So it's uh, sun square Saturn is exact uh, tomorrow, Thursday. Mars square Saturn is exact on Saturday. So these, these are biggies. These are biggies that I will be talking about today. Uh, and let's oh, well, let's get to the next biggie that I want to talk about, and that is Uranus, Venus, Mercury, Yod. Right? We had a Yod with Jupiter. Now it's Uranus's turn. And who we? Uh, you know uh, the finger, the fickle finger of fate happening here. I'm going to be really discussing Venus is moving through Libra around 20 degrees, and uh, Mercury is moving through Sag around 20 degrees, and they're in conjunct to Uranus down there in Taurus. So uh, let's uh, we'll discuss that a little bit and all of those implications. Uh, not only that, but Venus uh, today is in opposition to Chiron. And, of course, we know that she will also be moving on uh, it'll probably be next week where she is actually in, uh, 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 you know, opposition to uh, Eris, right? Eris in the North Node. So we'll talk about that. But the moon. Okay, so we had that new moon, and it's interesting that that new moon, if you remember, it was opposite Uranus. So, you know, the Uranus Yod resolution point is actually the same Sabian symbol as the new moon. Remember the soldier using his conscience to disobeys orders? <laughs> Very interesting that part of the resolution of this yacht is that same Sabian symbol. But I'll get into that when I'm looking at the camera. Uh, other aspects. So the moon now uh, is in Pisces but goes into Aries. And don't forget, she is waxing now. She is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Moving away from that sun, building energy, goes into Aries. Yikes. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, uh, by Friday, uh, she's going to be square Pluto, right? And in conjunct, the sun, Mars. So... You know, we have to be looking out for that. And then she's going to be going into Taurus. Speaking of Taurus, let's just sit for a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, moving through Taurus on Saturday, she's going to conjunct Jupiter. Okay. And uh, by Sunday, she's going to move into Gemini for the full moon. Four degrees, 51 minutes of Gemini, full moon. I'll be reading you the Sabian symbol, talking about everything about this full moon happening in Gemini. Yeah. And what else? Well, 
you know, everything keeps moving, moving, moving. <laughs> also, you know, by, by next Monday, right, then uh, Mercury uh, comes into square Neptune. So Monday is a full day. It's the full moon with Mercury square Neptune. Okay, talk about crazy wildness happening. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then on Tuesday, the moon moves into Cancer. Yeah, where she's going to trine Venus, go along and square Neptune, okay, and oppose Mercury. I mean, just before, you know, just before she goes into Cancer. Oh, so we just want to take a nice big breath. And, yeah, relax through all of this. Let me uh, sit down, look at you, and talk about it. Where to begin? Where to begin? Of course, the sun! <laughs> the center of the solar system! In astrology, the symbol of the self, consciousness, purpose, creativity. Yes! Ow! Rising up like the phoenix rising from the ashes of the underworld of Scorpio. Along with the planet Mars trailing right behind it. So we have now this transference of a month of the sun in water, fixed water. Okay, the underworld, the lower chakras, one, two, and three, the root going in, going down, feeling, and now bursting out, busting forth into the light of Sagittarius, into the fire, and this is a big shift. It's a big switch. It can feel very liberating, very opening. I wanted to try to find a little video of, of a whale, right? You know, breaking up out of the water, breaching. You know? So this can be a time, right? Especially with Mars that wants to penetrate and charge and go, you know, breaking through, breaking free, breaking out. That's a part of the mantra today, right? You know, is I want to, what, break out of what? Duality. Here's where we get into the full moon in Gemini. Coming around. I mean, this is just like so apropos. It's so beautiful in so many ways. I want to read you this Sabian symbol like five times because there is so much in it. And it so much reflects this energy of everything that's going on. It's amazing. Even during this full moon, we have Mercury squaring Neptune in conjunct Uranus earlier on in the week, right? So, you know, this whole time period now is our left Gemini brain, Mercury thinking, thinking, analyzing, judging, uh, you know, living in duality of yes, no, good, bad, right, wrong, me, you, us, them, I, uh, you know, this thinking is a tool of the ego, the lower self, the lower energy that lives in separation. And Gemini and Sagittarius 
is the right brain, the Jupiter, the intuition, okay, that is like, you know, connected and expanded consciousness that, you know, is the guru, one with all that is. And then what? The sun, Mars, coming into Sagittarius, squares Saturn over here in Pisces, ruled by Neptune. This is all, it's so tied together. It's what's so beautiful about astrology. Astrology shows us how everything is connected to everything else. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Saturn transiting Pisces for like three years, 2023 to 2026. This is where we are, we are challenged. This is the test. The taskmaster. Grow up. Get serious. Get it together. Commit. Discipline yourself. So Saturn is all about, you know, this energy. And when it comes into Pisces, multidimensional reality, spirit, love, how does that blend, mix, how do we form, structure, Commit, you know, mature, deal with all of this, these obstacles. It can be a lot of, you know, it can be a lot of dealing with limitation, dealing with sacrifice, dealing with our need for service and to be of service can even be uh, ill health. It can also be neurosis and psychosis, depression, you know, just feeling, you know, like, whoa, Every I'm overwhelmed. Pisces is all that is, is all that is, is all that is. And and here's a little Saturn, third dimensional reality of, you know, black and white and good and bad and judgment and everything. You know, and, and in Pisces, Pisces is like, it reminds me of like a, a boat upon the ocean. All right. Let me put upon the ocean because this is what I'm looking at. <laughs> You see that boat out there? That is a little bit of an ocean liner. He's going very slow. But just think, just think if this was a storm or a typhoon or a tidal wave. Yeah, that boat would get tossed around in absolutely no time. Nothing to it, like a little bobber. So Saturn is like a little bobber. Or, you know, that big metal ocean liner could be Saturn. You know, yeah, heavy, big, slow moving. There's Saturn in Pisces. Look at the size. Look at the size of the ocean. So this is, you know, this is symbolic of, you know, where we can really find ourselves, where we can really see ourselves at this particular time as being very, very, very small. Very, very, very small. And, okay, here's the scoop. I got so much to say today because I just came out of a silent retreat. <laughs> I stopped talking for a little while. I did some Zazen meditation. Got some introduction to Zazen, introduction to Zen Buddhism. I have some quotes here from, from Zen masters. And this is so Saturn and Pisces, okay, that is about... Right. Well, let me let me just look at it. You know, and I want to I don't read this to you. Wisdom 
tells, uh, this is a quote from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaja. Wisdom tells me that I am nothing. Love tells me that I am everything. And in between these two, my life flows. This is the head, this thinking, this ego, living in duality, and the heart that is love, that is Pisces, Neptune, Venus, the lower octave of Neptune, wants to live in this love of everything. We're all one, one with all that is. This this is like, and in between these two, life flows like these waves breaking upon the sea. So it's all about letting go. And we and we, and, and even in this meditation, which is Pisces, which is Neptune, okay, which is Mercury squaring Neptune. Yeah, Mercury wants to think, 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 and do business and carry on as usual and da da da. And if it's one thing I find with this Zazen where you sit still for hours every day, not thinking, <laughs> that's the idea. That's the practice. <laughs> but they just give you this idea of let your mind be two open windows and the thoughts come in and just let them blow out. And, and another one comes in and it blows out. The whole thing is not to attach to our thoughts and make them real. Making the story real. Making this third dimension ego experience all that there is. Because it's not. And it's not who we are. It's not who I am. These are just thoughts. And as I let them go... Yeah, the guy that led the retreat, Hamid, he says, you cannot think. You cannot be in your head and be in your heart at the same time. I sat with that for a while because <laughs> I'm in my head a lot. I think a lot. Astrology is very Uranian, right? It's very abstract. It's very thought provoking. <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you, it's like you cannot love and think at the same time. All right, that's going to bring me into this other aspect. Now let's look at this yod. Oh my goodness. You know, I mean, we, we can be in for some big trouble. We can be in some, for some big trouble. We are, the, the, the planet right now, of course, the world is moving towards this World War III. I mean, it's just like people are taking sides. People are really living in duality. 99.9% of the world's population is constantly thinking every moment that they're awake. And what I even found was I'm thinking even when I don't think I'm thinking or I'm not conscious of my thoughts. We're like making judgments all the time. Our thinking makes judgments. We live in judgment. You see somebody walking by. And unconsciously, you, you've already got judgments about that person, the way that they walk, the way that they look, the, the color of their skin, the length of their hair, the, the, the number of tats or whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're doing this stuff. It's like think unconscious thinking is like, 
It's like you don't really see how many thoughts you've got till you try to stop them. <laughs> so this brings me to Mercury in conjunct Uranus, right? Okay, this is double trouble. The in conjunction, okay, has to do with an adjustment. It has to do with, I call it the ants and the pants aspect. Okay, it's these things don't mesh. They don't go together. They don't fit. It's earth and fire. They doesn't fit. Uranus and Taurus, Mercury and, and Sag. Okay, it's just like it doesn't fit. And so this can be abrasive, you know, thinking. This can be extreme thinking. Uh, this can be radical thinking. Okay, uh, you know, this can just be like, you know, like, wow. You know, arguing just for the sake of arguing, taking the opposite side, da, 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 you know, you know, threatening, feeling threatened, you know, by your beliefs. It can be going nuts. Mental instability. This can be where, yeah, people freaking lose it. They can't adjust, can't make that shift, can't let go and allow. OK, and they get, you know, latched onto Sagittarius is a belief. It's a, you know, the radical, it's the jihad, fundamentalism. This is, so this, there can be, yeah, you know, tense communications, you know, bad emails, uh, you know, bad, uh, you know, social media stuff. I mean, shit can really like be coming up and out. Like, you know, the sun, Mars coming out of Scorpio can be like an exploding zit. <laughs> Right. Let me and let me get to this. Uh, let me get to this Sabian symbol. But first, Uranus, Venus, another one. Okay, Uranus in Taurus, Earth, Venus in you know air. You know, let's all get along and compromise and cooperate and beauty, peace and harmony. And Uranus in Taurus. You know, this is my property. This is my money. This is you know my genius. My my survival. I mean, it's it's. It's time for me with Chiron in Aries, Eris, you know, and North Node in Aries. I've got to take care of myself, stand for myself. Jupiter in Taurus, be self-sufficient. Look after my family, my survival, my food, clothing, and sheltering. I mean, food, clothing, and shelter. I mean, just like, and Venus in Libra. You know, you know, it's love, relationship. What about me, honey? <laughs> I, I'm your partner. What about our relationship? What about we're, what we're building together? What about teamwork? Uh, you know, what about the family? What about everybody else? So there could be this real struggle now also between I need my space, I need my time, I need my way, and having a relationship work, having a business work. You know, having your country, you know, having peace on planet Earth work. You know, having relationships with other people. I mean, just so again, this can be very unstable relationships and unstable financial conditions and situations. Venus also rules Taurus. Money, money, love, sex, all kinds of things. And so, what we want to say is, ha ha. The resolution point for that yaj and all of that trouble is what? What I call, I look at a yaj as like a slingshot. Here's Mercury, Mercury and Venus. 
And Uranus over here in Taurus has to go and you let that Uranus fly to its polarity point and it's the 21st degree of Scorpio. Right where the new moon was, like I said, right? So this is about Scorpio. And, and what is Scorpio about? Death, endings, sex, the taboo. And what, what, what do I, what, what, what do I come back to? You can't think and orgasm at the same time. <laughs> you know, in fact, the more you think, the less chance you have of coming to orgasm, <laughs> right? I mean, this is where, again, this mind and this thinking and this duality, you know, cannot really be carried into nirvana. It cannot be carried to samadhi, to shambhala, to into the heart space. And in some ways, I'm going to say this is the patriarchy. This is the male conquering ego dominating thinking. Us and them. As opposed to, as differing from, this fourth and fifth dimensional realities that we are now having access to of the heart which accepts the paradox, lets go of attachments, you know, allows and surrenders, you know, to love and to unity consciousness and lets go of the self. Self! So you've got Sun, Mars, Self in this square to Saturn. And Saturn is what? You know... The spiritual Neptune Saturn authority, a spiritual authority. It's a spiritual practice. I am committed to my practice. And what is the practice? I got a couple more quotes. <laughs> Here we go. Akuru Roshi says, practice is not preparation for something else. It is not about stopping the storm, but learning to walk the storm. If that's not enough, here's another one. This is attributed to Buddha. We don't strive through meditation to attain peace. Peace is what we discover in meditation when we let go of all striving so this world of duality right this world of survival this world of achievement of ambition of you know going and doing again it's this thinking that's want to do 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 the masculine do 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 the heart, stilling the mind, feeling, being. This is the emerging feminine. This is the emerging new paradigm. And we are the leaders. We are the ones. This is the, we're, we need to bring this in. And it has to start at home within ourselves. You can't bring peace if you are not at peace with yourself, 
with the freaking world. And this has to be one of my favorite freaking... <laughs> great. Dame Rudyard's Sabian symbol for Gemini 5 degrees, the degree of the full moon this weekend. A revolutionary magazine asking for action. The explosive tendency of repressed feelings and root emotions. I mean, is this not perfect with the sun and Mars, you know, like a volcano emerging out of Scorpio? Those repressed, held root emotions bursting out and forward. And then what? Squaring Saturn? Oh, my God. That's like the hand of God coming down going, ah. <laughs> anyway, get, get this interpretation that Dane gives us. Every movement overstressing Uranus in a yod, one direction, calls forth in time an equally extreme movement in the opposite direction. This is particularly true at the level of the dualistic mind symbolized in the zodiac by Gemini. What is rigidly bound in form and convention tends to explode into formlessness. Saturn form is exploding into Pisces, formlessness. <laughs> it may do so violently if socially oppressed. And we, we know that that's going on through revolution or at the psychological level in psychosis going nuts or here's my favorite it may withdraw inwardly into the mystical state in which one identifies with an unformulatable reality Zazen <laughs> yeah baby the highest manifestation of not only Saturn in Pisces, but Neptune in Pisces. And this Mercury square Neptune is a third quarter square. It's a 270 degree square. This is a crisis in consciousness, but that crisis can lead to revelation. I mean, it's not like squares are bad. Squares are breakthroughs, evolutionary gates. This fifth stage is related to the first, for it is the experience of a world of being so far unperceived by the everyday consciousness which starts the process. And here's my favorite part. In the same sense, a psychedelic experience may momentarily make the mind transparent to a non-ego-structured realm of consciousness and may lead to a sustained attempt at understanding 
what has been revealed as a transcendent reality. Whether the revolutionary action is violent or peaceful, bitterly resentful or loving, the one desire is to reach beyond established forms. This is the revolution. This is the Uranian shooting off into the mysteries of life and death in Scorpio. This is the sun, Mars, breaking through into Sagittarius, expanding our consciousness. This is one big, what did he say? A psychedelic experience. (laughs) It's amazing, man. Freaking Dane Rudyard. I think he was born in like 1900. I actually was, uh, I, I had the honor of attending his 85th birthday in 1985. I met him in San Mateo, California, man. Wow. Like, wow. But this guy was like so far ahead of his time. I don't know if you've seen how many books he's written. He was actually a, uh, a piano composer. He was a, he's a, a music composer in addition to the astrology. But the guy is an absolute phenomenon. But so here he is. He's 85 years old in 1985. And he's talking about psychedelic experiences. (laughs) It's like the magic mushroom journeys. I mean, and so, yeah, these, you know, these, these journeys, they can open up our minds to transcendent realities that are beyond the mind. And they actually bring us into the heart. Evolutionary astrology talks of moving from the individuated to the spiritual stage, moving into this endless humility. So this is just like, you know, this is a week. This is a week where you can either go crazy, you can bang your head against the wall, you can argue endlessly with your partner, you can, you know, uh, get stuck in your own, you know, mental forms, structures, beliefs, or... Or you can really take this opportunity, especially this full moon, wow, of opening your mind and opening your heart to the infinite possibilities, the infinite potentials of all that is. We are just little waves upon the ocean. We are supported. We are held. It's going to be okay. We can relax and let go. And that's what this mantra is about. I need to break out of duality to be one with all that is. The paradox is, it's not doing a thing, but allowing it all to exist. This is the river flowing through between the head and the heart. And if it's one thing that, you know, I can come out of this retreat with, you know, and and he spoke about it, it's celebrating life. But celebrating the crisis and the suffering as much as the joy and the happiness. 
It's and letting go of the joy and the happiness as much as you want to let go of the pain and the suffering. It's it's this this river of life that goes back from the up to the down, the waves upon the sea. And it's not trying to hold on. This too shall pass. Can be very comforting when we're in pain, when we're in crisis, we're in suffering. And say, oh God, I I can't wait for this to be over. I can't wait to get out of here or get away from this. Or, you know, I want this to stop. And so we can take comfort in astrology that says, you know, the cycles are always, always moving. And one end leads to a new beginning. But to also be in the peak of ecstasy, right, of, you know, this orgasmic bliss in Shambhala, like, you know, like right now, I'm having a great time, but not getting attached or not, you know, not, you know, not fearing losing, right, you know, this high. I want to stay high. I want to stay high. Well, that's the other thing he talked about. We're caught between cravings and aversions. And this is another thought-mind duality, right? Craving, you know, excitement and pleasure and high, and the highs and wanting to hold on to that, you know, that, that buzz, that psychedelic experience. And, you know, give me more, give me more, right? You know, and the aversions. You know, where so the the whole thing, the zazen, the 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 beauty, okay, is just flowing and allowing whatever comes up to come up, and then let it go, and then more will come up, and it could be happy, and we want to let that go, and it can be sad, and we want to let that go, and we want to just like be you know. That's <laughs> and that's when you don't have to come back, baby. <laughs> that's the end of the wheel of karma. <laughs> yeah. Ow! Come on, one more time. Oh, the song for this week, Shambhala, the road to Shambhala. Ow! Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Wash away my trouble, wash away my shame on the road to Shambhala. <laughs> yeah. I need to break out of duality, to be one with all that is. The paradox is, it's not doing a thing, but allowing it all to exist. Boom. Ow! Shanti. Mahalo. So much love.
Pass the talking stick back to you, Richard. Okay, thank okay, you, sir. Thanks, sir. <coughs> All right. Yeah, All right. I'll yeah. Go. Next Saturday Next night. Saturday night. Venus will <laughs> be at 28 Libra. And, uh, so it'll be uh, approaching uh, opposition to Jupiter. Uh, Mars will be at 7 Sag. The Sun will be at 11 Sag. And Mercury will be at 2 Capricorn. And the Moon will be at 18 Leo. And, and the Moon what, Richard? Basically all the stuff that moves in a week. Right? Only the inner planets really move in a week. It won't be too long before Venus will conjunct Mars. Another five weeks, maybe. And then what? And then Mars will be left behind. See, the sun, the sun, uh, you know, this is relative to Earth motion. The sun is now ahead of Mars. All right. Uh huh. Heading towards Capricorn, the winter solstice. And, uh, let's see. Actually, I have, I have the winter solstice chart here. So when we get to December 21st, yeah, Venus will be in, uh, 21 Scorpio and Mars oh that's interesting Mars will be still close to the sun oh. anyway yeah it will be uh, it's going to be an interesting moon moon conjunct Jupiter on the winter solstice Oh, it looks like we're going to have a, uh, yeah, Mercury will be retrograde on the winter solstice. That's a month away. That's true. Today's the 20, it's less than a month away. Yeah, we got a Mercury retrograde coming up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, more next week to the you know, tune in next week for another update. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard. Here we go. Here we go. Right, I'll uh, talk to you next week. Thank you, Richard. Namaste. This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrometrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the astrology and numerology to help us navigate the amazing celestial energies for our highest good. And in this case, it is the Gemini full moon with the sun in beautiful Sagittarius. These are mutable signs, so they do indicate more change and flexibility. However, the full moon takes place at four degrees. So we're going to get into that in a moment because four 
is a number of security and grounding and is somewhat inflexible. So we're going to have a nice balance here. So this full moon takes place on November 27th, 9.16 a.m. Universal Time in Greenwich, England, 4.16 a.m. Eastern Time and 12.16 a.m. Pacific Time. And you don't need to be a Gemini or a Sagittarius to benefit from this forecast. You have these signs and this full moon somewhere in your astrology birth chart. So it impacts everyone. Now, the sun is conjunct Mars and the moon is opposite Mars. So Mars is a planet of fast movement, passion, fire, it can be impulsive, driven, it just basically has one direction. And it is very good for being conscious of your goals because of the real focus on one thing at a time. So if you don't channel this powerful energy in a creative way, then something may appear out of the blue to create some kind of shift or awakening. So one way to really transmute and channel this very potent Mars energy, because Mars is at two degrees in Sagittarius and the sun at four degrees Sagittarius. And Sagittarius is a fire sign and Mars is a fire planet. The ruler of Aries is fire as well, is to really heighten your physical movement. That is always important with the strong Mars activation and Mars opposite the moon will need emotional balance and in order to not get aggressive emotionally or Gemini, which this full moon is in, Gemini is speaking, so communicating in an aggressive way in order not to go there, it is important to physically transmute this very fiery energy. So there's not impatience or just, you know, barging (laughs) somehow in whatever way, you know, being aggressive. So the way you translate that very highly uh, potent energy is through creativity and movement. So it's wonderful to channel into some project when that requires your full attention. You can make a lot of progress now and you have more energy too because Mars is the energy planet. So you want to be aware of the sense of direction you're heading and no matter what the subject matter is, be very conscious about where you're heading right? The actual direction itself. And at the same time, guard against being confrontational or rash. So really listen to your intuition. It will always guide you to the most high vibrational resolution. Now, Gemini is about facts. It's it's media, it's communication, it's words. It's looking at two sides as well, the twins. And since Gemini is ruled by Mercury, It also governs motion and activity and the way you're able to actually share ideas and facts and information, writing and speaking. And so you're going to be asked to see how do you assimilate info, thoughts, conversations, ideas. And since this full moon happens at four degrees, sun is at four degrees Sagittarius opposite the moon at four degrees Gemini, Four degrees is a number of organization, of planning, of diligence, of work. It represents the square 
So it's also about architecture and real estate, but also a box, right? So you're really practical. You're digging in the ground. You're um, sticking to your guns in terms of a project and not veering, not getting distracted and veering off the topic. So the forward momentum of Mars gives you the passion and the courage and the confidence and a sense of starting something fresh as well while you also have this stability. So it's a really nice combo. Now we also have another planet that really figures greatly in this equation and brings more of that practical energy and that is Saturn. Saturn creates a T-square to the sun and moon. A T-square means that Saturn is squaring both the sun and the moon at the same time and it's a very powerful motivational force. Squares in astrology are all about action, not sitting and thinking about doing something, but literally getting off your, you know what, and doing it. So a Saturn T-square means that you are going to observe what you need to take responsibility for. And that is one of the key words for Saturn is to take responsibility. Saturn will be at zero degrees Pisces. And you may know that Saturn recently stationed direct at that zero point in Pisces. And so it's a very important point being the beginning of the final sign. Pisces is the 12th sign. And it means that we're really starting something fresh in a big way. And this has been going on for a few weeks. And with Pisces, it's interesting because, you know, Saturn moves at a very steady pace, secure, patient, step by step. With a square to the sun and moon and Saturn and Pisces, you may, and with Mars also in the equation, you may lose your patience or you may dissipate energy or you may procrastinate or not get to work. And Saturn's saying, well, you need to apply yourself. You need to be diligent. A square is a tense aspect. Like I said, it really is is challenging you to get to work. And you may resist getting that work done. Yet your self-confidence overall in life is directly measured by your willingness to actually get things done. That ability to step up, no matter what the situation is, really enhances that Mars confidence. So, and also the Sagittarius confidence. Sagittarius is a sign ruled by Jupiter and Jupiter instills tremendous confidence when you are on the side of expansion and gratitude and justice. So you don't want to wait for others now, in other words, to inspire you or give you the green light or praise you before you get to work. You literally need to be self-motivated, self-activated, and know that the seeds that you're sowing now are going to return to you in a major way because Saturn leaves a lasting impact. So the sun Conjunct Mars, the sun represents our inner light, our ability to act on our feelings, our ideas. And when the sun squares Saturn, bringing responsibility, planning, boundaries, we also need to get extra rest because we may feel energetically somewhat depleted. So yes, Mars is there as well, giving us energy. However, it's got to come from a place that is so instinctual, It needs to feel to the core of your being that it is right. Otherwise, you will literally feel exhausted. And no matter what the case is, getting some extra rest is recommended around this full moon. Now, 
let's go back to Pisces. Saturn in Pisces is almost like a paradox because Saturn likes to get to work and Pisces is a very sensitive sign and likes to dream, not necessarily work. So it's a water sign, Pisces. It's about mysticism. It's about spirituality. It's also on the shadow side, the sign of undoing, undoing things. And Saturn in Pisces, Saturn that we need to get things done planet is now undoing everything that's not helpful, everything that's keeping you stuck. So you want to really observe where you are with people, with situations, and whether you're labeling energy, labeling people, where you are coming into contact with somebody and you automatically label them as good, bad, dark, light, this and that. By observing that tendency, you can set yourself free and have faith in your intuition instead of past judgment in order to get your false sense of direction on how to proceed. Judgment also is almost like a key that we use in order to feel more secure, but it is a sense of false security because in the act of judging others, you are separating yourself completely. So this is a huge moment for us to observe Listen, get the guidance, and this is where Sagittarius comes in with the sun and Mars are. The guidance, have the faith that the guidance is there. Sagittarius is all about faith. So when you do that, then you realize, oh my gosh, you know, God, creator, source, the universe, it doesn't pass judgment. And so we don't need to go to that place. All we need to do is to focus on becoming completely connected and a unique expression of who we are without passing judgment on how others are living their life or other people's opinion or a situation that we don't agree with. The only thing that matters is how you show up given that situation, given that relationship. So there's a lot really here with this full moon. Now we have a couple other transits here to talk about Mercury, the ruler of this full moon, being a Gemini full moon, Mercury squares Neptune in Pisces. And that is an exact square during the full moon. So it's very powerful with the ruler. And that means you need to keep your conversations clear by addressing each thought with complete conscious awareness and guard against getting distracted or pulled into rabbit holes or falling back on programming in order to have the conversation. Try not to go right during the full moon deeply into important matters because this aspect of the square between Mercury and Neptune, it can bring some confusion, illusion, and make it challenging to get an important point across that you're feeling intuitively. So you want to be with people around this time that are uplifting and that inspire you and you inspire them. Keep it simple and breathe. After all, Gemini is an air sign. So focusing on our breath will be one of the important matters of staying in balance during this time. You can receive incredible spiritual insights with Neptune square to Mercury because your intuition is incredibly enhanced. Remember, this square is exact during the full moon. Now, Mercury, the ruler, is also sextile Venus, which is absolutely beautiful. It means you can communicate with pleasure and compassion 
and you can appreciate others with your words and they will in turn appreciate you and show you that affection. Venus is all about beauty and artistry and creativity and love. And and so this will activate with Mercury, your inner poet. So you want to pay attention to the words you use and the sound of your voice and how you respond to the sound of other people's voices, whether they are in the room with you or whether they're talking to you on the phone or whether it's a voice you hear in the media, how does it impact you? You can really get a lot of insights through sound with this transit. And it will take you through your life because you will then start paying attention to the importance of a person's voice and how it resonates with you. Does it resonate with your heart or is it just an intellectual stimulation? So this Gemini full moon really holds you accountable for every word you speak, every thought you have. At four degrees, it's helping you prune and weed away all that's unnecessary and distracting. Gemini is filled with curiosity. It's a very fun sign being an air sign as well. It moves fast. There's a lot of movement. And of course, again, with Gemini, with the twins, you are asked to experience both sides of the of the whole. And if something that's presented to you is triggering you, see if you can refrain from reacting and instead go into the feeling that is being triggered or the thought that's being triggered. It's not always easy to do that because that's when you see what needs to be released. It actually surfaces and it has to surface into the light, the sun, and you're needing to actually see it. Now, without judgment, you can see it and you can let it go. It's just that we get attached, right? And we pass judgment of this is good, this is bad, instead of, okay, this is what it is, and then allowing it to cleanse, right? Again, Pisces undoes things. So with Saturn at zero degrees, there's going to be a lot that comes to pass that needs to be seen and let go of and cleanse. Now, if you're asking, so we know we're in a big shift. When is it coming? We're in the midst of it. We're in it now. It's here. And people move at different rates of speed through any shift. And so some move more slowly than others. And so they may need more to shake them awake. And so then we see a lot more drama when that needs to happen, as we are seeing now on planet Earth. So people who are moving a bit more slowly in the awakening, and again, not a judgment, just an observation, they will require a little bit more shaking up or drama. And for those who are already awake and aware, it's absolutely vital that we hold the highest resonance that we possibly can to be the living example of what is possible, right? There's... Once it's visible and felt and seen, it inspires. And so staying in your heart-centered space at this time is absolutely vital. And we're going to be diving into the big shift in a big way in the ultimate yearly forecast for 2024. You can actually discover more about this forecast, which I'm giving live on 12-12-2023, December 12th. You can discover more at 2024forecast.com. And basically what you're going to receive is not only the forecast 
for the major events and the not so major events. We're really going to go through the whole enchilada for 2024. But you'll also receive your own personal sun, moon, and rising sign forecast, your personal year forecast in the numerology, and you'll get the richly detailed 2024 universal star code guide. It's just loaded with amazing gifts. And of course, the three plus hour live stream and the Q&A. So have a look at this wonderful event. Again, it will happen on December 12th. You can watch a short video at 2024forecast.com. Have a beautiful Gemini full moon and a wonderful week and a happy Thanksgiving for those of you in the U.S., And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. to go to our conference call. What are the numbers, Rob? Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353863-POUND. 720-716-7301. And the PIN code? 353863-POUND. All right, everybody. We will see you on the conference. And then we'll be back here at BBS Radio at the top of the next hour. Best radio to tune in to. (laughs) See you on the conference, everyone. Namaste for now. One more, everybody, right, Mama? No. No? No. Okay. So we'll, we'll conclude now. We'll finish to, uh, with uh, Ethan, uh, Fox, and uh, and yeah, Kayla. I'm getting there. Mama's getting there. Oh. <laughs> and we're all going to get there together. Okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Need to look out for each other. I I read a comment the other day. It was on one of our videos. I can't remember um, about a woman who was in a spiritual community and um, was doing quite well as a practitioner, and then fell on hard, on hard financial times and um, ended up with this stigma and got kicked out of the group because her vibration as someone who wasn't financially successful may have been impacting the financial opportunity of others in the group. And that's such a huge thing. I think we're breaking out of right now is this idea of other people's vibration affecting our own. And I listen, I know energy is a thing We're that's what we're gaining in the fifth dimension is this knowledge about our energetic selves and our sensitivities. But think of it this way. 
if we're just creating boundaries and we're excluding everyone because we're afraid that their vibration is going to lower ours or their, you know, economic downturn is going to impact our prosperity, then how are we ever going to get to a place of unity consciousness? And we're here to help each other. We're here to lift each other up. So if someone's having an emotional day or exists in a lower vibration than we do, the very idea that we're going to segment ourselves or protect ourselves from them is a reptilian idea. It, it truly is because we have to get over this hump of thinking that we're not powerful enough to overcome that stuff. It, it's, you know, the same thing we talked about with dark entities. If, if we go into this with fear and we think we have to constantly self protect and we're just going to keep finding ourselves in fear over and over and having to meet that fear in the world. So, so the whole idea of law of attraction, I think is changing, at least in my mind. And I really do believe it's a reptilian prophecy because it is so mind based. And the guides say constantly that our minds are extremely powerful because we did inherit them from the reptilians, but we also inherited a lot of other things that are meant to be working together, you know, in unison. So I think the fifth dimension, it's it's requiring us to get back into the rhythm and the flow of our birthright in terms of prosperity. And we talked about that a lot in the last podcast with starting over. You know, we we find ourselves oftentimes at these junctions, you know, or bridges where things fall apart and, and we have to let them go and walk over to the other side. And and as a collective, we're doing that together right now. So I think that's why it's going to be so important for us to be able to take the fifth dimensional energy, information, wisdom, and put it into some application in our physical lives, even beyond spiritual prophecy, because I think physical embodiment truly is the key to where we're going. And, you know, I know a lot of people don't want to hear that because there are, you know, all kinds of meditation groups out there and manifestation groups. And, you know, I do my own workshops and courses and, and those things are great. I think what they do is they get us into the, the framework or the mindset of present moment and, and being able to work with our consciousness in such a way that we can be physically embodied and actually make good choices. And there's a fusion between those things. So meditation has its place because it helps us to feel emotion, but not unconsciously use it as an agent of what we do not want to create in the world. And and so these things have to be considered. But ultimately, I think the fifth dimension is still a physical place. It, I mean, it is a place that exists already. We know that those of you that are out there have already existed in 5D timelines and brought them into your own world. But the mystery and the magic of it, you know, of manifesting instantaneously. Do I think that's possible? Yeah. I also think that we're capped by the possibility of what the collective believes in. And I know some people don't want to hear that either, but, but if we are meant to be a unified collective, then everything that we create has some connection to something else. And that connection has to have relevance. So everything that we are apt to do is going to influence the creation of something or someone else within our race. And I think we have to keep that in mind, right? Because where we're going, that's one of the most important factors 
that is missing in the third dimension that seems to be getting worse and worse is this great divide, you know, between humans and, and the ego, right? That's been put in the way and the fight that we're getting lured into constantly. It's, it's really eroding our opportunity to move together, um, very efficiently and support each other as we go in this new direction. You mentioned some some of the individuals in your community are struggling with their emotions, mm-hmm. and see, I, my my thought on that is is to uh, if you're in a particular emotion that is disturbing, to not struggle with it, rather to be in that emotion, right? Because I think in the the idea of being in a particular emotion that you don't particularly enjoy and trying to be somewhere else is what builds up the resistance and prevents you from ever getting out of it. Yeah. So the more you're trying to not be in fear or stress or distress, the more resistance you're building that will keep you there. And that's why I think a lot of people get stuck in negative emotions and can't move out of it It's because they are always trying to be somewhere other than where they are. Uh, and of course, like I said, a lot of the reptilian teachings in, in the spiritual community, we want stillness and we want inner peace and, uh, and to reach these states that the reptilians were able to reach because they don't have emotions, but we're human. And I think the, the, the way to get to that stillness is not by trying to get away from what you're feeling, but rather to go into what you're feeling. And to feel it as fully as you can. It, you know, I think the reason is because we, we were never taught how to be human. You know, our parents didn't know and society is structured in such a way that we'll never know. Um, but if we were taught these things at a young age, then I think we would be living a much more empowered way where we could experience our emotions and move on. And so in an instance where if you're feeling emotions that are uncomfortable, as I said a minute ago, I think the the way out of that is to realize that you came here to savor even that moment. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're in a moment where you're really struggling with a negative emotion, to reframe that idea as you came here to savor even that. And And well, if you can go into that emotion and find appreciation or savor or enjoy or, or just observe it uh, rather than convincing yourself that you should be somewhere else you know you should be like all the great instagram photos you see of beautiful people doing fun things that are all very carefully made to make it look that way um that's not life isn't just that um it is about every moment even the moments where we are struggling with something and those moments if we could turn those into positive things where we're savoring the misery that we're feeling. And in doing that, you're not building the resistance so much that you can't ever get out of it. I think that's why a lot of people get stuck in a negative place for their entire lives or decades or long periods of time is because they are always trying to get away from it as opposed to going toward it or going into it and observing it and to fully feel it, um, you know, fully in a manner of speaking, wallowing, although wallowing, I think is not quite the right word, but but rather embracing that moment that you're in and uh, and then moving on. You know, I think if you do that, you don't have the resistance. And as as intensely as you can feel that emotion, it'll be gone on its own. 
it will have served its purpose. You will not have intensified it by resisting it. And, and then you move on to the next, next experience. So I think that's one of the really important things that we were never taught that would allow us to step into more of the wholeness of who we are as human beings, but then also be able to reach those states of stillness as well that, that we've been taught in, you know, the reptilian spiritual model, which has its strengths as well. So that's something that I think we could do more practicing on. Well, if dimension is a container that is uh, full of information and consciousness is a bandwidth of perspective, then we use our consciousness in order to tune into all of that information. And I think we can apply that to emotion because we're not meant to leave emotion behind. I think emotion comes with us. It just becomes more intelligent because we are so conscious of it that it becomes really valuable information for us. You know, I think emotion can be a guide in terms of what we want to create. So in that way, fear can be a very valuable tool for us because what we're in fear of can guide us to safety, to prosperity, to peace, uh, to whatever we want to create in our lives, but it's not typically seen in that way. And, and, in the fifth dimension, we're also moving into a more multi-dimensional reality. And I think that's the big difference between the third dimension and the fifth dimension, taking out all the hierarchical stuff aside, right? In the third dimension, we are meant to be more um, in tune with material in a slower vibration, one thing at a time, right? Where in the fifth dimension, we're we're managing multiple perspectives and we're working more with energy. And that means we are accomplishing more with less physical effort. And if we get stuck in our emotion, that's going to weigh us down to the point where we're not going to be able to use energy as efficiently, I think, to create. And, you know, we're, we're always using energy, even if we're in the third dimension. I think it's just that when we get into uh, the fifth dimension, we're working more diligently and um, consciously with energy and energy and emotion are basically the same thing, right? So, so in a physical sense, if we're really conscious and aware of how we feel about anything, then we can use that energy to create. And, and actually that's what ascended master Jesus told us in the last channeled uh, course we just did with the ascended masters was, you know, he felt fear but he was trained at a very early age to use the energy of that fear to hone his teachings, right? To create things in the world that were a part of his mission. And he would never send it out into the world in a negative way because he knew that that energy had to come back. So it would spiral forever and come back around and have to be addressed by someone else somewhere in the world, somewhere in the universe even. And that's an awareness I think that we're coming into as well. You know, how do we work with not only energy, but emotion and how do we input that into the world beyond ourselves, you know, beyond our physical reality? Because in unity consciousness, that's going to be extremely important. We still have an ego. We're still focused individually and we're here to appreciate our differences while at the same time not using those as the reason for um putting roadblocks in the way, I think, of what's ultimately possible, right? So so do I think that 
we're going to move to the ninth dimension, to the 12th dimension here on Earth. Well, those dimensions already exist. But for now, I think the souls that have come here really decided and wanted to be in a more material framework in terms of what we create. And some people may not want that anymore because they think the material world is not serving them. And I think that's what we really have to get out of here to help everyone make this shift together. You know, it's it's easy to look at the problems of the world and and use them as the excuse for why we aren't moving forward. But that's exactly why the problems are put into place so that we perceive them as something that gets in our way. And and that's the difference, right? As we shift in between these dimensions, we're expanding our perception enough to really see those little nuances and things that have been plugged into our reality that falsely hold us back from the truth of who we are and what we're really capable of creating beyond what we've been told. So I think it's inevitable that we're going to get there. And many of us in these conversations already are right. Existing in a fifth dimensional reality. The question is, how do we bring everyone along with us? And I think that's what's on the top of everyone's mind. You know, how do we interact with those in our reality that don't see what we're seeing um, that don't have any consideration about spiritual evolution at all. And again, I think it's the same thing as the roadblocks. We can't put too much attention on that because the the second we do, we're creating it bigger, right? And it, it, it's not to say that we shouldn't be somehow encouraging those people. I think we are all here with specific roles, Right whether that's with family or in your workplace or, or as spiritual mentor, there are things that we're here to do that will inspire others or open their minds to, you know, moving in an evolutionary way. But can we force that? Uh, I don't think that that is possible. And I think there will be people that will remain in the third dimension uh, for the rest of our entire lifetimes. And that's okay too. You know, we, we talked about that on a previous podcast. There are people out there who are afraid they'll never see family members because they're not advancing as quickly as they are. The dimensions are fluid, right? All 12 dimensions exist in this room. So I could be pulling 12 dimensional information through a a channel transmission and still be looking at Ethan at the same time, right? And we, we exist in the same space. So, so that will continue on. I think all dimensions overlap. And especially right now, the third and the fifth dimension are overlapping the most here on the earth. You touched earlier on timelines briefly, and I want to bring sort of a grounded example of that um, before we, before I talk more about what you're discussing right now. Uh, a lot of people may not be aware, but, but in recent years, there have been researchers all over the world who are finding uh, cities underneath cities. So, uh, even in places like New York City, um, entire towns that are underneath the existing town, um, that are immediately underneath and appear to have architecture from the late 1700s, 1800 time period. And yet there is no record of there having been any sort of an apocalypse that occurred at that time. Yet there are these towns and cities and villages all over the world that are suddenly popping up that were buried by some apocalyptic event that occurred in the 17, 1800 period. But there's no such record. 
and these new buildings that exist there in these locations today were just built there on top of the previous ones. And no one even knew that the previous ones were there. And there's no record of their, them having been built in the 1800s or 1700s. So what's fascinating about that is we're witnessing two different historical pasts that are suddenly coexisting. A historical past where that we all remember, which is a past where there was no apocalyptic event in the 1700s, 1800s, where society just continued to progress forward. And another past where there was something apocalyptic that occurred in the 1700s, 1800s that essentially buried a good part of the planet and new civilizations built on top of it again. And we didn't even know it was there. So that is an interesting illustration of timelines. It is showing that there's some sort of timeline collision that occurred in recent years where a, where two different paths collided. And, and as a result, we can, you know, in the guides, we, when we talk about the, um, the apocalypse from, you know, 13,000 years ago, the great flood, they talk about how, um, Things that are part of nature, like, you know, the rocks and, and the plants and the trees, they make that transition, right? And, and so we may still find physical remnants of that previous civilization prior to 13,000 years ago, even if a dimensional shift had occurred. So this is a real physical, tangible explanation, right? And yet most conventional researchers are just uh, sweeping it under the rug because they either can't explain it or they don't want to explain it because it introduces the idea of timelines into our reality in a mainstream academic way, which they certainly wouldn't want to admit to. But what we're seeing is the 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 physical reality, the grounded practical example of timelines colliding and where two possible futures are now in our past or rather past are in our past now. And one which probably all of us or maybe most of us never experienced uh, and but nonetheless did occur on the earth and it, they may have been two timelines that coexisted but for whatever reason they came together in recent years and now we're suddenly unearthing events that occurred in that timeline that did not occur in ours and we talked about this in the mandela effect years ago right but this is a much bigger example of that mandela effect of of different realities having coexisted and they are starting to come together. And I think we're going to see that in many respects happening in, in our society in the future. We're going to see a lot of different timelines that may come together. Others may pull apart too. Um, but I think that's a very fascinating uh, observation that we can make today. And we're probably going to see a lot more of these ancient towns or these towns from 100, 200 years ago being unearthed in the future and eventually it'll become more commonplace. And I think at what we're sort of maybe witnessing is society starting to move toward the understanding and acceptance of timelines uh, in a more mainstream way. Uh, because at some point the, they can't just keep burying these old towns back up again, pretending they don't exist. We're going to have to talk about it. And there's no, you know, they're coming up with lots of, very impractical explanations um, like all these towns around the world 
their um, leaders just decided to bury the old towns and build new towns above it and raise the level of the of the uh, of the main level of the city. But that's a nice example if it applied to one city and if there was actually a record of that. But we're seeing this as a phenomenon globally that occurred. And and not only that, but we're even seeing remnants of different apocalyptic events that occurred even in the time of Rome that there is no record of. There are some Roman cities that were buried because of some apocalyptic event. We don't know what it is. Uh, there is no record of something like that having occurred in the time of Rome or since then. And yet all of these cities show signs that they there was a tsunami or something that caused them to just all of a sudden be destroyed and buried uh, all at the same time. So what we're witnessing is the coming together of different ancient timelines that were not part of the past that we were living just a few years ago. And and it's a real physical, tangible example of timeline collisions and, and different timelines existing. I think we're going to see more of that. You know, what's interesting is that the guides say the fifth dimension is a bridge or a doorway into multidimensional reality. And so Anytime there's an ancient archaeological discovery, for example, it's not because someone unearthed it. It's because we became the people that matched the timeline or the dimension or the experience that needed to come back into our reality for some purpose, right? Whether it was just wisdom, understanding or, or putting it to use, right? In some practical way. So yeah, I definitely think we're going to see more of that as we go forward. And it's really happening in a lot of people's realities. You know, I hear all the time that people don't even remember, you know, it's like the, their past doesn't even seem like their past. And, and that is something that I've experienced as well. You know, people talk about people in my family even talk about events that we were at together. And I have a completely different understanding of, of what that was. And you know, the guides say we have to kind of put the puzzle pieces together. So when we move between dimensions, all material, all memories, anything that we created, it becomes transformed because it's going to exist in a, in a higher dimension, in a different speed of vibration. So that's why things become transposed, right? And, and all of a sudden we reveal things that we didn't know before. So it's an interesting anomaly that's, I think, hard to grasp for a lot of people. Um, I've even seen it happen in my own neighborhood, where I've literally from one day to another seen major structures move just a few feet away from where they were before. And I thought, am I going crazy? I know that wasn't there before. So we're going to notice a lot of that stuff as we go into the fifth dimension. We were talking about whether we can manifest a 12th dimension in, in the world we live in today. And I think um, the important distinction there, as we've talked in channel revelation shows with the guides, is the 12th dimension, well, really from the 7th dimension onward, is less and less ego. So by the time you get to the 12th dimension, you have a collective consciousness that exists on the planet. Of course, all the dimensions are existing on Earth right now, so it's not a matter of creating a 12th dimension. Um, and as you said, you could be channeling a 12th dimensional collective right now into this third dimensional space, but you're not bringing the 12th dimension with you, right? You are connecting to it, bringing forth knowledge and wisdom into the third dimension to be used here 
with the tools we have available here. But it's not actually bringing the 12th dimension here. Because in order for us to have a 12th dimensional reality in this space, um, where the whole collective on the planet is walking in the 12th dimension, we would have to be in an ego-free environment, in an ego-free world where we're operating as a collective, where we're not striving for individual things. At which point we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be putting things on a vision board. We wouldn't be trying to get that perfect relationship or that perfect car or that perfect amount of money or whatever, because those are all ego-driven pursuits. They're all things that you are trying to get for you. Whereas in a collective consciousness, the, that perception does not exist. So simply the, the idea or the question of bringing the 12th dimension down to the third dimension is an invalid question in itself because it's not possible to do. You can't asking that question, um, uh, would imply that, that we are existing in the same Consciousness, um, whereas it's a little bit different in the fifth dimension, we can actually bring the fifth dimension into the third dimension more so because ego still exists in the fifth dimension and sixth and a little bit in the seventh. And so we are where that's why we're able to make that leap to the fifth dimension and, and manifest fifth dimensional things here. But as you said before, you know, a lot of people attribute negative things to third dimension, understandably so, because we live in a world where there's hierarchies and people are suffering and struggling and a few people at the top own everything and control everything. Um, and we've been raised to believe in the spiritual community that that's what third dimension is. And so we want to get away from that because who wants that except for maybe the people who control everything. And, and even today, especially the last few years, we've seen that escalating and we're now heading into a future where it's a very dystopian future where those at the top control even more and everybody else suffers and struggles even more. And now I think it's important to distinguish that that's not third dimension. I mean, those are, that's what we created of the third dimension, of course, but we could be living in a third dimension that's very utopic, you know, so very physical, and still ego focused, but nonetheless a blissful place. Um, you know, a place where maybe we're a gardener or maybe we are raising children or whatever, but uh, all those physical things are things that we enjoy and where a hierarchy does not exist that, uh, that extracts, um, our, or siphons our power or our wealth or our monetary success, whatever that would look like in that reality. Um, and I believe in a third dimension that is more utopic, we might have indefinite lifespans, uh, or at least lifespans that would, uh, and health spans where we wouldn't have disease and suffering and hardship in that way. We would have vitality until the day we're here to leave. So, I think that's the one confusion about the third dimension is that the third dimension means suffering and misery. Uh, I don't think it has to be, and I don't think, and I think that's true what you said too, is that it, it doesn't have to be that. We just happen to have allowed it to become that. And, and maybe it's not our fault because we were sort of derailed by reptilian and Anunnaki collectives who came to earth and created the society 
where a few control the many, where everyone suffers except for those at the top who are probably suffering in their own way too. Um, but it never had to be like that. So in order to get to that next place, so I don't think making the leap from third to fifth dimension is practical. I'm a practical person. So uh, I look at things from that practical standpoint. And I think instead, we need to create a better third dimension on our way to the fifth dimension. Otherwise, we're just going to take the same dystopian things that we created in the third dimension into the fifth dimension. So we'll end up with a fifth dimension and maybe the difference will be we'll all perceive, you know, higher consciousness and maybe everyone will be a channel, you know, because as you said, the fifth dimension is a bridge to the other dimensions. So we may live in a fifth dimensional reality, maybe much like we live today, right? So there's so many people or the spiritual community as a whole, let's say, they believe in consciousness and channeling and hands-on healing and uh, all these things. And yet they're all suffering too. And they all pay their taxes and they all follow the rules. They respect the hierarchies. They vote for their politicians. So they may be accessing fifth dimension, but at the same time, dragging all these third dimensional concepts into that fifth dimension. So what will result is we will be living in a fifth dimension. At some point, there will be enough people who are tapping into the fifth dimension to where the whole collective consciousness has moved there. But we may now find ourselves in a fifth dimension where there's still taxes and there's still suffering and there's still people starving and there's still um, a hierarchy of people who control the world. But maybe in the mainstream news, they'll be talking about consciousness and channeling and and maybe the medical systems will have hands on healing. But you still have to go and pay for it. You know, you can go get energy healing at the at the hospital, but uh, but it's going to cost you a lot of money to do it. Right. Or you still have to pay your taxes, but maybe the taxes are used for more benevolent things than they were in third dimension. And I think that's where the disconnect is. We have to first start where we are and elevate the third dimension to a higher place. For example, not participating so much in these mainstream things that cause people hardship and suffering, you know, like paying taxes, voting for your politicians and expecting they're going to save us all when they're the ones causing all the problems in the first place. Um, you know, sort of removing ourselves from those fear-based control systems and making better choices in our lives and moving toward things that make us happier, having better relationships and things like that. And then we can take that with us to the fifth dimension because we can right now have uh, a very utopia, um, utopic sort of world that we live in, in that third dimension, in which case nobody would want to leave it. You know, I think if we could have created a third dimension differently, we wouldn't be in such a hurry to get to the fifth, especially now, of course, obviously mainstream society, they don't have these conversations, but, but in the spiritual community, everybody's talking about getting to the fifth dimension. We're all in a hurry to get there, right? But imagine if we had created a third dimension that was in its most optimal state. I don't think anybody would want to leave the third dimension to go to the fifth because everything would be great here. And I think that's the misconception is that 
third dimension equals suffering and hardship and control and, you know, taxes and money and these things. Uh, we just allowed it to become that. And so we on an individual basis, that doesn't mean that I think we should make picket sign and stand on the corner or show up at the White House and or, you know, politicians, um, uh, places where they hide and, and protest these things. Uh, I think on an individual basis, we have to make better choices that move us toward a more empowered third dimensional reality. Yeah, a lot of people, and for as long as I've been following the spiritual community, everybody's been talking about free energy and, uh, you know, advanced technologies for healing and med beds, and none of that can exist in, in the third dimension in which we live currently. And, but they could exist. And I think, you know, much like um, we were talking earlier about how when Edgar Casey was channeling, nobody knew what channeling was. It was this revolutionary thing and he was this anomaly. And, but, but the fact that he pushed the boundaries or pushed the envelope of that reality in our collective consciousness, it caused a future that we're living in now where so many people are channels. Now, maybe they're not all as good as he was as a channel, but nonetheless, that idea has proliferated into society to where there are a lot of good channels out there and the concept is mainstream or at least becoming more mainstream. And I think in a similar way, we have to do that with things like free energy. Free energy was possible a long time ago. I mean, Edgar, I mean, Edgar Casey, but uh, Nikola Tesla was had developed free energy technology back then, but it could not come into society because our consciousness as a collective doesn't support it. And we have to move the consciousness to that point so that other people out there who are working on these technologies will be able to bring those ideas to market. And that is something that on an individual basis, we have to keep pushing the, the limits of the boundaries of the reality that we live in today. For each person, that may be different. Maybe for one person, it is, um, you know, you don't pay your taxes or you don't get health insurance because, well, the reality is that if you're meant to suffer or struggle with a particular health issue, it's going to happen anyway. It doesn't matter whether you have health insurance. And and in the end, if you're meant to have a financial difficulty because you can't afford your health issues, then that'll still happen even with health insurance. Um, maybe the insurance company won't pay for whatever it is you're going through. So you can't avoid your experience by out of fear choosing a path. Same as paying taxes. You can't uh, expect that by paying your taxes out of fear that you get in trouble if you don't, that that's going to avoid the consequences. You know, in these years ahead, for as, as an example, the government is spending so much money that pretty soon they're not going to be able to afford the debt payments on the money that they're that they're printing or borrowing from the Federal Reserve, which means that they're going to have to, at least one of the things they'll do is, is to try to extract more money from people through taxes. So what happens when everybody who has been paying their taxes and being good citizens and suddenly the IRS or whatever tax agency in your country wants more? Um, what are people going to do in that reality? Are they going to continue to pay into that? 
So these are the things that we have to start removing ourselves from because just staying in it out of the security of feeling like out of fear we're going and supporting, we're going along with and supporting these ideas that they won't challenge us if it's a challenge we're meant to experience. Uh, that's not, it doesn't really work like that. So we might as well move towards something that's empowering that is, um, uh, that's going to be more fulfilling for us. And if we're developing a free energy technology to bring that, uh, idea to fruition and maybe, maybe all that will happen from it is you create something for yourself. Like I, I've been watching this, um, uh, YouTube channel lately of this guy. I think he's in Russia. I don't know, but. He does some very simple, rudimentary free energy technology demonstrations. And all he does is he lights light bulbs with these devices that he just collects, collects a bunch of junk and he puts his junk together using magnetic fields and coils and he lights a light bulb up. And it's something anybody can do in 15 minutes, uh, just with ordinary inexpensive parts. And it's a simple rudimentary exercise that has very little practical purpose because you can't exactly power a house with it. But that simple little idea being brought into the collective consciousness that you can use magnetic fields and coils to light a light bulb. Now, imagine if every light bulb in your house was powered that way. Maybe it's not powering your entire house, but that's a revolutionary idea to be able to um, never have a power failure where you are without lights because you can create these simple things that are not going to put the power companies out of business. But much like Edgar Casey in a time when channeling was a novel idea, brought that into the collective consciousness. This one individual doing this simple little thing is bringing that idea into the collective consciousness. And in those small ways, we can stretch the boundaries of what the third dimension is capable of producing. And we could live in a third dimensional reality today. You know, free energy does not have to be fifth dimensional. We could, we have the technology today. I mean, Nikola Tesla was working on free energy. So free energy is not necessarily fifth dimensional. We can produce that. And, and I think we have to do that in small ways. And in the same way, in every way that we live our lives, we have to start living and moving toward a more self-empowered, um, uh, decentralized way, you know, where we don't, uh, we're not affected by the um, hierarchies in our society or the politicians or world leaders who control everything, who determine whether the economy is good or bad, uh, or even we're just talking about um, daylight savings time, right? How, in the United States, uh, politicians decided that there are rudimentary times that uh, of year where we need to adjust our clocks so there's more daylight, which is really to benefit them so that humanity produces more. But it's not necessarily for the good of humanity itself. <laughs> uh, and so the little ideas like yeah. this, we have to start pushing beyond the boundaries of so that we can create a third dimension that we all want to live in and don't want to leave. And then as we move into the fifth, uh, and I think actually if we could get to that place in a third dimension where it is a utopia that we don't want to leave, and I think that would be where the collective consciousness as a whole could easily make a leap to a fifth dimension that we also don't want to leave. But the difference being 
we may go from a third dimension that's a utopia with free energy and where people are happy and fulfilled and living very physical lives to a fifth dimension with all the same stuff, but where we're now talking about things like timelines and, and um, density and and uh, multidimensionality and channeling and, and things of that nature or even vibrational healing. Um, so that's where I think we have to move ourselves toward in order to get to a better future, whether it's third or fifth dimensional. I think the most important consideration as we move from the third to the fifth dimension, or if we just want to improve the third dimension we live in today, is that we have to use our consciousness and our physical decisions symbiotically. We have to move in the same direction. You know, we can't have any contradiction there because the fifth dimension is really more about using our energy and our in our consciousness where the third dimension is those material, concrete, physical creations. And I notice a lot of people very aware, you know, of things that are not good for them, whether it's something that goes in the physical body, like a vaccine or a toxin or something in, you know, our environment that we may choose as an activity, um, saying they're going to transmute it through some energetic practice and do it anyway. And I and I think those are the things we really have to think about as spiritually conscious beings. If we want to move into the fifth dimension, we have to make sure that everything that we're doing, whether it's bodily decisions, monetary decisions, what we're creating for ourselves and our family are moving in the direction that we want. So that the container that we are creating in and that building that we're forming the girders on is very stable. Well, that's a good place to wrap it up for today. Thank you all for joining us for another Awaken Power podcast. We'll be back next week with another Channel Revelations. In the meantime, you can find us on many platforms, podcast platforms, as well as video channels like Rumble. So we'll see you next week. So, Rama, don't we have the second one now, right now? Did, or did We didn't we, play we it. We did both of them. Okay, we did both of them. All right. Yes. Oh my. All right. So this is what we are going to do next. It's called Manifest Blue Skies. Manifest Blue Sky Ideas. The common denominator for success is to see yourself as successful. This is, uh, this is, uh, George Nury, right. George Nury with um, Georgina Cannon. There we go. Mm -hmm. According to, we see ourselves the way we've been told to see ourselves. That's the preview. And then it says, according to Georgina Cannon, author and original founder of Canada's largest hypnosis school and clinic, The common denominator for success is to see yourself as successful. She uses neuro-linguistic programming to study modalities of success broken down into minute dimensions and coaches clients to become successful at everything in life. From her new book, Your Guide to Self-Discovery, Cannon invites experts spanning numerology to to corporate coaching to share their insights with George Nuri. She also discusses 
hiring by birth order, gratitude practices for strangers, huh? and techniques for changing karma. That sounds like a mouthful, everybody, and this is 40 minutes. Mm. So let's get started here. It's a little after 10. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. We've got a great guest for you. Georgina Cannon is an author, speaker, original founder of Canada's largest hypnosis school and clinic called the Ontario Hypnosis Center. And she is an NLP master. We'll talk about that in a moment. And recently published a new book called Your Guide to Self-Discovery. Georgina, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a delight to see you again. I've always loved your name because my mother is called Georgette. Ah. And that's pretty darn close. It is, yes. Where'd you get the name? I I think my parents were expecting a boy, so they were going to call me George. George. My best friend also calls me George, which confuses a lot of people. So, But when they saw that I was a girl, they changed it to Georgina, which is an old English name, as you know. And I've, I've enjoyed it. I like it. It's a great name. It's fitting for you. Thank you. Now, what is an NLP master? NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a process by which you use language to study the modalities of success and you break it down and you teach people how to use it in minute uh, dimensions so that you become successful at everything. The original founders of NLP studied people who were successful in everything, whether it be sports, biochemistry, science, and discovered what it was that made them successful how they thought, how they move, right. or, and that's what we take into the process and we teach other people how to do it, be successful at life. Did they find common denominators with these successful people? Yes, always. So common denominators is that you can imagine being successful. You can see yourself as a success. Let's give me an example. Just when, some, Let's say Jeff Bezos from Amazon. <laughs> what would they see in him? They might see that he's a planner. They might see that he understands the bigger picture, but not only the bigger picture, but he understands the method of how to get there. And they might take something that he has done from inception to where it is now and see the path that that's taken. So it's not just blue skying. It is innovating, creating and implementing how to get there. Do you teach people how to get there? Yes. Or do they already have that ability to do it on their own? Some people do, some people don't. That's what coaching is all about. So some people just blue sky and come up with great ideas, but don't know how to achieve them, or if in fact they're practical. So we discuss it and we say, well, what's the solution after next? So you've achieved that. How does that look? How does it feel? How does it manifest for you? And how does it manifest for the world and the people you want to impact with that idea? Does it make people a better person? It makes them a more understanding person. To whom? To themselves and to other people. Interesting. Yeah. Now, when you wrote the book, your latest book, mm-hmm. tell me about this. It suddenly dawned on me one day that we see ourselves the way we've been told to see ourselves, the way our parents have told us that we are 
or society or school or whatever, but we've never had a, a personal look at who we are. So I thought, well, that might be interesting because we go through life knowing that we're this or we're that or the other, that people have told us we are, sure. both through business and through school and through life. So I searched for experts that could use different modalities to explain how we can find out more about ourselves and ask them to write a chapter for their particular modality so that the reader could say, oh, I didn't know that about myself. And at the end of each chapter, there's a little questionnaire that says, what did you discover in this chapter? That's novel. And at the end of the book, they get to introduce themselves to the new self. So, And do they like the new self? Well, I think human nature being what it is, they will let go of the things they don't like <laughs> and discover sure. uh, understandings, new understandings. For instance, when I was talking to Kathy Beale about her chapter, and I said, how can you read hands on Zoom? Because you don't see people in, you know, she, she works with people around the world. She said, hold up your hand. And I held it up to the screen. Yeah. And she said, oh, boy, you're resilient. Oh, yeah, you could see. So I said, how can you tell that? She said, well, and she went, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, yes, I am resilient. I didn't realize that that's what it was that kept me going. So now I know I'm resilient. I can sit we a little We have a taller. palm reader who comes on the radio show, Coast to Coast, and he does palm reading by Zoom he, the same, same way. Thing. Holding up your hand. and Yeah. We've got a picture of the cover of your book. Let's take a look at it. Okay, And great. tell us what we're looking at here. Well, as you can see, butterflies change, and the flower is bl- blossom, blossoming. Your guide to self-discovery and twenty ways to find the true you. So it's about you, who you are. And by the way, these are my favorite colors. And the designers at Llewellyn didn't know that, but when they designed the cover, I was thrilled because yellow and blue. My whole home is <laughs> have a lot of color in it, mostly yellow and blue. So that's what that. Um, really looks like, and that's what it stands for. Some people, Georgina, self-discover and decide, I don't like who I am. If they do, it's a perfect opportunity to change, because until you know what you're dealing with, you can't make change. So if you don't like who you are because you're a procrastinator, or you don't like who you are because you shoot yourself in the foot all the time, you get going, but you don't quite complete anything, and you suddenly say, You know, I don't like that about myself. That's when you say, oh, what can I do about that? And hopefully you find someone who's a coach, counselor, hypnotist, regression therapist, who can help you. That's what you do. That's what I do. Find the new way of becoming who you would like to be. And not only that, but you can envision what it is that you would like to be, what it looks like, how it affects the others around you, how it will affect your life when you make that change. How soon do you see the changes? Sometimes within two sessions. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Depends on how radical the change has to be. Because the thing about change is that sometimes we lose the friends we've carried with us because of the way we are. Things happen. And things happen. And when we change, we become stronger in ourselves and we know who we are. When you know who you are, you develop boundaries. And so sometimes the people who cross your boundaries don't want to be part of your friendship circle anymore. What experts contributed to your new book? 
What type of people? Oh, there's a whole pile of them. There's Kathy Beale. There's Beryl Coma, who lives in Spain. Tell me what each one does. Oh, I wish I could remember. I need the list in front of me because there's uh, tw- uh, 18 of them because I wrote three chapters. There's 18 of them. So Leanne McAleer writes about creativity and innovation. Did you seek them out? Yes. Yes. First of all, I looked for experts that knew what they were talking about and had written books because I wanted people who could write in a way that was engaging. Sure. Okay, there's no point in writing if it flows above your head or whatever. I want people to engage the reader. And then I went and asked them if they would add to this book and the concept. Do they like the concept? If they like the concept, please come join us. So we have numerology. We have uh, birth order, which I'm a great believer in. We have uh, uh, family dynamics. We have SWOT, which is strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities and threats. We have... So you run the full gamut. Sorry? You run the gamut. It's a whole gamut. Yeah. Interesting. Now, one of those experts, Leanne McAleer. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Shares her discovery on how to develop her true self through your creative superpowers. That's right. I would like to help reframe how we think about creativity. The research would show that creativity shows up actually best in creative problem solving. How we approach creatively the challenges we face. And the research would say that there are four stages in creative problem solving. Those stages are um, the definer. And the definer is that person, their creative superpower, if you will, is they are incredible questioners. They work to clarify the issue or opportunity or challenge that they are facing. And they ask the best, most interesting questions to do so. And once that's done, the next stage is uh for the dazzler. And that's the person who is the idea machine. You know this person. They're the one who come up with ideas. They they are relentless in their ideation. They just have a million ideas. They're the dazzler. And that's at a really important step in the process, but it's not the end. Having a lot of ideas doesn't get you to a solution or a solution that works. What does are the next two phases, which are uh, you take the idea, you decide on the one you want to move forward, and the designer takes it over. And the designer is the one who takes the idea and brings it to life. They design it so that it has effect and impact. And then finally, there's the creative driver. And the creative driver in the um, creative problem-solving process is the one who makes it happen. Any creative solution is the result of these four creative preferences, these four creative superpowers, if you will, and in the creative problem-solving process. The chapter, What is Your Creative Superpower?, will explore this topic. Uh, We will work together to help define and identify your creative superpower, and you will also uh, be better able to recognize other people's superpower. She knows what she's talking about. She absolutely knows what she's talking about. She's also head of innovation at York University in Toronto. That's impressive. Yes, it is. And and the other thing is it gets 
this discussion that she has here and in the book helps people understand that everyone is creative. What kind of criteria, Georgina, did you use to seek out these experts? I wanted them to be able to explain what they do in people language. I didn't want it to be academic. I didn't want it scientific. I wanted it to be able to touch the heart as well as the mind so that people could feel safe exploring themselves. Because sometimes when you explore yourself, as as you know, I'm sure you've done it because the work you do, you must have. It's it's challenging and a little scary from time to time. You don't know what you're going to find. So they wanted people to come across as kind, understanding and accessible but also impart a knowledge and, an, and a, a deep, experienced way of writing that people could find useful in their life. Interesting. Yeah. What is birth order? What is that? I love this. I used When I ran a large organization, I used to hire on birth order. Birth order. Really? Yes, really. Birth order is where you are in the hierarchy of are you are the eldest, the middle or the youngest child. In your family. Yes. That's, that's all? Birth, that's birth order, yes. So I was the first. You were the first. Well, yes. you're the pioneer. See, first, first order, firstborn children usually are entrepreneurs, CEOs, the people that break new ground. Because, yeah. Because not only do you learn to lead the way, you also have parents who are learning how to be parents. By the time the middle child comes along, the atmosphere is very different. Big time. Big time. And the second child is then the youngest until the third comes along. And then the baby is the one that is usually the charmer. By the way, most entertainers, comedians, performers are babies of the family. Not all, of course, right? but most. So when I was hiring... If I needed someone to do client service work, if I had two people that were exactly the same for credibility, experience, etc., and I wanted them to do client service work, I'd choose the baby of the family. Really? Really. That's fascinating. If I wanted someone to build business, I'd choose the firstborn. Yeah. Everything else being equal. Is the poor second person... They're very good negotiator. Most politicians are middle children. Most successful politicians are middle children. Well, I look at my family. I was number one. I have a sister who was number two. And then I had a third sister who has passed on who was number three. And? And they all fit. I think we all fit the categories you just described. Right. Right. It's uncanny. I would say that 90% of the time it works. Yeah. And the number two person... She's on social media all the time, mm-hmm. even at her age now, directing people and doing this and exactly. doing that. Exactly. Mediators, very who, good who mediators. Who teaches them this? Hmm? Who teaches them this? They learn how to manage, how to be the middle, how to to be under the top and, and uh, work with that baby. The baby, by the way, also sometimes you'll find that the youngest child always needs rescuing. They are they if they're in trouble, they wait for someone else to rescue them. Whereas the oldest child, if they're in trouble, usually they find a way out themselves. We do it ourselves. That's right. We don't like to ask for help. You find that to be the case, too. right? Yes. 
I look at numerology and I look at astrology as well. So number eight is a starter, someone who can be overpowering if you're not careful, which I know that about myself because that's part of it. Is that you? Yeah, part of being an Aries. How does astrology play into self-discovery? It helps you understand your strengths and weaknesses. It helps you understand not only your strengths and weaknesses, but where to put your energies. So if you've been putting your energies into life and it hasn't been working, maybe that's the wrong path for you. And astrology can help you sort through that. It's not the definitive answer because we always have choice. I mean, let's be real about this. No, there's no one way of doing it. There's free will here. Right. Yeah, well, that's right. That's free will. Yeah. Now we talked about palmistry. Mm-hmm. Kathy Beale, Lisa Greenfield explained the harnessing power of astrology. Yes. And palmistry. Yes. The astrology chapter in your guide to self-discovery is designed to give you an outsider's view or maybe some more objectivity into your sun sign and your rising sign if you know that. It helps you understand your basic inclinations, the default behaviors that you gravitate toward, and also the challenges that you may experience as a result of your wiring. And one aspect of it that's really different for a book of this nature is it helps you see how you are perceived, how others see you, not in a judgmental way, but to give you an understanding of why people respond to you the way they do. I loved sharing about the heart line in the book, although it was really hard to decide. I went with the fact that the heart line is the top line on your hand for a reason. Now, granted, I mean, there's so much information in your hands, even where your fingers sit, right? And all of this is formed by what we think feel and act. So as you think, feel and act in new ways, it literally changes the shape of your hands and those lines on them. But the heart, that's the place where it has the electromagnetic field that it magnetizes in, I think something like 5,000 times more than our thoughts do. So that's why it's the top line on the hand which is where if we understand how to align with that, we can literally magnetize in opportunities. So why not start there, right? All right. Thanks for the opportunity to share. And by all means, go see what's on hand. Georgina, what's the importance and how do we align with the heart? If you don't align with the heart, you're always slightly out of step with yourself. Yeah. You know, some people just say, I can't seem to get traction in my life. I can't seem can't to get going. Can't, can't get, get going. going. And and when I do get going, I, I keep slipping back. It's like two steps forward and one step back. And I'm not sure why. It's because they're not in alignment with, with who they truly are and understanding who they are and where their strengths and weaknesses are. And they don't understand really what their possibilities are. Maybe because they've been brought up when they were young to always think that they're a failure or they're never any good or maybe they just had a tough early life and it has become like subtle self-talk that they don't recognize so that's where hypnosis and regression helps but when you work through 
these other modalities, they can then say to themselves, I've got possibilities here. That's what I loved about this concept. It shows the reader they have possibilities to change and become more than they know they thought they were. The great American prophet Edgar Cayce uh, could read auras of people, yes. different colors yes. and different things. And one day he was getting on an elevator on a 10th, 20th floor of a building. The door opened and he saw several people in there without any auras at all. It scared the living daylights out of him. He did not go in the elevator. He backed out. The door closed. The elevator Cable snapped, <laughs> and all these people fell to their death. <gasps> By not seeing the aura, he, he realized something was wrong. That's right. That's wow. right. Yeah. Now, auras have colors, don't they? Yes, they do. And today, by the way, if if we didn't see auras, we'd wonder if it was people from another planet. Really? Yes. Or from another dimension. Because how we see auras is in the electromagnetic energy that we emit on this planet at this time in this environment. But people who come from other planets and other dimensions have a different energy frequency. So they don't necessarily have the same auras. How do our past lives fit into this? Our past lives show us what patterns we brought into this lifetime. People call it karma. And the thing I love about karma is people blame karma for everything. What goes around comes <laughs> that's, around. That's right. But that's true. Sort of, kind of. I think. Yeah. Except I believe that once you understand what you brought in with you, if you don't like it, you can change it. I'll give you an example about sure. karma. I find it very difficult to walk past a homeless person without giving them some amount of money. Sure. Not a lot. Five, ten, twenty dollars. Right. But I can't walk past them and not help them. Right. It's just me. Right. Now, I do it from the heart. Right. I don't do it for any gain or right. any recognition. Right. I don't even want them to thank me. Right. I just do it. Right. But it seems like every time I do something like that, something happens and it comes back to me 10 or 20 fold. I gave a $20 uh, several years ago to a homeless guy, went to my P.O. box and there was a check for $1,500 from my insurance company that I didn't expect. Very nice. How does that happen? I think it happens because what we put out there gets magnified, good or bad. Who does it? Are we doing it or is there something else? There's something else. It's an energy. It's a, it's a, a momentum. Is it God? If you believe in God, the creator. It's a, an energy of intention. I do something very similar, but it's different. I do, I drop quarters. Where do you drop them? Everywhere, in a parking lot. You just drop them? I drop them because I, what I want is for someone to say, oh, look, I found a dime. Do, oh, you, look. do you hide and see who's going to pick no, no, them no, up? No, 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 that's, none of my, that's not my business. I just drop them. Because I want someone to feel that that's their lucky day. I would probably pick up a quarter. Of course. Would you pick up a penny? Of course. Only because it's there. Because it's there and because it it's a symbol of, look what I found. It's, it must be a lucky day. So I do the same that way as you do the same. But I 
what comes back, I think, is just a blessing of how we live our life. The fact that you see a homeless person and want to give them from your heart, you're not doing it with intent to get something back. No. You're doing it because you feel it's the right thing to do and you feel empathy for that person. And if you feel empathy for that person, that spreads the light, if you want to call it that. And it comes back to you in other ways. There was a homeless person who had a sign, please, I need food and water. And my producer felt so bad for him. He went and got him food and water and gave it to him. And the guy said, you cheapskate, I want money. It doesn't work all the time. Yeah, well, I understand why he did that. He wanted choice. Well, don't hold up the sign that says, give me food and money. Yeah, yeah, it's communication issue. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll, I'll go coach him. <laughs> communication issue. Are dreams part of this? Yes, dreams are a part of it. We project sometimes our fears, our wants and needs, our wishes into the subconscious mind. And that's how we get that information through dreams. Sometimes the dreams are a manifestation of what is being unsaid when we're awake. What about recurring dreams? That just oh, happened that's, over that's a, and over. like a hello, hello, uh, you're not paying attention to me here. Listen to this. Before something happens? Before something happens or before we need to know something or before. They're not, it's not always bad news. Sometimes it's just information we need to know. Well, you know Kelly Sullivan Walden. Yes, I do. Expert about telling readers about dreams, and she talks about that. Yeah, she's in the book, yes. Hello, George and Georgina. It's Kelly Sullivan Walden, a.k.a. Dr. Dream, and I am so honored to be one of the authors featured in Georgina's latest book, Your Guide to Self-Discovery. 65 to 75% of adults report having recurring dreams, and most of those people report not knowing what to do with those dreams. That's why in chapter three of this book, I write about my best practices and best recommendations for how to resolve recurring dreams. I share about my fear formula. This is a formula for how to become transformed by your recurring dream and or recurring nightmare. So by doing the fear formula, you learn to face it, embrace it, ace it, and replace it. Anything that's happening in the dream, you learn to turn this nightmare into a rightmare. And in the process of doing this, you discover a hidden superpower you didn't know you had. And you also come to realize that every single dream you have comes to you in the service of your health, your healing, and your wholeness. Sweet dreams. Kelly's got her act together with recurring dreams, doesn't she? That's why she's so wonderful when what she writes, because she helps explain what we can learn from our dreams. She helps explain how it can make us better understand ourselves and grow and flourish, particularly around nightmares, because people get scared about nightmares. Big time. And she helps helps us understand in a very pragmatic way that it's not the end, it's the beginning of learning and understanding and growth. And that's what I love about her. Do you have to be a believer for any of this to work? When I'm asked that question, I say, do the work and then tell me if you believe it or not, because you'll notice the change. Big time. Yeah. Back to karma for a moment, Georgina. Yes. What do you think of it? I think it's it's a bit like 
being a mother, everybody blames karma for everything, right? People blame their mother for everything. But what happens with karma is when you bring something into this life, it teaches you, once you, if you're listening to it, what you can make change and how you can make change to make your life richer and better. So I came into this current life as a victim. I'd had many lives as a victim, and my early life was not very pleasant. But at one point, I had to decide, am I going to stay a victim or be a hero? And once you understand the pattern or the karma you've brought in, then you can choose your life and how to make change and how to make it richer, fuller, and more beneficial generally. Do you teach this in your self-discovery book? I do indeed. Yes. Should parents use this for their kids? Kids understand this more than adults do. Why? Because they're... Wow. They haven't lost their connection to spirituality, especially early teens. I find early teens really understand there is more than what they're taught in school. There's more than what their parents have told them. There's more out there that they have yet to discover about themselves. And that's why we get so much pushback quite often. They don't know why they're pushing back, but they know they're pushing back for a reason. And this book certainly will help them. What are some of the techniques that you would recommend to people to change their karma, to change their life? A past life regression. First of all, then you would learn the patterns that you brought in with you. Know what your numbers are. Know what your creativity is so that you understand where your ideas come from and how you might use them best. And those ideas can come be in the kitchen, they can be in the artist studio, or they can be in business. Being creative isn't restricted to anyone. It's genre. wide open. It's, it? it's wide open to life, right? There are others. Face reading. Face reading tells you a lot about person. That's it. That's also a chapter in the book. That would be an intriguing segment, face reading. You can tell somebody's mood, their character. Character. A lot of things. By the placement of their eyes, placement of their eyebrows. The way they look, smile. The way they smile, placement of their bone structure. Yeah, not all of it is genetic. What is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? You call SWAT. SWAT. It's used a lot in corporate language for people to find out what their corporate strengths are and weaknesses are. Sometimes when people go for interviews for um, uh, senior jobs, they're given uh, a test to, for their strengths, weaknesses. But you can use it for yourself because once you understand what your weaknesses are, then you can find out more about your strengths as well. And you can put more energy towards your strengths, sure. and not so much focus on your weaknesses. You know, when people say, oh, I wish I could sing, I, I keep trying to sing, or I wish I was musical, instead of worrying about that. Just how do about, it. Not either do it, but what about what you're good at? How about if you're good at dancing or you're good at something else like painting, then why not put all your energies into what you're good at? See, I'm convinced you can be good at anything you apply yourself to. You can be good, but not necessarily brilliant at it, I would say to you. Depends on who you are. Depends on your natural talent. Yeah. You know, some people are born being able to play the piano, although there's no musician in the family. I couldn't play the clarinet in high school if I wanted to. And now? But I could sing. They, 
Do you still sing? Absolutely. Live shows. I love it. It's like fun. It's a hobby. Oh, that's fantastic. Put a clarinet in my hand or a guitar and say, strum it and play it. I couldn't do that. But you've got an ear for voice. But I have an ear for voice. Oh, that's fantastic. What a gift that is. Now, next time around, I want that gift. That's a gift. So what do you sing? What sort of music do you sing? Old stuff. Elvis Presley, Sinatra. Oh, Sinatra. Tony Bennett. I left my heart in San Francisco. Yes. Could you give us a little song? There's no music here. We can get it. (laughs) You have to come to my live shows. I'd love that. That would be great. But anyway, let's talk about Kim Coughlin. Yes. Who is Kim Coughlin? Kim is a corporate coach, and she shines with positive energy and creativity and kindness and a a sense of direction. She's the sort of person that can see the leaf on the branch of the tree and helps you get there. She's an expert on the theory of SWAT. Let's take a look at her. The SWOT analysis, when applied to a personal goal, is a powerful way to foster self-reflection, to set intentionality, and to drive action towards a goal of your choosing, whether it be a career or a health goal. You can use the SWOT analysis to really accelerate your understanding of how to achieve the goal and what actions are best taken. SWOT is an acronym. It stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. For example, what strengths do you have attached to your goal? What weaknesses or areas or traits that are holding you back from achieving that goal? What are some opportunities that are out there to achieve your dreams? And what are some threats that might be holding you back from accelerating towards this goal? My name is Kim Coughlin, and if you want to find out more, check out Chapter 16, How to SWAT Your Personal Goals to Success. I've laid out questions in an easy-to-follow way to prompt you so that you can really analyze your goals faster and easier and really understand how you want to get to where you want to go. You really have some great experts in this book. Oh, they are amazing. Great job. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't only want... Brains. I wanted heart too, and you can see. And you can tell there's a lot of heart yeah, behind these people. It's so important. What results have you seen that people change? Where you went, they well, were difficult in the beginning, and then toward the end, they were pretty remarkable. I've seen some remarkable change. I've been working in the clinic, hypnosis clinic, for over 23 years now, and. As well as doing hypnosis and NLP, I also coach and, and teach. And I've seen, particularly in classes when I teach, people come in because they practice in the class and the manifestation of the lessons they learn changes lives. They find more self-confidence. They understand how to set goals that they can achieve. They understand how to manage their anger or irritation or let go of it. And they understand that A big learning I find with people is they expect people to understand and appreciate them. So how about you understanding and appreciate the other person and let them be where they are? Have you seen people, Georgina, get very emotional with all of this? All the time. 
They break down. They cry all the time. In fact, uh, for any session I do online, I say make sure you have a box of Kleenex with you because the uh, what I'm looking for is the aha in the eyes. Because a lot of times it's just the questions I ask. They suddenly, oh, oh, now I understand. And then, yeah, we do it at events. It's beautiful. Live events, four of them every year. And one of the first things we do is we pay tribute to our first responders and our military, oh, past yes. and present. Oh, yeah. And we have a band there playing when Johnny comes marching home, and it's just pretty dramatic. Yes. But I break up yes. almost all the time we do it. I'm on stage almost in tears, yes. standing in front of all these people like a little baby. It shows your heart. Is that what that is? It shows your heart but and, and your soul, not just your heart, but it shows your soul that you are feeling gratitude, immense gratitude and understanding of what they went through and what they stand for. Yes, that's what that is. And I ask them to stand if they can. Mm-hmm. Let, let me rephrase what I meant by that. Yeah. I was in Norfolk, Virginia a couple of years ago at a live event and I had an opening skit in front of these military people where with a blanket, I can make my leg disappear and come back. It's an amazing illusion. Yes. And I'm ready to do this on stage. There's 400 people in the theater. And I look in the front row. It's got all these veterans without legs who had lost them in their action, mm-hmm. Vietnam primarily, maybe Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do the thing. No, no. I couldn't do it. It would have been inappropriate. Yes. Yes. Thank it's God I realized that yeah. at that time. You realized it because it comes from here. You weren't acting from here. You realized it because of your empathy. It's the heart that stopped me. Yes, right. How do people evaluate where they're headed? Or do they have to go to someone like you for the advice? They first of all need to know they want help. They have to realize that. They themselves. have to realize they want help. And they have to realize that it takes courage. And I always acknowledge the courage that takes uh, to change. Because we move at the speed of pain until that pain gets unbearable. unbearable. Then we put up with stuff. When we can't put up with stuff anymore, whether it be our own stuff or stuff around us, then we help seek help. Whether it be help of leaving a, a partnership in business, a partnership, a marriage, a relationship, a relationship, sure. or help with friendships or help with self. If the pain is unbearable, then we seek change because change isn't easy, but it takes determination. It takes commitment. Guts. Guts, for sure guts, because we're moving from what we know, as painful as it is, to the unknown. And that's why hypnosis helps, because we can do what we call future pacing, which you can imagine what your life will be like. Does somebody remember under hypnosis what they've just told you? Yes. Oh, totally. They do remember that. Oh, remember everything. So it's not like you have to play a tape back for them. No, 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 no. People, sometimes people are concerned what's going to happen in hypnosis. They think they're going to levitate or they're going to bark like a dog or quack like a duck or something. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, not at all. They're in control all the time. 
And should they wish to, they can bring themselves out of hypnosis. The old TV shows where the hypnotists would make people do that, quack like a duck and I stuff. Know. Was that real? It's real. But remember, the client, the person in hypnosis is always in control. And when you're watching a stage show, everybody that's up on stage is a volunteer. So they went up there to have fun. Right. So that's what they're having is fun. And they could leave at any time. How do people find you? They find me on Zoom. They find me on Google. Through your name? Georgina Cannon at GeorginaCannon.com. Okay. Or they can find me on Facebook. And your book's available all over the place? My book's available all over the place. And, of course, Amazon. All four of them. You do a great job for humanity, Georgina. Keep it up. Bless your wonderful heart. You too, George. Georgina, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Oh, it's been a delight. And thank you from the heart. Thank you. Well, you show a lot of empathy for a lot of people. And it's no wonder you're good at what you do. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. That was wonderful. (laughs) So Rama's got something. He found something from William Henry, right, Rama? Yeah. So we've got to hear from you. What's it called? And um, Ascension class. William Henry Inanna. Yes, you Mary Magdalene. Common sentient sacred stories. And how many minutes is this? Twenty-two time? minutes. Twenty-two minutes. Well, that sounds like a lot to go through in twenty-two minutes. Here we go. Okay, welcome back. Well, guys, you are in for a treat this time because we have William Henry, who is the author of Ascension, Divine Stories of Awakening the Whole and Holy Being Within. And I'm sure you all know who William Henry is, but in case you don't, I'll give you a little bit of information about William. So William Henry is the author of Ascension. He's also an Ascension scholar. He's an author of many best-selling books. He's an investigative mythologist, art historian. He's actually a sacred year instructor, and he's a TV presenter. He's an internationally recognized authority also on human spiritual potential, transformation, and ascension. And William's work has propelled him into the role of a human rights activist and advisor on the biopolitics of human enhancement as he informs audiences of the unparalleled perils and potentials of artificial intelligence and transhumanism. And I just want to say that in this book, actually, William does write a chapter on the perils of transhumanism and the importance of us ascending through our own divine nature. Um, and William, I know I've said this before, but I just want to say publicly, thank you. Thank you so much for writing that chapter. Thank you so much for being an advocate for our ascension through our divine means and not through technological means. Well, thank you, Ariel, very much. Yeah, we're in such a an amazing moment in human history right now. It's maybe the most critical moment, maybe in all of human history that we're we're participating in right now. And 
Some worry that there's a bifurcation coming that we're, some of us are going to go down a digital path and merge with AI and leave our physical bodies behind to, to live in a simulated reality. And others say, no, that's not what we were created to do. We're, it's all about organic ascension and awakening the divine within. And of course, I'm in, in that camp, we're certain. Absolutely. Well, I'm in the camp with you. And that's why I think this is such an important conversation. And I'm so glad we're having it today. So let's give a little bit of context. Um, so tell everybody your definition of what ascension really is. What are we talking about? Well, I can say to right off the bat what ascension is really not, in my view, and it's not a one-time event. It is not something that one or two or maybe a handful of humans ever achieved. It's a it's an ongoing process that is at the heart of all the world's religious and spiritual traditions. It's the ultimate esoteric secret. And what it has to do with is transformation. A spiritual term is transfiguration, a change in form. It's a, it's a process where by similarly to the way a caterpillar morphs into a butterfly, our body morphs into a higher light body form. And that is the ultimate ascension is our transformation into a being of light and angelic type of existence. But the ascension process is very much an earthly process. It's something we do while we're living in the body, utilizing its its secret aspects, what it was designed to do. And the aim in our earthly life is to become more whole, more holy, more complete. Uh, the Tibetans define this perfection that they describe as becoming more compassionate. So these are all terms that are synonymous with the process of ascension, wholeness, holiness, perfection, compassion. And what's so incredible about your book is one that you really explain that in a way that not only helps us understand, but has us see that it's attainable for everyone, that this isn't this where one day somebody's just going to wake up and turn into a crystalline light body and leave the planet. That's not really what ascension is and what what we're talking about, right? But it is work. It is a process. It is an evolution of consciousness. It is. This is why I think it appeals to many spiritual questers as well, because they recognize you can't just open your mouth and let the roast duck fly in. That's that's faith, really. And there's nothing wrong with faith. But as the James, the brother of Jesus, said, faith without works is dead. And, and the work is all of, always about becoming more whole and more holy. So many people kind of understand that or intuit that or come to that recognition once they get on their spiritual path that, hey, this isn't going to just happen to me. That That's called rapture in the Christian tradition, which is a spontaneous event. And it might well be possible, could well happen. But others of us recognize that that our, our ascension is really a path, that there there is work to be done, spiritual work to be done, even alchemical work within us. And again, that's appealing because it gives us a sense of perhaps control of, over our own destiny. We can commit to this path and start taking, making new steps, making new decisions, taking uh, different actions than in the past that ultimately lead to this greater place of awareness or a higher frequency, if you will. And I think that is really what certainly what appealed to me and what also appeals to many people on this path. It appeals to me. And um, 
what appeals to me also in your book, which I think is it, it can't be understated, and I'm so happy that we're going to talk about it today, is you have an entire ascension timeline from Sumeria literally to modern day, and you discuss many figures throughout history who have been on their ascension path and who have um, achieved their light body or their rainbow light body, and you talk about that in great detail. Um we're going to talk about four figures today and I'm going to, I'm going to mention them and then ask you to share. And, and the first one is probably everybody can guess, probably one of the most famous figures in history to ascend that we believe is Jesus. Can you right. talk a bit about Jesus, please? Yeah. Um, again, when people think about ascension, they, they think it's strictly a Christian concept. Uh, after the resurrection, several of uh, these men clad in white uh, linen garments gathered together and Jesus ascended in a cloud with a promise to return and at the second coming. And, and that is the, the concept of ascension in many people's minds. And as you mentioned, one reason I wrote the book is to to point out that ascension was a, a, a spiritual topic and a discipline thousands of years before Jesus and the uh, Essene mystics that brought him to the world came along. As you mentioned, going back to ancient Samaria from the very beginning, the oldest human creation stories, the oldest human story, in fact, is about Inanna's ascension. And the Sumerian stories make very clear that perhaps there was a, a, a tinkering of our DNA or a tweaking of our DNA by otherworldly beings. They are also explicit that this had to do with ascension. The Egyptians said the same thing, that our body was perfected by the gods to make it a more conducive vehicle for the ascension of the soul. So for several thousand years before the Christian movement came along, we had humans that had been ascending. Ezekiel, Enoch come to mind in the Old Testament. Inanna, as I mentioned, in the Sumerian tradition. The Egyptians tell stories of multiple mortal humans who ascended, who attained saintlyhood or even what we would think of as angelification, human transformation into an angel. So that when Jesus came along, there was a framework for this. There was an understanding about this in the mystery schools of Egypt, of Iran, of Iraq, uh, of elsewhere, especially in the Middle Eastern world, but also all around the world. Otherwise, people wouldn't have understood the whole concept. And so when Jesus demonstrates this, he is demonstrating this vast ancient knowledge and putting into the equation the the acknowledgement that everyone can do this. And this, in fact, is the foundation of the Essene mystical order out of which Jesus emerged. The Dead Sea Scrolls are emphatic that, that they believe that humans could transform into angels while living. And that is hugely controversial to some in, in, in orthodox or traditional religious circles. They're like, oh, no, no, that's not possible. And But it is, according to the mystery schools. So what I wanted to bring forward was not only that timeline, but also examples of sometimes mortal, ordinary human beings who attained their ascension. And Jesus is not considered to be an ordinary human being, but he is, of course, the primary person that people think of when they think of the concept of ascension. But a, a mortal human, whom we consider to be mortal, who did ascend, is the Mother Mary. And, and she is considered the first Christian to ascend. 
She's immediately followed by Mary Magdalene, who was clearly also a mortal human being. She ascended from a cave in southern France. And so what we started to see, especially with the Christian movement, was a a long period of understanding that ascension was possible and then an acceleration with Christianity that it's, it's for everybody, that this is possible for all of us and even Mary Magdalene, who is presented as such a lowly figure in the traditional Christian world. She's a prostitute and these kinds of things. In the esoteric world, she's upheld as, or the mystical world, she's upheld as an, an exemplar. She became the chief apostle of Jesus. She was the one he, who he came to with his advanced knowledge of navigating the afterlife in the, in the ascended world. And so she's a a real prime person for us to, to whose story we must look into and understand for if, if we're on the ascension path. It's fascinating because people don't re, don't know this and they don't really think of really other than Jesus. Like you said, so you go back all the way to to Samaria, yeah. and you really you really point this very specific timeline out. And then now we're in the Christian era and somebody you speak about in the book, which is fascinating. And I didn't know this at all, who also ascended is St. Francis of Assisi. Can you speak to that? Yes. So let's just take a moment first to acknowledge that on our timeline, we're, we're starting in ancient Samaria 3000 years before the time of Jesus. Then we come to Jesus and then Francis is of, of Assisi is a 13th century figure. So now we've crossed over 6,000 years of human history where we're talking about the exact same thing in these various mystery schools or, or mystical schools. Francis lives in Italy. He's well, he's raised by wealthy parents, but he gets a calling to, to rebuild the church. And he realizes it isn't the dilapidated church that he's praying in. It's actually a, a painting of the crucifix that calls him to rebuild the church. Turns out uh, it's the Catholic Church that he's referring to and and that that St. Francis is charged with rebuilding. Well, he goes down to southern France and also to Egypt. And in both places, he makes contact uh, with uh, groups of or organizations of people who are on the ascension path. In France, he he meets the Cathars, the pure ones, as they call themselves, the good Christians. They claimed that they were reincarnations of the Essenes, and they were on the path of ascension as laid out in the in the book of Isaiah, which describes the soul's journey through seven halls or holes in space until it reaches the throne of God. And he's tremendously inspired by these teachings, as he is by what he learns in Egypt. And when he comes back to Italy, he's now prepared to have an extraordinary encounter with Christ as a seraphim angel. And after this experience, Francis of Assisi becomes known as the second Christ. And his followers began uh, creating images of him ascending in a chariot of the gods, very much like Ezekiel ascended upon, very much like Enoch ascended upon. It's called the Merkaba throne by the Jewish mystics. And they're absolutely certain that this is how Francis of Assisi ascended that he, in fact, did rise from mortal humanhood, flesh and blood human, into an angelic state of mind. That's the, that's the 13th century. And the Franciscan order that develops after him doesn't focus on his ascension, but it's still one of the most uh, spiritually potent 
Christian orders of the modern era. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. And in your book, I mean, we won't have time to go into it today, but you also speak about Buddha. You speak yeah. about Muhammad. I mean, you right. cross all religious traditions, faiths. Um, it's not just ancient um, history and the Christians. So it's it's a phenomenally fascinating timeline. Um and and I'll just tell I'll just say like I remember when we were doing this and I said, you know, William, that's you know, not that it's too long to read, it's needs to be this long, but I said, William, like that's a lot of information, you know, it was more than you were required or I we had even right. talked about you'd write for the book. And you were like no, it needs to be complete. You know, it needs yeah, to be I, complete. I still believe that it was so needed because mm-hmm. so many people I would talk with at conferences or other places seemed to have the impression that Ascension was a new idea. Like it's something that we just came up with, you know, the crystalline light body and some of these ideas. And people were surprised to find out that we are part of an ancient timeline. We're part of a lineage, if you will. We may even be the fulfillment of five or 6,000 years of spiritual questing. And I thought it was very important to establish that timeline. One had never been created before so that people can see that they are part of something much bigger than themselves, one. But two, that these are these are stories mostly of ordinary people who committed to something extraordinary and were able to fulfill it. My other hope was that as a believer in reincarnation, very much as the Dalai Lama would say to you right now, if he were sitting here, you've been practicing ascension in lifetime after lifetime. And perhaps this is the lifetime where it comes to fruition, because the belief is it can happen in one lifetime. And it's my hope that while reading the book, that it might be like a a smell from childhood. You're going to remember something that you perhaps learned in a ancient past life or a more near term past life. And you're going to recall, oh, yeah, this is this really is ultimately what it's all about for me. And you can see how getting on this path to wholeness transforms not only your your next life journey, but even more importantly, this life journey as well. You know, it's interesting because in, in, in the book, you talk about different tools or techniques or things we can do in order to help ourselves on this ascension journey. So it's not just the history of it or what it, what it is. There's some practical right. information. And it's fascinating that you, when you mentioned St. Francis of Assisi and him seeing the crucifix, mm-hmm. you know, so to me, that's sacred art. Right. And, and in the book, you talk about sacred art, using sacred art and the trend, the way transmissions can come through sacred art. Right. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to ask you to explain that. But when you were talking, I realized, I believe you can, you know, hopefully validate this. But that was a transmission through the sacred art of the crucifix to St. Francis. Totally. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Running parallel with the Ascension tradition is a tradition of sacred art that portrays humans ascending bodily ascending into the heavens but also special art that is created with the intention that you can connect with the ascended ones, avatars or ascended masters, if you will, through images. The Gnostics, for example, would use a phrase, the image will show you the way. Because they believed that by contemplating, meditating and reflecting on an image of 
for example, Jesus transfiguring into light, that our our neurosecretary uh, neuro system and our, our uh, neocortex is set up such that we begin to mirror what we see. And we can then make that our experience. Our body already knows how to transfigure into light, just like Jesus did. Our My body, your body, Jesus's body, physiologically, is the same. Maybe there's a, a gender difference, but physiologically, the same parts are there, okay? He had a consciousness that could activate the latent capabilities within us. And a, a consistent message running parallel to the ascension theme is this idea in culture after culture, again, beginning with the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the early Christians, and so forth, all the way up to St. Francis of Assisi, is a, a belief and a sacred science of the use of art, especially images of humans in their light body form or angelic form as conduits to the divine realm. Today, we explain that through quantum physics, a phenomena they call quantum entanglement, where two particles, if they were ever connected, can remain in contact with one another, even across thousands or even millions of light years of space-time or even other dimensions. And this is how a guru like Jesus or Padmasambhava or any of the other ascension masters can transmit the codes or vibrations of the ascension through the image. It's profound in its simplicity, but also in its power, because so much about of what what we need in the ascension process is a vision, an image of our life in that ascended form. Because we we tend to connect with our physical flesh and blood body, flesh and blood form and its limitations. We don't think so much about the invisible realm out of which we emerged and which we will return to and the potential power that we can access from those realms through images. It really is profound and it really is in its simplicity, like you said. It's not like we have to learn some formulas or calculations or, you know, like it, it, it's so innately part of us. This it's ability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chanting, meditation, diet. These are all very important aspects of the ascension process. Oils. Uh, I, I've been re- doing a lot of research on ascension oils that the ancients would use. So there are these kind of external tools, but ultimately it's all about activating latent capabilities within our neurosecretary system, within our mystic anatomy, and connecting with our future selves. It's just, it's. I think I've said fascinating, like, I don't know, five or six times in this conversation already, but it is fascinating. And I, I just want to say Ascension, Divine Stories of Awakening the Whole and Holy Being Within by William Henry is is a phenomenal book and you have all of this and so much more. Um, William goes into such, such depth. Um, and again, a shout out to the chapter on the perils of transhumanism because, you know, as William has, has just showed us, you know, this is our, we could almost say our innate birthright, this ascension process through our own divine abilities. Um, so why would we want to do it any other way? Right. Why? Exactly. I mean, sometimes I feel like, not to be disrespectful, it's like a, I'm not the butterfly, but it's like a butterfly talking to a bunch of caterpillars. And they're like saying, you'll never get me up in one of those things. Right. <laughs> and 
we have to overcome. And that's what we're all doing now. And I think the butterflies are on their way to show us exactly how to do it as well. And that's why it's important to have the, the framework, to have the conceptual understanding, the timeline, start to be able to put it all together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And William Henry, a, a big thank you to you for writing the book and, and for sharing this wisdom. Um, thank you so much for being with us today on our Common Sentience Day on the Conscious Awakening Network. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for watching. Thank you, Rama, for finding William Henry for all of us. Wow. Okay. The cause of shingles is sleeping. Wake up to your shingles risk because shingles could wake up in you. Sorry, everybody. Oops. <laughs> There's always another commercial. <laughs> okay, I was thinking... Um. Oh, where did everything go? <laughs> did I just put it here? This one, Rama. This one. Mm. Okay. Mm. All right. So here I will read this. This is called... Anomalies of our ancient moon. Um, woven into legend and lore, the mysterious origin of our planet's moon has long been explored by NASA man- missions, alternative researchers, even Pink Floyd. Mm. Since the younger Drias three prevailing mainstream theories have surfaced to explain our moon's mathematical precision. The satellite's size and orbit correspond to sacred numbers found in world religions. This episode explores a fourth theory rooted in ancient mythology. Was our moon precisely placed to counteract the effects of the younger Drias? Mm. This is uh, Greg Braden, Randall Carlson, mm. Ben Van Kirkwick, Rita Louise, PhD, mm. William Henry, Maria Will Wheatley, Kadrick Olson, Andrew Collins, mm. Eric Von Daniken. Did you find it, Rama? Okay, we're we're looking. (laughs) We are looking. Okay, here we go.
modern history, the moon has been woven into legend and lore. Most have associated our moon with strange anomalies, psychic phenomenon, and many other tales from the dark side. This natural satellite is known to control the Earth's tides, cycles, and patterns. But as the Younger Dryas period came to an abrupt end, and the mighty oceans continued to rapidly grow, many alternative researchers have pointed to lunar clues that reshape our understanding of our perfectly sized and placed celestial partner. Could the brightest and largest object in our night sky play a much larger role in creating a balance on this new watery planet of this majestic solar system? One of the greatest mysteries in our world, in our solar system today, is a mystery that is so obvious that some people simply take it for granted, and that is the existence of our moon. Our moon is one of the most mysterious moons in the entire solar system for a number of reasons. When we begin to look at the mathematics of our relationship to the moon, what we find is a precision that exceeds anything that we would expect to see in nature. For example, the distance between the Earth and the moon is exactly 108 moons, 108 diameters between the Earth and the moon. This number comes up very frequently in the Hindu and the Buddhist traditions. 108 is the number of beads on the mandalas that are used in the prayer. And the number is used to honor our relationship to the cosmos and in the cosmology. This is what we're told in these traditions. Then you begin to look even further. The distance between the Earth and the sun is exactly 108 suns. Can this be a coincidence? Or is this something that nature would do on its own? There are a lot of interesting facts and mysteries surrounding the moon. It's a unique relationship. We've never observed anywhere else in the known universe, as far as we can tell, a relationship between a moon and a planet quite like what we have on planet Earth with our moon today. Of all of the planets in our solar system, our moon is the largest moon relative to the planet that orbits than any other planet in the solar system. Our moon is fully a quarter of the size of our planet. It's a very anomalous object. In fact, some of the quotes in the early days of lunar studies were saying it's easier to explain why the moon shouldn't exist than why it does exist, or all theories of the lunar origin don't make sense. And so we're, we're still confronted with that. We're still, I think, struggling with this idea of how the moon came to be what it is. According to mainstream science, there are three prevailing theories on the origin of the moon. The first proposes that the moon and Earth were created around the same time when the solar system was forming roughly 4 to 4.5 billion years ago. The second theory is that the moon was created somewhere else and migrated into our solar system and was captured by the gravitational forces of the Earth. The third and most controversial theory is that there was a collision between Earth and a protoplanet named Thea. The debris from this collision 
eventually formed into the moon as we know it. Since the late 1960s, alternative researchers and skeptics of the mainstream theories remain focused on an Apollo 12 misfortune that sparked a string of new theories about the origin, structure, and purpose of this strangely perfect sphere. Apollo 12 astronauts, when they were leaving the moon, jettisoned their lunar lander, causing it to impact on the surface. It caused the moon to resonate and ring like a bell for over an hour. This shocked NASA scientists, and they tried to replicate that situation during Apollo 13. And so they sent an intentional impact down to the surface, causing it to resonate for over three hours. So to put this in a little bit of perspective, if we have a seismic event on the planet, those only last for a few moments in time. When the Apollo astronauts were doing the seismic activity, they created seismic waves on the surface. And the idea is to measure the amount of time that those waves take to travel from the surface into the core and come back to the surface. On Earth, seismic waves typically take maybe two minutes. When when there's an impact, the term is it will ring, and it will ring for maybe two minutes, and, and then the ringing stops. On the moon, famously, the astronauts said that it was ringing like a bell, meaning that the ring continued long beyond that two minutes, typically around 10 minutes, and in some cases, it lasted for hours. That is only possible if those seismic waves are moving through material as well as empty space or some space that is less dense that allows the propagation of those waves. If the material is more dense, it will soak up those waves. So this is one of the reasons it is what is called the ringing of the moon that leads to speculation that the moon may not be solid. When we talk about hollow, I don't know if it means that it is, it is hollow like a, a sphere that is empty inside, but very possibly beneath the surface, deeply filled with caverns or possibly large spaces that are open and then other spaces that become gradually more dense. Studies from NASA and also from other space agencies have also shown that there seems to be uh, gravitational anomalies on the moon. In, in other words, the density of the moon may not be consistent. And so but potentially you could theorize that a reason for this might be that there are cavities in the moon. It may not be entirely solid. As the discoveries during the space race surfaced, writers began weaving alternative scientific theories with fictional tales, cementing the mystery of the moon into popular culture. Four years after the Apollo 12 mission, British rock band Pink Floyd released their eighth studio album, The Dark Side of the Moon. This iconic album title influenced millions to question, why do we never see the dark side of the moon? One of the, the ironies that we see is what is called the tidal lock, T-I-D-A-L lock. And what this means is that the rotation of the moon exactly equals one orbit around the Earth 
which leads us to only see one view of the moon, no matter where we are on Earth. We will never see what is called the dark side of the moon because that rotation as it's moving is exactly locked into the rotation of our planet. It looks to us like the moon is not moving. No other moon in our solar system has such a rotation. The moon's total mass and its assumed volume and its assumed mass and density are such that it should have settled out to this form of a sphere. The problem is, is that a sphere would have a single center of mass, a single moment of inertia, which means that it would be free to rotate on any axis. But that's not what's happening because the moon's rotation on its axis is completely and precisely locked in to its period of orbit around the Earth. Now, what does that imply? It implies that the mass of the moon is not distributed radially symmetrical about its center of mass. Right there, that's a huge anomaly because the moon should have settled out to a spherical shape and then there would be no coupling between the moon's rotation and its orbit. But there is this coupling, what's called a one-to-one spin-orbit coupling. So that in itself is anomalous. Why has the moon not done it? Well, it implies that something within the lunar crust is extremely rigid. When the Apollo astronauts began exploring the surface geologically, even they were surprised at the results of some of the tests they found. One of the most mysterious factors is the moon obviously has many craters around it of different sizes, presumably from different impacts from objects of different sizes. And you would expect those impacts to go to varying depths because of the velocity of the impact. What the astronauts found is yes, the craters vary in diameter, but they all go to about the same depth as if they are hitting some kind of a mysterious boundary that will not allow them to go any deeper. You can look up the face of the moon and you see these gray splotches on the moon. Those are called the maria. The maria are like sort of like lava plains, right? They're basaltic rock. They're circular, more or less. Some of them are very circular, almost certainly caused by impacts. Well, when you have a crater that's, say, 200 miles wide, It should be 20 miles deep. But on the moon, once you get to about a three-mile depth, they continue to get wider, but they don't get any deeper. It's almost like you're trying to throw something against like a tank or something. It's so hard and so resistant that craters are not excavated to 20 miles deep. So you've got this extremely rigid crust, which is inexplicable. This is really only the beginning. I mean, then there's the mass concentrations that were discovered when the lunar orbiters back in the early 70s were going around the moon, passing over the great Maria. They would pass over the center, and as they're going along, all of a sudden they dip in their orbit because there was some tremendous gravitational pull that literally caused them to deflect downward. 
It followed that whatever was causing this extreme gravitational pull had to be near the surface. So what kind of an object could do that? Well, they came up with a hypothetical object that would be like a piece of cast iron, like a hundred miles in diameter. So in other words, again, it's more evidence that the crust of the moon is extremely strong and extremely rigid. What are these mass cons? Nobody knows. As astonishing synchronicities around the size and orbit of the moon drive alternative researchers deeper into the mystery, evidence is mounting that this anomalous structure in our night sky is even stranger than fiction. The evidence now strongly leads to the proposition that there is a fourth possibility for the origin of our moon in addition to the three that are accepted in traditional science. And that is the possibility that the moon is an artificial body intentionally engineered either in place or brought from somewhere else a long time ago. When we begin looking at the mathematics of the moon itself, this is where we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that nature cannot provide for the circumstances that we see in the moon today. First of all, the orbit of the moon itself. Typically, the moons that orbit the planets in our solar system, they orbit at the equator. Our moon is offset exactly 6.7 degrees from the equator, which happens to be precisely the location that is required to stabilize the rotation of our Earth so that it doesn't wobble, to stabilize the tides and the rhythms that allow life to be as it is, both marine and terrestrial life as it is. If the moon were not there, we would have a more erratic orbit. We would have exceedingly erratic tides, very high tides, very low tides, and at differing times, not the rhythms that we see today. When we look up at the moon, we really don't know what we're looking at. But when the ancients looked up at the moon, they looked at it as something that was brought here intentionally. Now, what if we just speculate and think, well, what if the moon was brought here with the intention to calm down the planet? I mean, think about what happened during the Younger Dryas, the, the, the cataclysmic beating that the Earth took it, it's, it was going to require something to calm down the seas, calm down the volcanic activity. What if that's what the moon was brought here for as this stabilizing force so that civilization could ultimately come to a plateau, but then also flourish afterward? If there was a time of no moon and then a moon was created to stabilize the energies of the Earth, what we do know is the moon not only controls the tides, but controls the underground waters as well. And if they're going out of control in a impact, in a kind of end of the world situation, then you're going to be jarred from the inside out as well. So if it, the moon was placed there, it was to regulate not just the surface waters, but the waters beneath the earth themselves, because I think they could have been going out of control. Imagine tidal waves from the inside of the Earth as much as from the outside of the Earth. In our exploration of the Younger Dryas, we talked about how it could have began and what kind of catastrophes that befell our planet. 
But what about its end? What brought it to such an abrupt end? Well, let's turn our eye back to this galactic federation, a force so powerful that had technology so strong that it could destroy an entire planet as big as Tiamat. What if they looked upon our planet, saw the destruction that had been raging for over a thousand years, and said, okay, we need to stop this. We need to bring some peace back to this planet. How would they intervene? What would they do to mitigate the catastrophes that were happening upon our planet during the Younger Dryas? And Swaru tells us that as a result of the explosion of Tiamat, the whole solar system was thrown into disarray. This caused an imbalance to the Earth's orbit and axial tilt, resulting in a great number of catastrophes. So in order to help, the Federation placed one of their artificial biospheres into Earth's orbit, right into the perfect location to counterbalance the disarray and stop the catastrophes. Failure to stabilize the Earth would mean that our planet would enter a more elliptical orbit, creating a completely uninhabitable environment. Several traditions throughout history after the Younger Dryas, like the Druids in Europe and the pagan practices in Rome, have legends of moon ceremonies. These rituals aided in locking the moon into the misunderstood categories of witchcraft and magic. But what about the time when the Atlantean Empire was rapidly colonizing the planet over 12,000 years ago? How different was this planet, the rituals, and the ancient sky before the Younger Dryas? There is little doubt that the moon has an extreme influence on the water of the planet. But what if this planet wasn't completely covered with water yet? Scientist and author Hans Schindler Bellamy illuminated carvings from Tiwanaku in Bolivia that were believed to have been created before the Younger Dryas and the current moon was in place. So when we look at structures in Tiwanaku, we see carvings that talk about the moon. On the calendar date, we have a very interesting inscription that seems to suggest that a smaller planetary body once circled around the Earth before the moon we see now was put into place. We have cultural traditions that speak to a time before the moon was in our orbit. All the way from indigenous traditions, even biblical traditions in the book of Job, Job 25.5, speaks to a time when the moon did not shine, when the moon was not in the sky. Other indigenous traditions tell the same thing. Are they preserving a memory from their ancestors that are telling us in the only way they know how, without the writing on the pages of a book per se, but they are preserving a memory of some time in the Earth's history when we had no moon. Throughout ancient mythology, there have been several lunar deities. According to the Greek poet Homer, the region now known as Greece was once called Arcadia. The inhabitants of that ancient land are referred to as both the Arcadians and Athenians. Could the legends passed down from this civilization provide more clues to a time before our moon was in its current position? 
and a new goddess emerged. Selena is the name of the moon that was given to it by the people in classical times, by the Greeks and by the Romans. But there is a reference to the people who were devoted to her, who were said to have existed even before the time that the moon existed in our sky. And these were the Akkadians, the people of Akkadia. And they were said to have been around before the moon itself actually rose into the skies. We could be talking about the peoples that existed before the time of a major cataclysm, with the most obvious one being the younger Dryas. And I think that this brings us certainly in the right area that we should be looking for answers to do with these pre-Selenite people. In other words, those that existed before the current moon shone in the sky. In 43 BC, Ovid writes that the Arcadians are older than the moon. So now we're coming up into the time of Jesus where they're still talking about this possibility of a civilization, the Arcadian civilization that existed or is older than the time before the moon was in Earth's orbit. 200 years after Aristotle, we have Apollonius of Rhodes. He's a librarian at the Library of Alexandria. He has access to all the world's knowledge, including texts that were supposed to exist from the time before the flood. And he also believed that the Arcadians lived in a time when there was no moon. The bottom line is that they are accepting this idea that the moon is something new to human experience. We will look at ancient civilizations recording the existence of the moon. One of the earliest examples that we see is what's called the Disk of Nebra. It's dated about 4,000 BP, 4,000 before present. And it actually shows the moon itself. It shows the solstices. This is one of the first examples that we're seeing. Civilizations before this time do not appear to be recording the existence of the moon, at least as we know it today. There is evidence as well in these ancient traditions that the moon has not always been at the location in space as it is. That it was actually closer to our planet at one point and now has moved further away. All of this contributes to the possibility that this is not a natural object, that it is somehow an ancient engineered object. In mythology, we have a guy with the name of Enoch. Enoch was taken away by the extraterrestrials into their mother spaceship. And there, one of the extraterrestrials says to the human, human, look out at the window. Do you see this little light out there? You humans call it moon. But the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives his light from the sun. And then he explains why the moon sometimes full and half. Now simply this statement, Stone Age time, is a proof of scientific information. Because no human could have known the moon has his light from the sun. You can prove simply by a few phrases that there was an extraterrestrial influence. Like the legends of the moon, extraterrestrial influences have also been mislabeled and misunderstood. But there are several stories throughout the ages where those from the stars helped humanity in various ways. 
Swarwu tells us that the moon is emitting a radiation field around our planet. A lot of the scientists will refer to this as the Van Allen belt. Scientists today will tell you that this Van Allen belt of radiation is caused through the interplay of the sun and the magnetic fields of the earth, creating this electromagnetic field around the earth. Swarwu gives us a different perspective. When we look to the moon, as part of a way of mitigating the catastrophes of the Younger Dryas. Swaru tells us that the moon is emitting the Van Allen belt as a means of increasing the density of the planet. Now, regardless of what you think about what this Van Allen belt is, it is a measurable field, it is detectable, it is proven by science that it is there. But what is it really doing for us? When we think about all that we know about the moon, remember when we landed on the moon, it rang like a bell for three hours. And we went back to the moon and intentionally crashed a spaceship into the moon just so we could measure this. That is a dramatic moment in human history because it compels us to look back at these ancient myths, what Ovid was saying, what Anaxagoras, what Aristotle, what Plutarch, what all these Greek philosophers were saying about a previous civilization that existed before the moon was in place, and now we get this very technological description of the moon. It's hollow, like a spaceship, like some kind of a Death Star, perhaps even. This is the, the picture that's now being painted of the moon. And in one instance, you look at that and you think, this is terrifying, because we're talking about what kind of a civilization has the power to bring the moon and put it so perfectly in place. But then on the other side of you look at that and you think, wow. What kind of a civilization has the power to do that? They must love us so much that they put the moon in the exact place that it needed to be for Earth to become stable once again, and we are the benefactors of that action. I think the moon has played a significant role in our history, and I think it's absolutely deserving of a lot more study and open-minded interpretation of, of some of the ancient legends about it. I think we owe it to ourselves to go back to the moon and uh, do the experiments with the best science of the modern world so that we can tell ourselves truthfully, honestly, factually, is our moon a natural moon or has it been created artificially by an intelligence that placed it there for our benefit? And if so, what does that mean for us today? Oh, my gosh. All right. Now we're going to go back to George Moore Nuri for one more. And this is called Egypt's Area 51, Stargates and Wormholes. In current science, rediscovering ancient transport methods known as stargates, is current science rediscovering ancient transport methods known as stargates? Filmmaker Mike Ricksecker um, returns from Egypt to share his insights from investigating sites believed to be ancient stargates used to access faraway locations and multiple dimensions. He discusses the active military base known as Egypt's Area 51, where a phenomena 
sim- similar to the aurora borealis is thought to indicate a working stargate. Rick Secker also shares footage from Egyptologists demonstrating how portals within pyramids like Gaza, like Giza, excuse me, and temples like Elephantine were powered by energy harnessed from rose granites. How are scientists today recovering this lost portal technology through quantum experimentation and finding proof of the Einstein-Rosen bridge we call wormholes? That's a lot of stuff there. Um, George Nury is going to interview Mike Ricksecker. This is 22 minutes. And you found it, I see, right, yeah. Rama? All yeah. right, here we go. Twenty-two <sighs> minutes. Welcome to Beyond Belief, and one of our favorites, Mike Ricksecker, with us is an author, researcher, filmmaker who recently traveled to Egypt to discover stargates that might have been used for travel in ancient times. Michael, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciate being back today. So, Mike, what are stargates? Stargates are these gateways to other locations in the cosmos, these portals that can take us to either other places on Earth or other places throughout the universe. Are they like wormholes? You would use a wormhole to move between these different portals or stargates. So uh, you would have the gateway on one end, a gateway on the other, and then the uh, the wormhole would be the method of transport in between. I've always wondered that extraterrestrials would travel from point A to point B by bending space and time. How accurate am I? Yeah, absolutely. This could very well be one of the ways that they are moving back and forth to our planet. Uh, extraterrestrial civilizations having many of these billions of years more to be able to advance their technology ahead of ours could have figured out the secret to the Einstein-Rosen bridge. Like you said, bending space and time and then the connection between either side would be that wormhole. Explain the Einstein-Rosen bridge. Yeah, exactly. So this is the idea that uh, you're trying to take two points that are extremely far away from each other in the universe, and you can't get there through Newtonian physics. It just takes too long. It's impossible. Light years, yes. Our, you know, the human being would, would pass away on a trip that long. So the idea here is if you can bend space and time and bring those two points closer to each other, then you could bridge the two through that wormhole. It's kind of like drop right down. Boof. Right. Exactly. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit different because, uh, when we usually conventionally think of a wormhole, we think of that tunnel, which as we're making that travel, that may be similar to what it's like. But when we think of what something like that would look like, we generally think of, you know, you have a hole and you pass right through it. But really when you take in consideration, we're talking about 3D space. 
it actually comes up more as a sphere. So it would be a, a sphere, a spherical hole from one point here to another. Is it a new physics to talk about bending space and time? No, this is something that's actually been around for, for a long, long yes. time. This is something the ancients used to talk about and really got lost to time. And we're just now rediscovering today. The ancients talked about this? Absolutely. When you look at a lot of the uh, depictions in ancient artwork and they uh, show traversing through the universe, traveling across the skies, they actually mention this within their literature about this type of travel. Have scientists discovered anything with wormholes? Well, it's interesting because there was a, uh, a new experiment that was recently revealed here to the public, November 2022, that they had actually created what they considered to be, on a, on a quantum level, uh, actual wormholes in the lab that were connected to each other, well, through the wormhole, but portals on either side connected through a wormhole, and they were able to do this in the lab. What did they do? Just send something from one spot to the other? <laughs> well, it's funny because as they were talking to the press about this, uh, people were asking them, were you able to send something through there? One of the people had asked, well, you know, could you send a dog through it? And uh, the one scientist kind of laughed and said, you know, we're talking, you know, small scale right now. And having a quantum come out level. as a dog, right? Right. And to me, it's kind of funny because, you know, why do we immediately go to sending a dog through a portal? Why don't we try maybe a probe? something like that, rather than you know, a living being at this point. Remember the movie The Fly? Yes. Where that little fly got into that transporter? Exactly. Turned him into the Brundle fly. There you go, yeah. Uh, yeah, we don't know right now what the repercussions would be of sending somebody through uh, something like this, which is why, you know, in, in science, they're taking it step by step, little by little, and trying to really, they're rediscovering a technology that was lost. And be interesting to see how far they're able to take this with the current technology. Michael, hundreds of thousands of people disappear on this planet every year. They're just gone. Right. Nobody knows where they are. Is it possible? That they're stumbling in the stargates all around the planet and they're just, they can't get back? That's something I believe. Uh, and there are some that do come back and the stories that they tell are very, very fascinating that, you know, they were on a path in the woods, heard something off on the side of the path, took a step off into the brush to take a look to see what the noise was, didn't find anything, turned around to get back on the path and it was completely gone. And they're lost in the woods for days, sometimes weeks. Scary. Absolutely. Uh, some never come back. So it's very possible that, yes, some of these have been lost uh, through portals in what we would also call scripted stargates. Are there areas on this planet like Egypt that have more stargates than others? Well, that's a that's a good question. Uh, Egypt is one that you see a lot of that ancient symbolism of stargates uh, throughout their temples. Now, other locations in the world like uh, uh, Maramuru or uh you know, the gateway of the sun. These are other locations that are considered stargates, but Egypt seems to have a great number of these. I'm fascinated by the area of Abydos in Egypt, mm -hmm. that etching that showed a submarine, a helicopter. Where did that come from? Well, that's a great question because when we look at ancient artwork, they drew what they saw. So when we look at those etchings, yeah, you're right. It's something that looks like an airplane, something that looks like a tank, a helicopter. Clearly. Is, is this a result of having traversed through the Stargate and coming back and then 
showing what they saw. Abydos is a location that does have several stargates. Your friend Mohammed Ibrahim shows depictions of stargates. Now you see the world star meet in Abydos Temple. Sab, and Sab means star and the simple gate. And in the same way, star gate, star gate, star gate, star gate. So if this was just a title, why we don't see it everywhere next to the name of the king? Because this is the star gate. This is what we call it the Mufti. Hmm. This is the uh, symbol called Mufti. And this symbol is called Shait. Hedget Shait. White pink. White pink. And Johnny was talking about white gold. They say that they eat the white gold to have these powers magnetic. So it could be white pink. Fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Muhammad and I do these tours together, Stargates of Ancient Egypt, and I always learn so much from him about Stargates going there and going to those these locations in which you see very clearly the word Stargate. Uh, and the word is Saba. Uh, ancient Egyptian language didn't really have vowels, so the two letters that we see, the S and the B, uh, are the word for Stargate, and then you have the determinative uh, characters, which is the star, and then the actual gate that are included, and you have Saba, Stargate, and you see these on doorways into these different rooms. And then, of course, the uh, the white cakes, the monatomic white gold, that was believed was ingested in order to uh, activate and access the Stargates. Do we know where Stargates are today? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, of course, we have these ones uh, like there in Egypt and the different temples, which we believe had been uh, once working stargates. There's a location in Egypt today. It's called, well, it's basically a military base in, in Dasher. It's right there by the Red Pyramid and the Bent Pyramid. People call this Egypt's Area 51. And it is believed that there is within Egypt's Area 51 a working stargate. And the stories that come out of there are very fascinating in which what they've said is it looks like an aurora borealis on the ground. And apparently you access this stargate through the ground, essentially stepping through this aurora. Do we have reports of scientists finding stargates? Well, that's a great question. So we have the lab work that's been done. We find other symbolism, like Sri Lanka has a stargate that they uh, have discovered there that's really etched in stone. So it's archaeologists have discovered a uh, a depiction of one there. So it's you have the lab work and then you have this ancient symbolism that's being encountered. Fascinating work, Mike. How did you begin to do this? Well, my interest goes uh, you know far back to, uh, well, I don't know how far back. When you were a kid. <laughs> really, right? yeah, as a kid, you know, it's always, you know, there's always that interest. There's always that fascination. I was always interested in mystery and in discovering truth and knowledge. Uh, you know, I had several uh, supernatural paranormal experiences as a child. So I was always, you know, invested in that realm. When it came to Egypt specifically, it was around the, the 1993 time frame. We had the 
mysteries of the Sphinx documentary come out with right. Robert Shocks on Anthony West. Charlton Heston was the, the narrator. Yeah, it's here on Gaia. It's, uh, you can find that on the, the streaming platform. And I've watched that several times. But back then when I first saw it, it just blew my mind, the redating of the Sphinx. And just after that, the movie Stargate came out. So to me, it was like putting you know, one and two together and I just a rabbit hole I, I went down. Have you ever found yourself in what could be a Stargate and it was just weird? Well, I will tell you this. Those locations in Egypt that have been designated as Stargates, you do feel palpable energy. Can you see locations. them? I, I mean, or is it like a wavy effect or anything like that? If you basically put yourself into a meditative state in those locations. If you just take it in, yes, you can start to see things like that with your eyes. It's a truly fascinating uh, effect that happens within these locations. You know, these are very energetic locations on earth. You know, there's that palpable. Are there like other dimensions? And that's a great question because when we're talking about stargates, we typically think of you know, traversing into the the cosmos, another place in the universe. Maybe we're going from here to uh, another planet. But another idea is that we are possibly accessing other dimensions here. So mentioned earlier the monatomic white gold. What's fascinating about that substance is you know, we've rediscovered this uh, here in recent years. David Hudson back in the 1980s. Right. And when... You know, he patented the process for actually creating the substance and the tests that they did on this substance when they would actually put it in a pan to weigh it the whole mechanism would weigh less so pan and all would weigh less with the substance on there than with it off weird absolutely and that was just at 70 degrees fahrenheit that would start to do, to do this you raise the temperature higher and the substance would disappear and one of the interesting things that they did was you know, they took a spatula and they stirred it around and after it had disappeared, when they cooled everything back down, it reappeared, but not it didn't look as if the spatula had any effect on it at all. So the idea here was that when you heated it up to a certain temperature, it actually passed into another, another dimension. So imagine here ingesting this into your body it has anti-gravity properties and it has properties to take it into another dimension, interdimensional properties. And so you're going into these uh, energetic locations, the stargates, ingesting this. So are you going to another place in the cosmos, another dimension, an altered states of consciousness? It makes you invisible, doesn't it? It could make you invisible, sure. The pyramids, Christopher Dunn has mm-hmm. always called them as a power plant. Yes. What do you think of that theory? Yeah, I'm, I'm on board that they were certainly some sort of machine and they were providing power. I've been, you know, I've, I've read his work. It's fascinating. I've been inside the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza a few times and uh, for me, the smoking gun there is the the queen's chamber, uh, that niche that's in the the one wall. Uh, you know, it's this little corbelled niche, and mainstream archaeology will say, well, that's a place where a statue or some sort of idol right. or something like that was. But you look in the back on the back wall of it, and it's scorched. Something was burning there, and the stone is melted. It's been vitrified now. If there's a statue or an idol standing there, that's it's not going to have that effect on the back wall. So certainly there is some sort of mechanism going on here with this. And the locations where these pyramids were at, you know, we're talking you know hotspot nodes of 
uh, telluric current from the earth. And so I believe, yes, they were harnessing uh, this energy from the earth. There was some sort of mechanism inside along the lines of what Christopher Dunn is talking about to create a, uh, a massive amount of energy. And I believe that they're uh, used to power some of these stargates. Mike, what are the Holy of Holies? What is that? So the Holy of Holies, these are really the the most sacred areas of the temples. And usually we in uh, Egypt, in Egypt. Yes. Usually we think of like a you know Jewish synagogue or the Temple of Sol- Solomon, that sort right. of thing. But, you know, this term was uh, was derived all the way back from from ancient Egypt, even the the arcs. We think of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the ancient Egyptians also used arcs and they would keep the arcs in the Holy of Holies. But in many of these Holy of Holies, Hatshepsut's temple. You have these depictions of the stargates there. And actually, Hatshepsut's temple, I, I absolutely love because that is a perfect setup in which you have this uh, symbolism of energy with the with the snakes going up the uh, the side of the stairway leading all the way back into the temple that's in the cliff. On the one side, you have the remains of a pyramid, so the base of the old pyramid. And again, we were just talking about that being a power plant. So that would be your power to charge this whole thing. Right. And as you move through the different courtyards and inner sanctums, you see on the doorways the symbolism for Stargate, 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 all the way back in the Holy of Holies of Hatshepsut's temple on the side wall. And it's hard to get in there because I have a couple guards stationed there. They will not let you in unless you get That's all they do is stand there? They stand there. And it's it's funny because – the the bar call that they're standing in, which is really basically stands for the transportation of the gods. They're positioned there. They they do not let the tour guides in there to explain anything. And they have a little sign on the side that right under the Stargate symbol that says tour guides, please don't come in and explain anything. They don't really? want yeah, they don't want the tour guides to explain exactly what this was. And the two guards are standing there preventing you from going to the Holy of Holies. If you tip them, they'll take a photo of it for you. But what you really want is to get all the way into the back and on the one side wall where they actually there's a cartouche of stars. And this is really like the ultimate symbol of the Stargates. What is the significance of Elephantine Island? Elephantine Island, this is a fascinating location uh, right in the middle of the Nile River. And there is a uh, old is in complete ruins. There is an old Stargate there. There's a uh, Temple of Khnum that's there in which actually has depictions of, you can believe this in ancient Egypt, a priest with Mayan headdresses. Huh. And then underneath that temple is an even older temple. And if you're one who believes on the, uh, the journey of the Ark of the Covenant making its way down to Ethiopia, this is believed to be a location in which the Ark of the Covenant stayed for about 400 years. Some people believe the Ark of the Covenant is still hidden there. Might be. Could be. Might be. Mike, research from Johnny Enoch explains what may have happened at Elephantine Island. We're standing in Elephantine Island here in Egypt on the Nile around Aswan. And behind me is an alleged stargate. Here is a gate that was on some kind of energy grid where we have this whole island made of rose granite that's resonating with this kind of energy. And it's almost as if during the cataclysm, something was triggered on this grid or 
this area where the core just sort of exploded and the whole place just was decimated. This, look at this. When you look up at this thing, it's been pieced together, but something came through here that was so powerful that it blew the whole place to pieces. I mean, we see all kinds of magnificent structures made of granite over there. Now, again, why is that significant? Well, rose granite and granite are contained with silica, which is where we get silicon microchips from, which are a great insulator and conductor of electromagnetic energy. And of course, when we see why that's important to this place, it was literally loaded with energy. Lastly, one of the kings who was obsessed with stargates and actually had it in front of his names was Tutmosis III. And of course, we see his temple and his fingerprint right next to this site. My question is not how they made it, but how it was destroyed this way. And, and this is not, wasn't the only shrine. We had at least 10 or that is another one there. Okay, that is part of it, of another piece. So we have at least 10 shrines. So what was the reason for this destruction? No way to claim it is a group of people came and knocked down the place. No way, especially this piece. From the, the shape of this piece, it seems that something happened here at the center. And with the strong wave, this piece was falling to the backside. So they're convinced that's a stargate. Yes, and the idea there with that particular temple is that the only thing still standing is that gateway, that arch. And it's as if there was a massive energy wave that pulsated through it and knocked blew it over right and out. blew it all over. Yes. You think that happened? I think it's a distinct possibility. If there was something we... We don't know what may have happened on the other side of the, that stargate. What, what happened on the other side of the portal? You know, what was it that blew through? Was there something that happened if it was from another planet? You know, was there some sort of energy or destruction that happened on that other side that blew an energy wave right through and knocked over that temple? We don't know that, but the physical evidence just really shows us that there was something massive that happened that did not affect the gate itself, which I mean, it's blocks stacked on top of each other. It's probably one of the most fragile parts of that entire area there. Sure. But that stayed in these large, massive, uh, I mean, dozens of tons. These, uh, these shrines are made of granite, very, very heavy. And they were knocked over just like, you know, your little building blocks. Assuming extraterrestrials are visiting us. Are they coming through stargates? That is definitely one way in which they could be visiting us. I believe they're visiting us uh, several different ways, but uh, there could be locations around the globe today that we're not aware of that are still active in which they're able to traverse through to our planet. Because when people have seen them, they seem to say they just disappeared. Right. So and what if they, they went into a stargate yeah. or a wormhole and just came out and went the other way? Yeah, it's very possible. And it makes sense. Again, you, know, you take a look at our Newtonian physics and you know, it would take years and years and years to be able to uh, travel the, the cosmos with just a, you know, a spaceship and some rockets. So it makes sense that extraterrestrials have perhaps perfected the idea of the Einstein Rosen Bridge using stargates, wormholes, portals. Uh, those sorts of things to be able to travel 
rather than your conventional spaceship. Or there may be some locations on the planet in which we could be talking about bigger portals and stargates where they are able to take a craft through. And instead of their craft traversing the universe, going from solar system to solar system, they could actually be taking that craft through the stargate. What about a stargate that we don't know that you would like to know? <laughs> a stargate that we don't know that I would like to know. I mean, I, I believe Antarctica is a wonderful uh, location, which is still very mysterious that we don't know a lot, a lot awesome. about in which there could be a, a stargate there. Uh, we've talked before about the Alaska Triangle. I believe there are stargates up there. So I would like to know definitive, definitively some of these locations if there's you know, operating stargates there. What's happening at Dendera? Dendera is a uh, fascinating location. It's really just down the road from Abydos. We have uh, the the zodiac that's there. This is a healing temple of Hathor. Uh, you have the light bulb, the Dendara light bulb that everybody's talking about. You know, they have some sort of it's technology ancient, like that. Right? It's ancient. And, uh, but some of the, the, one of the things that we found here recently was up on the roof of the temple. It's a room that's up there. It's really on the other side of the roof from where the, the zodiac is, uh, is a room that has a lot of symbolism of stargates. And this is something Muhammad Ibrahim was, was looking at that he had found some of the depictions a little bit different than what we're used to of a gate uh, with other symbols inside of it and then above the stars. And when we were just recently out there, he's showing us a couple of these things he recently discovered. All excited about it? All excited. And then all of a sudden we notice, no, this actually wraps around. It goes outside. They're all over this temple. Hmm. How do you explain that? This is a, I believe, you know, this is a room that was on top of the temple. It's a special location. Again, you have the, the zodiac there, which is, you know, uh, showing us the stars. You have depictions, uh, on the roof of the temple in, in the lower sanctum showing the ships across the night sky. So I believe that this was a room in which they were showing us how the uh, stargates function and what their functions were actually for. There's still a lot of research we have to do uh, with this particular room and the depictions there of the Stargate since it's a, a newer discovery. There's some sort of correlation between the different symbols within the gates and something with the number of stars, and we're still trying to uh, decode that key. You looked at some discoveries at Dendera yourself, didn't you? Correct. Let's look. Back again at the Temple of Hathor. In Dendara. Space. Spacewalk, we call it spacewalk. Spaceship. Oh. Why we don't call it space rocket? Because the ancient Egyptian represented ships sailing on the sky. Oh All of these ships are sailing on the sky. This is the sky and this is Earth. This shape is what we call it. Gate. Now we can see five stars and that sample jet in the middle. So that is gate with five stars. Different samples. Many stars now there can be 24, 8, 8, 12 stars. I think this man also, but unfortunately, the scene is destroyed. I didn't see this one. Oh, oh, this is too much. It keeps going. Right, another move. See, yeah, we didn't see this before. We're on the other side. 
Yeah, what with night stars out here? Actually, this here is also Stargate. Right there. A little symbol right there. So we got more over here. We made good discovery, my friend. Absolutely. Those depictions are, are dynamite. Yeah, they're they're really amazing. And you have a uh, you know the double confirmation here that a stargate, of course. You know, again, the symbolism. You have the larger gate, the other symbols inside, like the Jed pillar with the stars above it. But then in the description up top, you have some of the other stargate symbolism there with the the gate with the star above it. So this is you know confirming for us what we're believing that yes, these are depictions of stargates. And I think we're going to find some deeper meaning within these. When we take a look at the Jed pillar that's inside the one, well, the Jed pillar was considered the the backbone of Egypt. And they had a yearly celebration uh, to celebrate uh, the raising of the Jed pillar. And this was really to celebrate you know, new energies coming into the land. So this was very, very important to the ancient Egyptian culture. How old were those depictions, Mike? You know, the, we're talking around 1500 uh, BC. We don't know exactly when they were carved. They in. were amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful. And Could we even do that today? You know, a lot of this, a lot of these things. No, you know, it's one of the things I love about uh, going to Egypt. I'm always amazed. My father was born there. Right, right. Cairo, which is fantastic, and I'm just always amazed that you you see. Okay, we just saw a video clip. You see photos, you see documentaries on ancient Egypt, and that's wonderful and fantastic. But to actually go inside these temples and these pyramids and awesome. get it's yes, it's just awe striking. Do they have an order to it? You know, it's uh, some locations do, others don't. Uh, some locations are able to, to ventilate a little bit, like the a lot of the temples, uh, you know, there's a lot of airflow. Some of the uh, pyramids uh, might get a little musty inside. And uh, look at the Great Pyramid. They've uh, they get so much traffic in and out. They have installed some ventilation there. But what was always wonderful about that was you know, no, matter, no matter how hot it got outside, it always stayed within uh, the 60s inside before it started becoming a major tourist attraction. Right. Yeah. What do you think Stargates are really for? I think there's some uh, a few different purposes here for the Stargates. Traveling the cosmos, yes. Traveling to other locations in the world, I believe so as well, because we see a lot of different uh, locations with you know very similar makeup, like uh, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara looks very similar to what we see in right. Chichen Itza. Uh, we talked earlier about where did you know depictions of Mayan headdresses come from there in Elephantine Island. But then I also believe that there were some of these locations that you know, may not have been a traditional uh, traverse in the cosmos, but had to do more with entering into an altered state of consciousness or entering into some other dimensional space. Something truly amazing happened on this planet, Mike, a long time ago. You, you have to conclude that. Oh, absolutely. And you know, a lot of that knowledge has been lost to time and we're rediscovering it now. Uh, but there was something that happened in our ancient past that was really, truly amazing. Uh, methodologies that 
other civilizations across the planet were able to uh, communicate with each other. We were able to communicate with, with other planets uh, across the universe. I, I believe we were freely... Uh, How did we lose it? Ancient cataclysms, uh, lost to time. It's, uh, wars? unfortunately, I'm sorry. Wars? Wars. Uh, well, and, and certainly, uh, wars back at those times were very barbaric. They would try to wipe out an entire annihilation. Absolute annihilations or genocide. Uh, you would have, you know, you see the flood story throughout all cultures. And so the survivors of that flood, you know, at, at that time, you know, they weren't interested in building massive pyramids and things like that. And they're just trying to survive. And so that survival would last several generations. And over that time, the knowledge on how to build some of these things was lost. Truly remarkable. Absolutely. It's uh, I, I encourage anybody uh, that has any interest in this whatsoever to come out to Egypt and experience it. It is absolutely life changing. Aren't there stargates in Iraq? That's an idea as well. It's a little bit, it's a little bit harder to confirm that because of, you can't get, it's, it's very hard to access anything in Iraq, correct? During Saddam Hussein's day, could we have found out? Well, it's, what's interesting is Saddam Hussein was very interested in archaeology. And all ancients, big time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, you know, reconstruction of the ziggurat of Oro, we can actually go thank him in part for that. So I guess perhaps if you had that distinct interest and were a researcher with some credentials, he may have let you <laughs> go out there, but um, it would have been still Are the Stargates formed by ETs artificially or is it part of our planet? Well, I think the energy is, is there in our planet. The, uh, you know, the Earth's magnetism powers so much uh, around our planet. It's, it's a shield from the sun. And what's interesting about that is where the uh, magnetic shield of the Earth hits the uh, magnetism of the sun out in space. They call those X points, and NASA has designated those as as portals, which is uh, quite fascinating. But uh, the energy is definitely there in the planet. We see that in the telluric currents of the Earth. We see that, and uh, more commonly known as as the ley lines, and we see those in those you know hot spot nodes of activity where they cross. That you know you have that. Uh, welling of the energy from the Earth's core that interacts with different metals and minerals and you know, creates these different energy fields. And the ancients knew how to harness those different fields. And that's why they were building things like the pyramids or the stone circles and things like that. Has anybody in modern times been hurt in a Stargate? So <laughs> it's a they consider it an urban legend, but there's always a grain of truth somewhere in there. Something and happened. Something happened. The, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, the story of the, uh, the Stonehenge hippies. I have not. Okay. We're about to. We're about to. <laughs> so this was, uh, early 1970s. This was at a point in time when you could actually still, you know, go up to, uh, Stonehenge and actually camp out if you wanted to. And there was a group of young adults that decided to camp out at Stonehenge and, uh, you know, had a little campfire going and had some tents. And it was about 2 a.m. There was a storm that was rolling through. There was a policeman that was passing by, and for some reason, there was a farmer in the area that was still up. And as the storm rolled in, there was this big blue flash of lightning. They heard some screams, and they noticed that everybody that was there at Stonehenge, those young adults, had completely disappeared. Poof. Poof. Gone. So 
the question then becomes, okay, we've considered Stonehenge for calendrical purposes. We've considered it for ritual purposes. You know, we've considered it, okay, has astronomical alliance, uh, alignments. Was it possibly also some sort of portal or stargate? And did that electrical surge at that moment activate it and send them off to some other dimension? Might Atlantis have been swollen up by a stargate? Well, I believe that the temple of Atlantis had an active an active stargate and that that was a mode of transport that they were using frequently, sure, across the universe, but also around the world. We see the Atlantean symbolism all over, and where we see that is in those spiral patterns that are in okay. – that permeate throughout all cultures. We see it in ancient Egypt. We see it in Sardinia. We see it in the American Southwest, Chaco Canyon, in which they talk about that the uh, spiral patterns were portals for the star people to use to come here to Earth. Where is the Temple of Edfu? Edfu, that's also uh, in Egypt along the, along the Nile. You, you really have Abydos, Dendara, Edfu. Uh, Edfu is uh, absolutely fascinating because you have the you have the pyramid text there. You have the depictions of what we believe is a lost account of Atlantis on the walls there. A it describes a cataclysm that occurred in which the survivors had to recreate civilization. Something happened. Yeah. Uh, it was what's fascinating about this is. You have when you look at the story of Atlantis. Now, this was passed down from uh, from Plato, but where he got it was from his great 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 uncle Solon when uh, he had visited the Temple of Sais in Egypt, and this is where he learned the Atlantis story from and passed it on. Now, the Temple of Sais is in complete ruins now. There's really nothing left of it except rubble. It's, it's just rubble, but. The ancient Egyptians uh, knew, and a lot of their stories are written on papyrus, and a lot of that was getting you know, lost over time. They knew they needed to try to retain the story somewhere. So you see pieces of it in other temples, and Edfu has a large chunk of that story. Your friend Mohammed Ibrahim shows depictions of stargates at the Temple of Edfu. There is a story written here by the priest talks about Atlantis. When I explain this to you three years ago, it was because it talks about the story of immigration and it showed the power of the natives who came uh, through the ocean. It could be the, um, the story explaining the survivors after the cataclysm. But what cataclysm? Not the one 9,700 BC. We, this is what I want you to know, that most of the cycles we talk about, it, it didn't happen one time. It could happen 100 times. So we had several ice ages before, and the end of each ice age was flood or was uh, rain and uh, too much water uh, in the uh, on Earth. Okay. In this temple, we are going to see different type or different style of the word stargate again, like this one. Okay, to make sure you understand that this is a stargate. This one. So sometimes it is above the star, above the gate, sometimes next to the gate. Dramatic, isn't it? It's really fascinating. Yeah, this area of research, I think, is one that we need to concentrate on a little bit more because it's 
right there in plain sight to be deciphered. And he knows his stuff. He really does. Mohammed, he's he's an Egyptologist. He studied under Zahi Hawass. He's been doing... Zahi is now touring the country, mm-hmm. our country, doing speaking engagements about the pyramids. Yeah, absolutely. A very, very uh, learned man. He, he definitely knows his yep, stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me. Uh, my website is MikeRickSecker.com. You can also find my online learning portal, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. I have a, a course out there on... Uh, ancient Egypt, and we also have our Stargates of Ancient Egypt tour, second one, coming up here, and you can find that information out there at both those websites. You obviously love what you do. Oh, absolutely. This is a passion. This is an absolute passion. What will we find out about Stargates that we don't know now? I think we're going to find a lost chapter of our humanity, something that's been lost to time. I think a lot of these symbols that we see, that we are rediscovering now, are really a memory and we are now just finally uh, interpreting those memories and we're coming back to life michael thank you for being on beyond belief Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you so much for having me again george it's been an absolute pleasure can you imagine stumbling into a stargate and you can't find your way back (laughs) how horrible would that be but it may have happened to hundreds of thousands of people thanks for watching beyond belief Rama, remember when you went to the, uh, yeah. you went there and you went through a Stargate, right? Yeah. Out there on the way, way, you know, on the back road. Garden of the Gods. Yes, Garden of the Gods. Yeah. And you went through something. What was that? Well, I opened a portal and I could see. You guys talk so people can hear you. I opened a portal and I could see Glastonbury Tor. Ah, yes. In England. And I wanted to go through. It was a nice sunny day, but I didn't. Well, Tom the Ringtail Cat kind of said, uh, um, you might not be coming back. Are you uh, ready yeah. for that? <laughs> you might be going somewhere else. Yeah, he said that if you go through, what, what year, what time? You know, um, <laughs> you might not find a payphone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's it's the energies like that have increased exponentially now, right? Yeah. So we walk softly upon the earth and with respect for everything around us. And we learn from anything else that we might have tripped over on the way. But, um, okay, I'm going to just read the the headline from Aurora Ray here. And it's, A New Earth is Emerging, Where Respect and Dignity Are Extended to All. Abundance Replaces Scarcity and Unity triumphs over division it is a vision of hope and transformation and with all that i'm going to pass this talking stick to my sister rainbird for the last word here it comes rainbird you know that quetzalcoatl's on there and all your other friends here it comes okay got it (laughs) wow what a day we did it 
Wow. Well, with a lot of help from our friends, holy macaroni. Yeah, I think we've been all over the universe. Oh, wow, yes. There's more to come, they say. Yeah, 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 we're good. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm glad we're all here to be witnesses and midwives. And uh, we're all honored to be with you. So here's that talking stick right back at you. Okay, well, I'm going to toss it to you, Rama. What you got for us? This is called Alan Watts, The Mystery of Sleep. (laughs) Okay, The Mystery of Sleep, everyone. Here we go. Yeah. This is nine minutes, everybody's going to go a little over the time. Do you know that sleep is a very mysterious subject? Scientific students of sleep are not yet at all sure what sleep is. Apparently, people need it, but nobody really knows why they need it from a strictly scientific point of view. And uh, we we apparently need to dream in sleep also. People who are deprived of dreams get very, very restless and unhappy. But we're not quite sure why we need dreaming. I mean, we've got all sorts of theories, the Freudians and the Jungians and so on. They think we know, they know why we need to dream. But it hasn't been really rigorously established scientifically why we do or why we need to sleep. But from a naive point of view, you can say, of course I need to sleep. Because after I've had a whole day of busyness and friends and work and so on, it's it's too much. Uh, There's too much input. I want to digest it. And while I'm digesting it, I don't want any more input. I don't want any more information. So I want to be turned off. Uh, That's, you know, one of those simple common sense things that everybody knows, but uh, has not yet been fully explained. So sleep is this marvelous thing that we have, which is a forgettery process that is apparently essential to our psychic health every 12 hours or so. If you don't get it, you start getting worried. Uh, As a matter of fact, insomnia is a thing that is rather curious. Because if you do get insomnia, the, the worst thing of all to do is to worry about Invariably, if I can't sleep, I don't try to go to sleep. I get up and work or do something. Or I read a very difficult book, especially one that is big and weighs a lot. This is a good way to go to sleep. But if you have insomnia, don't try to ever try to go to sleep. Nobody can try to go to sleep. Lots of mothers think they can get their children and they say, darling, try to go to sleep. Didn't your mother say to you, try to go to sleep? She wanted to get you out of the way. That was the only reason she said try to go to sleep. Well, she thought perhaps if she, it was good for you and that you ought really to get your sleep. Like telling some child that it's got to eat its spinach. Uh, this is a form of the double bind. You know, you are required to do that which will be good only if it's done voluntarily. So go, try to go to sleep. 
It is impossible because it's a spontaneous activity and it can be helped, as we shall see when we come to consider torpor. But by and large, sleep is a spontaneous activity and is a way of turning yourself off to get away from the bombardment of awareness and forget because forgetting renews. And that also is a function of all demolitions, of deaths, of uh, destruction of patterns, of uh, knocking down buildings, of the whole change process in the universe. Because we want to do what we've done before over again, only if you remember it too often, it'll become boring. So if you forget, then you can do it again, and it'll be just as amazing as it was the first time. And so there absolutely has to be a forgettery built into this universe in just the same way and for just the same reasons that there must be an eliminative process in the body as well as an eating process. And both are vitally important. And you see, we have very different attitudes to the two. Eating is something we do socially. Eliminating is something we do privately. Uh, eating, we consider, we want the... the, the all good smells and all that kind of thing. Eliminating is all bad smells and that kind of thing. Well, this is largely social conditioning that tells us this. But uh, nevertheless, these are the two sides of the game we play and there's a spectrum between the two. So in the same way here, uh, you have to forget just as you have to eliminate so that everything is renewed because it can happen again without being boring. Things that happen all the time in any way uh, begin to pass out of consciousness. For example, if there is a constant noise going on while we're talking, it will annoy us at first, but after a while we shall cease to notice it, if it's constant. But if it keeps varying, coming on in different volumes and different rhythms, it'll hold our attention all the time. So anything that just goes eventually cease to notice. So then sleep is the renewer because it's a state of forgetfulness. The United States Postal Service, the reliable, affordable way to send more joy. Now, torpor describes something approaching sleep. But this also is a valuable state because it's very comfortable. In sleep, you are not aware of sleeping. But in torpor, you are aware of the comfort of tiredness and uh, minified consciousness. It is a sort of pseudo-return to the womb. And so when after a hard day's work, people have been irritating and combative, you go home or you go to the local bar and you down a number of martinis. They turn you off and they put you into a state of near torpor or what is quite correctly and scientifically called by this learned and funny word, narcosis. Narcosis uh, narcissus, you know, uh, is connected with narcosis. It means torpor. Reduced consciousness. Reduced sensory input. And the reason why narcissus is associated with narcosis is that narcissus 
when he saw his reflection in the water, didn't know it was himself. And he became so fascinated by this image in the water that he became uh, unaware of everything else. He got hung up, or shall we say, uh, to use current slang, hooked on his own image. And he didn't know it was his own image. That was the only reason he could get hooked on it. So narcissus and narcosis are associated. And so not the normal, the permissive narcotic in our culture is alcohol. And uh, other narcotics like opiates uh, exist. But you must remember that you can only correctly use the word narcotic or something inducing the state of consciousness, which is torpor. Now you can do it by massage, by relaxation exercises, by hot tubs, uh, many, many ways of inducing torpor. In torpor, you're not truly relaxed because you tend to lose muscular tonus, which you always retain in true relaxation. But you begin to go like a limp rag. Now there's a place for that in life. And it's good uh, as a in way of sleep induction for people who have insomnia and uh, are so anxious that they don't allow themselves to be turned off. I would want to say, in general, a good word for sleep and talk. Because a lot of people are against them. Uspensky, who was Gurdjieff's sort of St. Paul, always felt that his life was a war against sleep. That intense light consciousness should conquer darkness. Now that's a stupid idea. Um, to be a, a human being, you have to love the light, but you also must trust yourself to the darkness. Let yourself go in the faith that uh, you will arrive back all in one piece. Om Shiva. <laughs> okay, peace all over the world is is the mantra of uh, this early morning, Sunday morning here, and uh, may peace prevail on earth, and come and join us with Cheryl, uh, we'll do some really good uh, work for peace, and uh, when two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst, as the man with the plan said. So, um, just really quick, just gotta get the page to go. <laughs> okay, here, the number is. No. Just a moment. One, two. All right, here we go. It is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. 
946-7441 pounds. See you there. Uh, and as it's necessary, uh, to, uh, to, uh, move through a day where the heart becomes heavy, we just call peace out and, uh, uh, and renew the spirit of that peace inside, and then we can bring it to the outside, especially in the Middle East, but anywhere in the world, we'll pray peace. All right. Namaste, everyone. Satnam. Satnam, Dean. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil. And the time for this event is... uh it's at 7 o'clock, about 10 minutes to 7, Mountain Time, which would be 10 minutes to 9, Eastern Time, 10 minutes to 6 in the West. So join us. It will be Sunday night and also Monday night. Uh, it becomes more urgent these days, but it's true for all the world that we got come together. All right. Right now, come together. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. Namaste.